In this episode, we'll be doing TFOS 1535 to 1547. And as always, I hope that you enjoy. Tales from Outer Space 1535 The Unknowing Heroes, written by Clock Tower Echoes. There are thousands of statues in the Memorial Hall on Convergence, the galactic capital, where most heroes of a hundred species stand triumphant and proud. There are soldiers, commanders, diplomats, reformers, and researchers who have left their mark on the galaxy in times of peace and at war. But there is one statue that stands out among all of them as there are no other statues of its species. This soul statue is among the largest ever created and sits on a pedestal of walls and tombstones. Yet it wields no weapons, wears no armor, carries no banner of any space-faring nation. In fact, said species can't be found on Convergence or even in space, for they are people still bound to the homeworld. Humans. The humans are a primitive people, inhabiting what is known to official records as System 3871-A3, who still fight amongst themselves and believe their crude nuclear ordnance to be weapons of mass destruction. Their spacefaring development is equally as slow and unimpressive, counting simply going to their own moon as a huge achievement and seeing their glorified orbital closet they call the International Space Station as a peak of their scientific endeavors. Silly ideas, but pre-spaceflight primitives often have such delusions, so the humans are hardly unique in that regards, which might cause some to question why they are even represented in the Convergence, let alone the hallowed Memorial Hall. And that is because humans do the galaxy an impossible service without even realizing it. Hundreds of thousands of cycles of psionic beings of pure energy and thought tore their way into our reality, burning planets and shattering empires. They were an insidious invader, as they were not only attacked through conventional military means, but were capable of filling the mind with the thoughts of despair, of paranoia, of treachery, of ambition, and of hopelessness. To some, they promised their greatest selfish wishes of power and wealth, and to others they created a bleak, hopeless future that makes their lives meaningless. It took the greatest effort the galaxy had seen to that point, and to sacrifice of untold trillions to simply contain them as great leaders stepped up and took charge of the fight against the invaders on the front lines and on the home front their legendary efforts and deeds forever immortalized in the Memorial Hall. The galaxy had finally won after hundreds of cycles of bitter conflict and desperate struggles. The psionic invaders from beyond the veil were finally defeated. Their ships were scattered upon the solar winds and their dead left to float for eternity in the void. The stellar nations who survived buried their dead gave their species, raised their memorials, and promptly went on to rebuild their destroyed worlds, care for the billions of displaced refugees they each now had. The galaxy had suffered, and it had burned enough. So everyone moved on, and were completely blindsided thousands of cycles later when the psionic invaders awoke and came once again. 
unbound by death, the fresh new horrors soothed fallen bodies of the first wave to anchor themselves and pull themselves through before resurrecting their comrades and rebuilding their ships. Thousands of cycles had passed, but the galaxy burned once more. Again, planets were sundered. Again, dark psionic whispers filled the minds of countless billions. And again, stellar nations crumbled as they were unable to fight an enemy that could attack both their soldiers and their civilians in such a manner at the same time. Again, brave heroes and stalwart paragons rose under impossible odds to perform impossible operations to stop the invaders once more as generations lived and died in the second war against the psionics. Again, they would beat back the new invaders with a tenacity and ferocity not seen since the first invasion. Again, the invaders' armies were crushed and their ships were destroyed, now casted into the black holes of the galactic center. And again, the invaders would arise with fresh nightmares from their own dimension and bring a reign of war and struggle to the galaxy once more, again, and again, and again. There have been twelve invasions that played out exactly like this. The galaxy saved by great individuals at the cost of hundreds of worlds and countless lives. Twelve times the shattered ruins of the galaxy have tried to dispose of the dead invaders to prevent them from returning. Black holes and supernovas did nothing, and the galaxy's own psionics failed to contain them, with some even becoming hosts and puppets for the extra-dimensional invaders. Finally, in the aftermath of the 13th invasion, where only four stellar nations still stood in a galaxy that once hosted over a hundred, the survivors ran out of ideas. Too distracted with their own wounds, too, too broken to care, they simply gathered all of the remains of the invaders and cast them onto a random planet in the furthest system from their remaining territories. A system that was 3871-A3. They set guards around the edge of the system. No doubt none of them would survive should the psionic invaders again resurrect themselves and pull more of themselves into this reality. But when the time came... They would lay down their lives to give the rest of the galaxy a better chance. Except, their time never came. First a hundred cycles passed, and then tens of hundreds of cycles, and then thousands of cycles. There were never any signatures of the invaders returning. The galaxy cautiously cheered, having been free from the thousand-year terrors. But others began to question why. Finding their answers once they looked closer at System 3871-A3. The planet that those four surviving nations had chosen to dump the psionic corpses on actually contained sentient life. A fact missed or simply ignored in those grim, brutal post-war days. Seeing how the psionics could destroy planets and nations from the inside with their psionic whispers that poisoned the mind and darkened the heart. Many outright dismissed the fact that there was even sentient life still on the planet who managed to survive the endless voice that even the dead psionics spoke, let alone any form of civilization. Yet, the evidence was there. Tribes and stone buildings and settlements forming along their riverbanks. Again, many thought that such an anomaly 
while curious and inspiring, could not last. Yet the humans continued to develop and expand, and with each cycle more and more dare to ask, had the humans somehow done the impossible? A series of stealth investigations were launched, and the results came back beyond belief. Not only were the remains of the invaders still on and actively implanted themselves in the minds of men, but an entire invasion had effectively been trapped on the planet, unable to overcome the humans, not because any of latent human psionic ability, but by the collective unconscious willpower of their entire species. Without knowing it, humanity had done the impossible. Great civilizations, when their planets itself tried to prevent it, their history has been filled with cruelty, devastation, conflict, and vision, some of which the trapped psionic managed to undoubtedly create. Yet, it has also been one of development, of creation, of hope, and of unity. They had become unwitting sentinels of an eldritch graveyard and guardians of a galaxy that they had no knowledge of, and succeeded when no one else did. Perhaps then it is unfair to deride them as just another primitive race, blindly banging rocks and atoms together. After all, their environment is a challenge to life and civilization itself, a challenge that many of the most advanced civilizations of the past have failed. When considering such a disadvantage from the very start, their current achievements and the fact that they've managed to get this far at all is almost miraculous. Some wonder, once humans eventually reach out to the stars and contact the wider galactic community, how they'll react to the information. How will they react to finding a statue of themselves in the memorial hall next to legends that they cannot even comprehend? While their reaction and newfound view of their world and themselves is unknown, the view that most of the galaxy holds of them is not. They are heroes. They have defeated a foe that has haunted history for eons without knowing it. Created civilization despite of every dark whisper and sinister voice trying to prevent it. And have liberated the galaxy from a cycle of horror once thought infinite and inevitable. Humans are not heroes by strength of arms or virtue of technology. Humans are heroes simply for existing. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1536. Story number one. Space Boogaloo. Written by Poseidon underscore underscore underscore. I laughed. Each morsel of the news broadcast brought greater and greater joy to my soul. Following the landmark power exchange in the Terran government, the newly established Lizrael leaders have begun there to implement radical changes to the Constitution. Just this morning, a bill was introduced into Galactic Senate that would immediately criminalize the billions of humans owning plasma-style weapons. The Lizrael leadership stated that more changes will follow, and any humans that try to block the bill will quickly find the locks on their closet doors are not as secure as they thought. As of 2.54, standard galactic time, all owners of plasma-style weapons will be hunted down and given a death penalty by the LPC units. Knock, knock. Uh, who's there? LPC, open up! 
I put on my tactical goggles and switched the target tracking mode. The reptilians wouldn't capture me, dead or alive. No, I replied, as I finally hit the shiny red button installed in so many years before. Boogaloo 3, defense system. No klaxon sounded, but I knew the system was activated. Three targets on the doorstep, one ancient claymore, zero targets on the doorstep. Now, to prepare. Although officially I only owned one plasma pistol, gotten legitimately and legally. It was the only one. Gotten legitimately and legally, that is. I opened the safe and pulled out three more plasma rifles. One with a scope. The second with a small third hole drilled into it, along with another modifications. And another configured to vaporize my target. Also illegal. I pulled out some capacitors that I had modified to increase the max energy storage, along with an archaic but effective RPG. With the LPC units now in pieces on my doorstep, the metal gates began to slide down my windows, and the mines throughout my lawn armed themselves. Buying that 100-pack of pre-FTR claymores really was a smart decision. I then closed my safe, spun the dial, scrambled the password, put the key back underneath the floorboard, I bounced as I made my way to my other safe, in the underground bunker that I'd been building for years in secret. Crappy HOAs, feck off my property. If I want to create uranium processing lab underneath my house, I'll do it whether it's illegal or not. As I opened my second safe, I heard the sirens getting closer. Guess those LPC officers missed their check-in. I pulled out a small briefcase, strapped it to my person, and bolted back upstairs so I wouldn't miss any action. I turned my goggles to show the HUD of the cameras hidden all across my property, and watched with glee as the first hovercar hit a claymore and flipped over. They should have brought a tank, but even that probably wouldn't be enough for my overkill. The next hovercar wisened up, and the officers jetted straight to my front door. Of course, this was still a mistake. I was already out of the house, popping up near my fence as I trained my scope plasma rifle on the LPC font running across their backs. Life has many doors, fed boy. I quickly burned holes through their chests before turning back into my tunnel to utilize my other goodies stashed around my property. I had to use them all before I played my trump card, the ultimate feck you to the HOA. I popped up on my roof, or rather in my roof. A very small cubbyhole, not unlike an arrow slots in the medieval castles, still standing on earth, allowed me to survey the drive up to my house. As it was, the only method of approach unless they fancied creating a new one with a minesweeper. I opted to switch to my slightly modified, much more fun, and highly illegal plasma rifle. With a drill here and a part of replacement there, I had converted the standard high-powered modern-day weapon into a fully automatic high-powered modern-day weapon. Sure enough, a whole platoon showed up shortly with full riot gear on. Wouldn't matter. I started spraying, and whichever lizards weren't on the ground clutching their melting scales were too busy taking off melting body armor to notice the incoming mail bomb launched by automated defenses. I switched back to my scoped rifle and picked off the stragglers who hadn't died yet. For all the fear surrounding them, the LPC didn't seem to be changing their tactics. Finally, the hovercopter showed up, giddy. With excitement, I picked up my RPG. I'd never used it on anything except space rocks, so it was time to see what this baby would do. I took aim, fired, 
and saw the fear dawn on the lizard's eyes before this vehicle erupted into flame and spiraled onto my lawn below. A secondary explosion created a deafening blast as the claymores went off upon the copter's impact. The twisted heap of metal that used to be a hovercopter went flying out of the minefield, safely landing in a covert running by the road. Two more units in riot gear wearing LPC showed up, and just as dumb as the last one, I snatched my third, still unused plasma rifle and took aim. Outside of my effective range, I sighted the vans instead of the units, seeing that the hover vans melt as they stepped out. The lizards immediately took cover in the culvert where the hovercopter landed just a few minutes prior. Unfortunately for them, I'd taken precautions. I activated the megatoaster, as I liked to call it, and gave them all a nasty shock. Then I released a couple gallons of bleach and ammonia, and the rest of them keeled over after a few minutes. I guess at this point, I'm now a war criminal. But frankly, chlorine gas is a couple steps below my last resort, which it would soon be time to use. If I was right about how many lizards would show up in the next wave of my own personal zerg rush, I exited the crawl space and went back to my bunker. On the way, I unhooked my briefcase and stashed it under the stairs. The lizards wouldn't know what was coming to them. Safe in my bunker, I watched the next round of LPC show up on the HUD of my goggles. Ten riot squads, five hovercopters, and the biggest prize of them all, three full tanks. I made the big leagues. Well, I had my fun, but it was time to bug out and go join my local boogaloo cell. The time had come to blast off. I initiated the countdown and then put the automatic defense system on last resort mode. Immediately, the number of turrets tripled and began shooting at anything that moved. With the LPC distracted by that, I shot up and away from my house, getting one last look at the place that I called home and trusted to protect me. One last look before she was gone forever. As the ground receded rapidly, I saw the last of my turrets taken out and all units converging on my house. Nathan's smile spread across my face as I fished out a small plastic stick from my pocket. I uncapped it and pressed the second red button of the day. Then I watched as ten riot squads, five hovercopters and three tanks were vaporized in nuclear hellfire. I didn't feel bad in the slightest for causing my HOA to be responsible for radiation and a giant creator. Poor lizards, their definition of overkill is my idea of a day at the range. And they never even stood a chance. Once again, I smiled as I saw the mushroom cloud expand from above, knowing that the boogaloo was just beginning. My mission complete, I docked with my ship in orbit and sped away, contemplating all the future war crimes I've yet to commit. End of story. Story number two. So, uh, you're afraid of the dark... Written by Zalkos. So, uh, you're afraid of the dark. It's alright. It's okay. It's a natural kind of thing. There's scary stuff in the dark, right? Right. Some adults get scared too, you know. Some get it real bad. Some get a condition called uh, paranoia. It's a certain feeling that takes that part of you that's scared and kind of loops it over and over. Some people really struggle with it. But in this case, being afraid of the dark 
of monsters in your closet. Totally natural reaction to dark spaces. We're all kind of wired to look for bad things in the dark. Because that's where most of the bad things have to attack us. Because you know what? I'm going to tell you a secret. There's not really a secret. It's just something people don't say out loud much. You're a human, but you knew that. Uh, what do you mean, of course you knew that? Who's going around telling all my secrets? Is it you? It's you, isn't it? Okay, fine. I know you knew that. How do you get so smart, but uh, really? What I just told you, that's a powerful thing. Did you know that? Because it is. You're a human. And I'm also human. Sleeping just down the hall from you. And if you go outside, there's a bunch more humans. Almost seven billion of them. I'd be scared of trying to fight just seven people. Now, I doubt seven billion people are going to fit in your tiny little room to help you fight a monster. That's like way too many people. Way too many. Right? But out of the seven billion, or even a hundred thousand, I bet one or two would take your monster seriously. And one or two here, plus one or two there. That number gets big really quick. In fact, there's probably a million people who would try and fight that monster for you. A million! That's like a whole army. Would you fight an army by yourself? I wouldn't. And that's the biggest secret. You're a human. Do birds fly near you when you make a noise? No, they flap away, right? Bugs run away. Sometimes bears run away. Do wild animals come towards us, or do they run away? Exactly. You're human. There are so many of us that have already fought all the scary things already. So much so, that your monster, it's scared of you. Sleep tight. Now don't worry about the monster. I am much bigger human than you are. And if it tries anything, I'm going to come back in here. And I am going to be angry. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1537. Story number one. For all mankind. Written by Captain Capslock. So there he was. At the very cusp of destiny. The very fringes of fate. No. He was not a destiny. He was destiny himself. A vessel of change. A god of life and master of death. Was he both destiny and the reaper? Were those two things the same on this day? Were those two concepts ever separate? For some time he paused. He let the thousands of thoughts flow out of him and simply drifted in the void. He was weightless. His vessel was weightless. Space was, at that moment, infinitely small. Ten thousand years before mankind would mark their first steps to the moon, Peter Lynch floated effortlessly around the unfathomably big red giant star. He postulated the fact that he was currently the only human being in space. All mankind. The great empire of man. The Terran dominion. Children of Earth. Reduced to a bunch of insects crawling atop a spinning rock. Still, he knew that if he accelerated at the apex of the orbit for about 120 minutes, he would be on course to intercept Earth in about 8,000 years' time. Peter was always good with numbers, and alas, that is the reason he ended up here. Destiny. 
death. To understand Peter's turmoil, we must first understand his past. To understand his past, we must look to the relative future. Mankind explored space into the early 2100s. Space was big, and mankind would in its infancy in terms of technology. So the task was long and daunting. By 2150, we had the ability to travel at one-tenth the speed of light, and we could explore no more. Outside the gravitational pull of our solar system, there was nothing but blackness for lifetimes upon lifetimes. Mankind began to realize that unless it found some way to transcend these distances, we would never be the explorers of the stars that we dreamed ourselves to be. We would be confined to this rock of ours until resources ran dry and ended our reign. In the early 2200s, we began to experiment progressively with gravity, gravitation, or the God Force, as some of the more religiously oriented humans would call it turned out to be something of an anomaly. Gravity was found to, in fact, be composed of strings, unending straight lines that stretch far to eternity, or so we theorized. These gravitational strings were packed together tighter than the atoms in a neutron star, as dense as any human could imagine. They also held no weight to them, zero mass, but were affected by the mass of surrounding objects. It was also impossible, absolutely impossible, for these strings to be manipulated by any means other than increasing the mass in the system. But what's impossible for a human? We tried, and we've tried, and we've tried. And when all else failed, we decided to blow up Neptune, a reaction caused by the Sigma Singularity. For simplicity's sake, think of it as an unstoppable planetary cancer in the form of a single unstable atom would be condensed all nearby matter into a tiny ball, comparable once again to the density of a neutron star. To keep it simple, we wanted to create a reaction that would produce a ripple in gravity. We wanted to then ride this ripple to somewhere far, far away, in the hopes that we could be explorers again. Humanity failed, but boy, did we create a ripple about three months after Neptune collapsed, we were the first contacted by the Shavar. Looks like we were on the right track, but Neptune was far too small a target to get us to where we needed to go. What it did do was alert another intelligence of our presence, and by some stroke of luck, they were peaceful. Boy, were we lucky. The Shavar shared their technology with us freely, but they would always make sure we never knew too much. We couldn't blame them. Humanity had the potential to be a violent species. It was smart to keep them at bay. They taught us that collapsing giant stars and subsequently creating black holes in conjunction with the right technology could create wormholes to another areas of space. Sustainable wormholes. Humanity and the Shivar worked together over the next millennia. By the 3,000th year of mankind, we were as brothers. There was no longer a superior to us in technology, we considered each other to be equals, well, almost equal. The Shavar had always started out ahead, and in their technological leadership, they carved a place in history as humanity's big brother, always looking out for us, always taking care of us, as close to love as two intergalactic species could be. Now big brother protecting and guiding us. Mankind had never felt so safe in the arms of another.
There was yet one frontier that we had not crossed together. Time. Near the end of the 3,500th human year, the Shivar and mankind put all their intellect and resources together into learning to control and manipulate time. The final frontier, the payload, father, was built near Earth. It was a vessel that was the pinnacle of both civilizations, the size of an old Boeing 747 airplane. The vessel was tiny in comparison to the ships surrounding it, but the magic was all inside. The ship had the ability to condense itself into the event horizon of a black hole, to stretch itself into nothing more than gravitational waves. Through these waves, we could transcend time, then re-emerge at another point in time and space entirely. The stage was set. Peter, honored chairman of the Interspecies Alliance, was to be at the helm. They were in orbit around a supermassive black hole and had their eye on the prize. Exactly ten minutes earlier, Peter was going to condense himself ten minutes into the past, and in doing so, change history. And so into the event he went, and this ship condensed, and reappeared thousands of years into the past, about ten thousand years before the lunar landings to be exact. A malfunction, sabotage, negative. This vessel was working as intended. Ten thousand years before humanity ventures into space, and 8,000 years before the Shivar venture into space. The Shivar, like our loving big brothers, our loving, ever-watchful big brothers. We look up to them. We love them. Because we have to. Our loving, watchful, controlling big brothers. How far would mankind have come without their help? We would still be the apes stuck in the prison cells of our Earth. Well, to be fair, mankind was already on its way. Neptune failed, but there was still Jupiter, and sure, it would take a while, but sooner or later we would have collapsed a star. Then we would have traveled the galaxy, exploring and collecting as we saw fit. We would have been big brothers. We would have been the ever-watchful and ever-loving guidance that the Shiva needed. They would love us and look up to us, as we were forced to do with them. We only wanted to love as they had loved us. We only wanted the freedoms that they were granted to them when they began exploring space. We just wanted to find our own way. We are humanity. Our story should not simply be the additional volume to the Shivar Galaxy records. So Peter soaked it all in. This lovely giant star, which would one day be the black hole that his future self would use to come back here and observe the beauty and quiet of this untouched universe. He pressed a few buttons and watched as his payload was ejected from the cargo hold of his wonderfully advanced ship. The Sigma Singularity would take approximately five years to impact onto the surface of the Shivar homeworld. After that, our destiny would be in our own hands. Freedom. Freedom from oppressive love. This is all we ever wanted. Peter then fired up his engines, sure that he would be long dead by the time the craft reached Earth, but the technology contained on board would put us light years ahead of where we should have been. For all mankind, he whispered to himself. End of story. Story number two. Speak softly, written by the Caleb Mack. In the event of first contact, three distinct points must be observed by one or both parties. Firstly, 
take nothing for granted. Life always finds a way. And given the vast number of worlds able to support and sustain life, it is almost countless forms. It is mathematically certainly that once a reasonable level of complexity is achieved, sentience is simply a matter of time. As to what, for all that would take, historically speaking, there is at least a galactic average. Universally speaking, the sample size to date is too small for anything but educated conjecture. Secondly, just with the first point, this existence of cultural differences are to be assumed until proven or disproven via interactions between two parties. For all the same reasons as above, maintain a level head and don't take yourself too seriously, so as to avoid offending one another. Thirdly, and arguably most important of all, be slow and kind when you communicate, but always have your weapons handy, just in case. Uh, did a human write this? Indeed. Why am I not surprised? Because we have lived with humans for a century now, and it seems likely that they have finally exhausted every possible trick of their scary death world brains can come up with. Hey guys, guess what we just figured out? How to make us or something else go even faster? Okay. Who told you? End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1538 Story number one. A not-so-quiet night. Written by Echoing Cascade. Chief of Security Orison was writing his report on yesterday's altercation with the Nebula Express, a dingy bar on the promenade, to a new director of operations of refueling station 2319. It was only me and Constable Uri at the office. The others were at the retirement party for Officer Minnesota. Everything was fine. Nothing but routine work until we were called out for a brawl at the Nebula Express bar. We got our gear and reluctantly started to make our way there. But before we left, a second message arrived. The fighters were death worlders. Humans, no less. I grabbed my special human gear and Uri equipped the anti-tank portable cannon. Not sure why, since it would probably just really annoy a human if he managed to get hit one at all. I told him as much, but he was never a bright lad to begin with. First day on the job, he insisted he would replace me by the end of the week, and then bring an interior decorator to fix my office. Everyone laughed and thought that he was a funny guy, until he brought his decorator the following day to take measurements. Now, line of work is risky, and no one likes to partner with a delusional moron, hence why I'm stuck with him most of the time and why he wasn't invited to the party. By the time we got there, the two humans, who were clearly intoxicated on the bar's only human drink, Nebula Shots, which I've been told taste like a bleach-flavored jack percolated in dirty socks, were in the middle of a shouting match, but things were not looking good. One was starting to push the other. I'd been around humans long enough to see that it would not stop there. As you've probably read in my files, I've served as a liaison officer for the 42nd Marine Recon Unit prior to my military discharge, and during my time with them, I became friends with their captain. He told me a lot about humans. Some of it was even useful. And on this particular night, it would save my life. While I was slowly approaching the pair, making sure I had no weapon in hand, I asked in my most authoritarian voice, Well, well, well! What's all this then? I was told that it was a ritual to say this given the current situation. 
They both turned as one and looked at me, which is when I heard Constable Yuri yelp. I turned to look at him and saw it fly past me. It was a sort of footwear, a sandal made of synthetic material, with two straps and a V and the rubber sole. It spun like a throwing knife and hit one human square in the forehead, who grunted in pain. The other human began to laugh, but then the diminutive female human, who had thrown the strange weapon, ran past me before I could get out another word, picked up the weapon, and hit the laughing man in the back of the head with a sound eerily reminiscent of cracking chitin. This is where the defecation hit the air recirculator. Constable Uri panicked and fired the cannon at the woman whose frame barely moved on the impact. The two men's eyes went wide and their demeanor changed. They suddenly looked very sober and very scared. The woman hadn't looked happy to begin with, but now, now she was furious. As she slowly made her way to Constable Uri, I finally noticed a uniform. She was human military some sort of officer, and the two idiots behind her were likely soldiers under her command. Constable Yuri asked me what to do in a trembling voice. I pointed to the two human males behind an advancing female. They were frantically gesturing for Yuri to drop his weapon and run. Do as the terrified death willers say, and do it fast. He dropped the cannon and ran to the station prison, where he locked himself in the most secured cell, proving he might not actually be completely brain dead. The problem was that I was still there, and my job demanded I defuse the situation. Luckily, I had my human gear, and by the time she was within striking distance, I grabbed the box I kept for such an occasion and opened it. Chocolate, ma'am! That stopped her in her tracks. She looked nonplussed, but curious. A good sign. She moved very cautiously towards the profit box. She reminded me of a rodent trying to pry a tasty parcel from a trap. If my life wasn't on the line... It would have been funny. She took one and ate it, and then smiled from ear to ear and grabbed the box from my hands. She then turned around in a semi-crouch and with the left arm covering the box as if to protect it. She proceeded to eat several of the candies in quick succession. On the human males laughed, at which point she gave him a glare that dropped the room's temperature by several degrees. I simply looked at the scene and didn't say a word. Captain Duran had been very clear. When dealing with an angry woman, do not speak unless spoken to. Remember that everything you say can and will eventually be used against you. After she was satisfied, she presented me with a box of chocolates. It was still nearly half full. I shook my head and said, No, ma'am, keep it. It's the least I can do for the inconvenience. Another rule, as told by Captain Duran, never try to get between an angry woman and her chocolate. Even if she tells you that you can take one... Don't. It's a trap. The woman smiled, snapped her fingers, and the two idiots followed her back to the ship, where I have no doubt she chewed them up and spit them out. But what happens on their ship is out of my jurisdiction, so who cares? In conclusion, I would like to take from Constable Uri's next month's salary the funds to buy another box of premium Belgian assorted chocolates from my personal back channels. They'll be put with the rest of my human gear four German beers in permanently chilled cans, and a large bag of salted pretzels. While I know these items are very expensive, I believe that instances like this prove that they are worth every credit. End of story. Story number two. The Terran Philharmonic Orchestra. Written by Devara Kui. 
Good evening, everyone. My name is Leonard Hector Toscanani, conductor of the Terran Philharmonic Orchestra. Thank you all for joining us for this momentous occasion. The first public display of human cultural traditions for the galaxy at large. We are honored to have been trusted by our people and welcomed by you, our new friends. In time, you'll come to hear all our vocal works and mixed works using both voices and instruments, as well as see, hear, smell and taste and feel the myriad of other vehicles of human expression. But tonight's performance was simple number of instrumental works. Some are so historically important that they defined epochs. Some are so popular that every human knows them. And some are so emotional that they take the place of words and art as media of expression. Many of you may question how sounds can have feelings. To humans, all of our senses represent feelings. Our strongest memory triggers our smells. Paintings and pictures can evoke empathy, despair, or joy. A dance can convey love or hate, and a few soft nuts can make battle-hardened infantrymen kneel and weep. The people on stage are consummate professionals. They have dedicated their entire lives to perfecting their craft and have reached the pinnacle of human achievement in orchestral music. They were selected from the most elite ensembles on Earth and elected to join together to create the group that you see before you. A heretofore unheard of conglomeration of prowess that is vitally driven to share its passions with not just their planet, but their galaxy. Tonight's program will feature three works and should run a brisk 65 Terran minutes with no intermission. The first is by Ludwig von Beethoven, a four-note opening motive which has been known to nearly all humans since he penned it just over 200 years ago. Beethoven's Symphony No. 5 in C minor is in four movements and will run approximately 35 Terran minutes. Please note that it is human tradition to delay one's applause until the fourth movement's conclusion. The second work is brief, albeit stirringly emotional. String orchestra composition that will run about 11 Terran minutes. Samuel Barber wrote a Dago for strings and sent it on to one of my distant relatives, a renowned conductor in his own time after which it became regarded as one of the most deeply affecting pieces in our musical repertoire. Even after playing it literally thousands of times, some of the musicians on stage regularly tear up as they reach the piece's climactic wail. Our third and final entry in tonight is the 19-terminate jazz piano concerto by George Gershwin. His Rhapsody in Blue is paithful, inventive, and energetic. It features Thelonious Vladimir Richter on piano, and a video feed of his hands will be broadcast so all may appreciate the virtuosity with which he approaches and lifting arrangement that traverses multiple genres and demands rapid textural changes. We hope that you enjoy our performance.
All performers will be available after the concert to discuss their craft and answer any questions you may have. And now, without further ado... The conductor nodded the final conclusion at the audience and turned to the players. The galaxy's largest performance hall filled with hundreds of thousands of beings watching with unbroken attention. The hall was eerily silent as he wrapped the black music stand with his baton exactly once and snapped both arms to shoulder height. The multicolored faces of the Terran Philharmonic Orchestra, all dressed in perfectly clean black and white, instantly abandoned their relaxed postures and assumed an almost predatory readiness, ice-wrapped arms and hands poised to strike. The conductor inhaled sharply as he raised his arms, baton pointing straight up before crashing it down. An instant later, the hall exploded in sound. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1539. Undiscovered Colors, written by Marilyn of many. Turlaw's parents were excited. The new species could see things that no one else could. Unprecedented. And a group of them would be visiting the ship today. And Turlaw's parents would get to meet them. Turlaw didn't see what the big deal was. Who cared if there were other colors other than those between black, white, and gray? That didn't sound like a useful thing to see. But to hear her parents tell it, this was the biggest discovery since... Oh, um, since the last one. Oh, I hope their envoys are good with words. Tula's father enthused. I can't wait to hear a description of these invisible colors. How must we look to them? Tula's mother asked. What if we have patterns or spots that we can't see? She spread four white-furred arms, gesturing at a pristine torso with the other two. Not a spot anywhere as far as Turla could tell. From a place on the climbing chair, Turla asked, Wasn't there some other species that they said could see special colors? Her father flicked an ear dismissively. The old trees, uh, they claim to, but they have never been interested in proving it. Probably an exaggeration at best. They do seem the time to make something like that up, for ego's sake. Tula's mother agreed. They're proud of so many things, their music, their storytelling, their history of outliving the trees that they evolved to blend in with. Tula put her chin down on top of forms. Oh, right, the bug people who look like sticks. Yes, her mother said. But the new species will be nothing like them. These uh, humans really can see extra colors. Okay. Tola said. She twined her tail around one of the poles in the climbing chair and waited while her parents got ready for work. Soon enough, the family was out the door of their quarters, Mom and Dad to their respective workstations, and Turla to what passed as a school on the ship. Not much more than some babysitting robots, a stack of books, and a couple other kids. Her parents let her walk the distance by herself. It was safe and boring. As she passed the cargo bay, she overheard grown-ups talking about giving the humans a tour when they arrived. By the sound of it, they would be arriving soon. Tola paused in the hallway. School was boring, but getting to see exotic newcomers first was not. She'd explored the hallways many a time on the walks to and from school, and she knew exactly where to hide. There was a wall panel just around the corner, and that could be pried loose with a little compartment behind it. 
other people had used it before. The faint claw marks at the edges of the panel were what she'd noticed first, and there were several empty containers inside. But in a handful of times Tola had checked, nothing had been added or removed. That made it perfect now. She scurried ahead, glad to see no one in sight. Crouching furtively, she applied her claws and tugged the panel free, then wriggled in. While the front of the panel was the same smooth grey as the rest of the hall, the back was rough enough for her to pull the back into place with a click. Turla curled up to wait. The compartment was small but not cramped. Even the containers in the corner, faint light seeped around the panel. Conversations in the hallway were muffled, but only a bit. She listened. Cargo bay workers were concerned with cleaning up before they arrived. They moved crates around, bickering like Tola's cousins. It was comforting sound. Tola closed her eyes just for a moment. She hadn't gotten much sleep. What with her parents being so excited they let bedtime slide? Surely she could just rest her eyes. The humans would arrive soon. When Tola started snoring, it was quiet enough that the busy cargo workers didn't notice. They had things to rearrange and argue about, with important guests on the way. The cargo bay, which should be immaculate, never mind the fact that no ship in the fleet could claim such a thing, and no one really expected it. When the shuttle finally came into dock, the cargo bay was a tidy at best. Crates were in reasonable system of organization, some may have been set in places where they regularly wouldn't be, but always in clean rows. The fact that one of those rows lined the hallway was low priority. Surely the guests would breeze right by and no one could possibly object. Turla woke to the sound of a dozen voices all speaking at once. The loudest voice was describing the hallway. It was the tour. She grabbed the rough panel and nudged it firmly, wondering why the light was so dim. The panel didn't move. She pushed harder. No luck, and the crowd was moving away. She braced her feet against the back wall and shoved, but still the panel held. By the time she decided that getting into trouble was worth it and called out to the grown-ups in the hall, the chattering crowd was moving away. Tula shouted. She pushed and hammered with many fists, but nothing helped. Outside the compartment, the crate hadn't shifted even a hair's breadth out of line. Down the hallway, the exotic guests were responding politely to the disorganized tour with many tour guides. They could indeed spot differences in color that the ship's crew couldn't. A stain here, a different type of metal there, unexpected food varieties in the cafeteria. It was enough to keep people enthralled for quite some time. More than enough time for the robotic attendants at the children's care center to remark on the unexpected absence. Enough time for them to contact the child's parents. Though getting through to them was a challenge right now. Tula's parents were annoyed that she hadn't gone where she should have. And today, of all days, an attendant volunteered to search the halls and report back. After that fruitless report came, concern started to replace annoyance. Tola'a's parents excused themselves from their jobs to conduct their own search. They checked other places that Tola'a had been known to find intriguing. They didn't check an unobtrusive section of hallway near the cargo bay. More people got involved. The security was notified when the announcement of a missing child was broadcast to the entire ship. 
Hope is high that someone would appear with word about her, if not Tula herself. But no one did. The honored guests insisted in joining in the search. No one put up more than a token objection. The tour was complete enough, and this was very kind of them. It was very fortunate, too. Has anyone checked the secret compartment? asked the tallest human. The, the what? the security officer asked. Her ears flattened in dismay. The human pointed to one hairless hand. Over there, behind those crates. It's a long shot, I know. The officer directed people to move crates immediately. These weren't here earlier. Why do you say there's a secret compartment? The human's response was lost in the shouting of workers moving crates. I hear a voice! She she's here! All souls rushed in to help. Once the crates were out of the way, a panel popped free and a tearful child stumbled out. Hands of many kinds helped her up, while her parents were summoned. Tola! cried her mother, and her father close behind. Tola hugged them fiercely with all of her arms, sobbing promises to never hide anywhere ever again. The sympathetic huddle of crewmates cheered in joy. The child had been found, all thanks to the honored guests. Without releasing the hug, Tula's father asked how they'd known where to look. The human laughed and pointed at the blank wall. It's written right here in a color that I'm guessing you folks can't see. What is? Tula's father asked. If my translator is reading it right, it says, Boo-stash. Uh, oh, an intoxicant. The security officer's fur puffed up with anger. These old trees from the last cycle, I knew firing them wasn't right choice. She calmed immediately. Of course, their degenerate habits did lead to this rescue, so maybe they're not complete shame of a race. Tula'a's mother said that she'd like to thank them. The various adults all agreed that that word should get out in the one way or another. At the very least, to confirm for the galaxy at large that the old trees did indeed have some form of heightened colored vision. Whether it was to match for the humans was yet to be decided. And you may want to check the other graffiti, the tall human said. A shorter human was nodding enthusiastically. I wasn't going to say anything, but there's something really rude written on the ceiling back that way. The security officer looked annoyed again and asked the humans to assist in documenting the offenses. They agreed with body language that looked to Tula like they thought it was funny. Tula also thought that it was funny. She smiled about it quietly still clutching her parents while the humans wished her well and went off to the security officer. Would you like to stay with us today? Her mother asked, and with a glance at her father. I don't think anyone would mind. Her father huffed, they better not. Tola nodded, her parents were brushing her ears. Yes, please. The family separated enough for her to clasp every one of her hands in theirs. Then they followed the crowd in the directions the humans had gone. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1540. The Line in the Sand, written by Average Cake Enjoyer. I doubt that you've heard of the Rathians, have you? I can't say that I have, Professor. Why? To be honest, uh, I didn't really expect you to. All for the better, I guess, sir. There is no need to scare our younglings needlessly like that. Scare us, sir. What are the Rathians, anyway? Not what? Before their fall a few centuries ago, they were one of the largest slavers in the galaxy. In truth, their whole race was bathed in blood before they even left their first planet, having enslaved other sapiens on their world. 
It is not much of a surprise they continue to do so after achieving spaceflight. Slavers? Why didn't the Alliance do anything about it? They couldn't. Not to diminish their actions by any means. They definitely tried to stop the Rathians. But by the time the Alliance caught wind of what they did, the Rathians had already subjugated at least 20 systems, their fleet nearly rivaling the Alliance's. So they did what they had to. They retreated. They knew it would be a Pyrrhic victory if they tried. So to protect the rest of the galaxy, they abandoned a whole third of it, completely isolated it from the rest of the galactic community, leaving behind countless other sapiens at the hands of the Rathians. It really was a damned-if-you-do, damned-if-you-don't situation, to quote the Terran phrase, but you said that they've been defeated. If the Alliance couldn't do it, how? You'd be surprised. It was the Terrans and the Terrans? Surely not. Everyone knows they're one of the most peaceful races around. They are now, and they were then. They have always valued peace above everything else. Something their diplomats said had to do with their history. I've always respected that about them, Hal. They've even got rules for war. Something we ended up finding wasn't a sign of weakness. But they're just as good at warfare, competing with the best of us at times. They just find no reason to fight. Finding peaceful resolutions a better choice. What happened then? The Terrans came from the other side of the Alliance's blockade, near the border of it to be a bit more specific. They managed to populate a few systems before they popped off on both the Alliance's and the Rathian's radar. To nobody's surprise, as soon as the Rathians took wind of another sapient species on their side of the border, a large fleet warped over Terran Blall, broadcasting their demands for immediate and unconditional subservience, lest they want to get exterminated. So they did right, as much as I hate to say it. Being a slave is better than being wiped out. Evidently, um, they didn't seem to think so, immediately rejecting the Rathians' terms. Needless to say, the Rathians didn't take that rejection of the Terrans kindly. Soon after their broadcast ended, they sent dropships full of warriors towards their cities to occupy them while bombarding defense installations from orbit. They didn't take this incursion lying down, though. They fought tooth and nail on the ground and in space, but everyone watched the spike go on, knowing that it was a losing battle for the Terrans as soon as they took up arms against the Rathians. The Terran fleet, admittedly, was no match for their counterpart. Their ships a ragtag assortment of hastily modified civilian vessels and outdated warships from their own conflicts. Their obsolete fleet of ships was outnumbered troops proved to be a thorn on the Rathian side, though, as they used guerrilla tactics, forcing the invaders to pay in blood for each kilometer of ground that they took from the Terrans. Still, sounds like they were outnumbered. There is no way they're going to win against that. They were outnumbered, and they weren't going to win. And they knew that. Those humans aren't stupid, you know. They knew that they were fighting an uphill battle against an overwhelming force. They fought relentlessly to stall the Rathian advance, all while preparing for the worst. The Rathians themselves weren't averse to bloodshed, knowing full well the cost of war. They paid the price of blood to take each and every world they landed on hostage. As they slowly advanced towards the final Terran-controlled system, their home system. 
above the last planet on their way to the Terran home system, they broadcast to them what was to be their biggest mistake. Every single datapad, monitor, and television on that planet was hijacked by the Rathians as they made their demands to the Terrans again. But this time, they had footage to accompany the Emperor's terms for surrender. And do you know what that footage was? What? They gathered all the footage from the incursion, playing videos of them bombing Terran cities, schools, hospitals, and military bases as they showcased close-up pictures of destroyed buildings and the corpses of their civilians and children, of all things. Naturally, this incensed the humans, their fury palpable at the treatment of their kin, but you know what pushed them over the edge? The Emperor's speech. How could it possibly be worse than watching the abhorrent footage? Here, let me play the recording of it. I knew keeping this data crystal would come in handy. It's not like you're going to find this without a whole lot of digging on the galactic net. Humans, heed my call. Surrender now or face complete extermination. You've seen what we are capable of. Think of it as a taste of what is yet to come if you continue to defy our glorious crusade. It is unthinkable for you to resist our attempts to uplift you, as you should consider yourselves blessed to serve beneath us, as we give your pitiful existence meaning. If you do not listen to my demands, my fleet will continue to advance and destroy all that remains of you. We shall kill your wounded and destroy your hospitals to deprive you of your safety. Your schools will fall, snuffing out your future. And your children will die, taking what hope you have left with them. So make your choice wisely, humans. I expect to hear your immediate surrender soon. My gods... It isn't easy to listen to, right? The Terrans thought so too. Their leaders and citizens enraged at the words of the enemy's emperor. But emotions did nothing to stop their advance. The world falling to the combined strength of the Rathian fleet. With nothing left to stand in their path, the Rathians made their way to the last bastion of humanity. Their home system, and what they found, surprised them. The time the Terrans bought with their lives wasn't spent on nothing, as they'd soon find out. The Rathians, seeing the massive fleet of hundreds of Terran warships waiting for them at the edge of the system. The Terran capital, ship, was gargantuan, the ship being what seemed to be a moon, the surface of it bristling with weapons and maneuvering thrusters. But, however threatening the renewed Terran fleet may have been, it wasn't an immovable object in comparison to what seemed like the Rathians' unstoppable force. The humans were outnumbered three to one. Yet, they fought valiantly, fighting the Rathians to a standstill, with neither of the fleets able to make a decisive move. But they both knew that eventually, something had to give. And that something gave. And it was... the Terrans. A Rathian spearhead managed to squeeze its way through the Terran lines, devastating the flanks and the rear of the human warships. 
Soon, the fighting devolved into chaos. The Terrans on the back foot. How, how did the humans manage to win? They didn't. They lost. But... In doing so, they made sure the Rathians didn't win. What do you mean? Knowing that they were fighting the battle that would decide their race's fate and that they were losing it. They did the unthinkable. With their capital ship crippled, the surviving Terran warships entered warp for a brief moment before reappearing in front of each of the enemy ships, destroying the remnants of both fleets in a glamorous display of explosions. Knowing that it wouldn't be long until Rathian reinforcements came and that they had nothing left to fight with, they used their final weapon. You see, their capital ships wasn't just a weaponized moon. It was also their uh, doomsday weapon. The moon split into tens of pieces as explosions cracked it open, each chunk the size of large continent. Each of these chunks held a warp drive with just enough fuel for a one-way trip. At their destinations, Rathium ship docks, military outposts, anything of value. I don't have to explain to you the destructive power of a continent-sized chunk of rock, leaving warp over a planet at a significant amount of the speed of light, but, 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 but that's complete insanity. You're right, but I don't blame them. They didn't have much choice in the matter. It was either that or annihilation. With their final actions, the Terran fleet crippled the Rathian war machine in an instant, giving the Alliance the opportunity it never had before. Coming to the Terran's aid, the Alliance fleet warped into the human system, finding a graveyard of ships waiting for them. The wounded remains of humanity still holding on by a hair. After that, there wasn't much work for the Alliance to sweep through the rest of the previously Rathian-controlled space, eliminating pockets of resistance while they liberated enslaved races from their weakened grasp. But that's part of a chat for another time. Just know that the humans are a bunch of peace-loving hippies. They'll be the best of friends, loyal to the end. But you dare cross the line in front of them. And you'll soon find that they can be the worst of enemies as well. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1541. Story number one. I think we underestimated the size of the human species by eight or nine orders of magnitude. By in Babylon they wept. Warroom was reading. The human population had been estimated in the mere hundred billion range. They should barely have had enough of an economy to field two light cruisers, least of all the goddamn armada that was ravaging their inner worlds. After the Alpha Strike, the human flotilla should have been completely crippled. Instead, the number of ships they were fielding kept growing. Tannhauser was the first target struck by the human attack and they reported 17 craft before they lost comms. The Atikan was hit just three days after that, but their reports already showed numbers above 90. Any doubts that the fleet was growing were eliminated when Outpost Baton reported 1,217 FTL pings two days before the loss of Kyra. The number of reports was so big it was written off as a sensor malfunction. 25 billion souls lost, all because nobody 
in the war room could face reality. They were going to face it now. Tyrion, in front of them, was the primary sensor engineer for the Batten outpost, a specialist with more expertise in analyzing space lanes than warships. He'd been up for at least the last two days, poring over the sensor data, and only now was ready to begin to share his findings. From the pain in his multifaceted eyes, it was clear that he was still reading from the loss of his homeworld. Seeing that he had the room's attention, he began to speak. The translation units each member of the War Council had implanted experienced a moment of lag as they struggled to convert the almost musical tonal humming of the Kyrarian tongue to a more common galactic speech. The simplest data that can be analyzed from an FTL ping is the distance that the ship traveled before dropping to sublight. The contracted space in front of the craft drops small particles, even light itself for a short period, compressing its waves and then releasing it when the field disengages. The war room nodded along. The explanation was mildly technical, but anyone that had traveled on an FTL shuttle before knew the hazards of exiting FTL directly in front of your home destination, Blasting your home station with a wave of alpha, beta, and ultraviolet rays was hardly a warm welcome. The engineer continued. The issue with this is that we are used to the majority of the ping being in the UV spectrum. We aren't entirely sure what the spectrum of the signals we got from the ships were, because Baton Station only detected up into the low gamma range. That's still what the majority of the human FTL pings were detected in. That's at least 10 billion times the frequency that we used to. Since the frequency of the burst can be roughly modeled by multiplying the mean radiation per unit distance by the length of the path, this implies one of two things. That the human ships were either traveling through areas with 10 billions of times the standard background flux, or they were traveling extragalactic distances. The engineer paused for a few seconds at that statement. The pain of loss still shone in his gemstone eyes, but something more immediate was beginning to take center stage. Fear. Because the craft is essentially throwing, well, uh, normally it would be the next three or four days worth of cosmic background radiation at you. In our case, it's more like several decades, but because it's just giving you an advance on your normal cosmic background radiation, you can track the void in the next several days worth of background noise to determine the ship's approach vector. The 1,217 craft that arrived weren't coming from the same spot. There were actually hundreds of converging vectors. But, uh, more importantly, we trailed off. A small 3D model of the local space appearing at the center of the hollow table. A spiked ball of vectors protruding from the galactic disk, each piercing cleanly through its formal homeworld. His voice cracked a little, the hum turning into a hiss. The translator's text paused a moment, too, struggling to convey the subtle emotion cues into a message. They're all coming from the galactic disk. That doesn't mean that they were surrounded. That doesn't just mean that they were outnumbered. It means that each attack that we've seen up to this point is from an entirely separate group. What we've been mistaking for fleets, I believe, are simply the beginning trickles of an exploratory force. Each of the sites that they have targeted hasn't been of significant strategic importance. They've just been sites with unusually strong output signals. I uh, think 
They're just using our transmission stations as makeshift beacons for their FTL jumps. Uh, I think we underestimated the size of the human species by, uh, all nine orders of magnitude. There was a heavy silence in the war room as the last sentence was preceded. The engineer was already out the door before he heard the panic begin to set in. Part of him felt guilty. It would probably would have been kinder for them to go out not knowing what was about to hit them. Still, it wasn't often you could force people with this much power to realize that they'd just lost everything. There was a bit of satisfaction in that. End of story. Story number two. Humans have zero chill when it comes to technology. Written by Damaged Dice DM. As the advanced leader in technology for the GA Galactic Alliance, we are the Orthadians. are tasked with assessing new applicants' technical knowledge level for inclusion in the Alliance. Applicants are given a score based on the percentage of technical achievements as compared to our own. No race had ever achieved a score over 50%, and the humans were no different. They scored quite well in industrious metrics and mathematics, but were hampered by their lack of exotic metallurgy and material sciences. Due to Earth being a very young planet and lacking the gravity required to create some of the important exotic materials needed, were faster than light tech and others. One area of technology they excelled at was shielding and weaponry. Apparently, they had been fighting each other for so long that they had a sort of stalemate between a weapon that could destroy almost anything and shields that could protect against almost anything had forced a peace stalemate. The standard test for technology level was for the planets to present their best minds. They would be tested on theory as well as practical subjects. One of the modules was hyperdrive FTL technology which we already knew that they didn't have due to the aforementioned inability to manufacture suitable materials caused by a lack of gravity. They did quite well in theory and did much better than expected in identifying the parts and purpose of most of the engine when tested. In the end, it was decided that if they were to join, they would need to be supplied the materials and experts to make this technology feasible for them. This was good news for the Orthalians, as they were the only race that could supply such materials and experts. And this would put them in a very good position in trade, as it had with other races, basically allowing them to demand whatever they would want in return. They filed their report and informed the humans that they had received a score of 22%, and that the Alliance would deliberate their application over the next six of their months. They did not seem pleased at the low score, even though it was quite respectable amongst the other member races. They asked how long until they could retest to challenge the result. We informed them that all retests would have to be done on Kexeldan, the Orthalian homeworld, and with their current spaceflight capability, the journey would take over 23 years. They appeared to resign themselves to the process and their low score. It was less than two of their months later when we received communication that they wished to retest. We again reiterated that all retests would have to be performed on Kexeldan. They confirmed they understood. Moments later, a ship appeared in low orbit, carrying a delegation from the human homeworld. At first, we were shocked and assumed that another race had sold the ship or passage to the humans, but this ship was unlike anything that we'd seen before. 
With permission, they landed, and we held several meetings with the delegation. From what we discerned, that they had indeed built the ship in the intervening time since we last met, and it was not only FDL capable, but was faster than even our current tech by an order of magnitude. Maffled by this development, we asked where they sourced the materials for the craft since they lacked the ability to make them. Turns out, they did make them, by producing them in the center of their own sun. They built a factory for it inside their sun. Apparently, they built a mobile factory, slapped enough shielding to it to make it survivable, just to craft the elements they needed for a drive, and threw it into their sun. They had also, in the few hours that they'd spent with our schematics, figured out enough for them to not only understand how to build it, but using their weapons and shield tech to improve it, basically turned the ship into an FTL gun that shot itself across the galaxy almost instantaneously. <sighs> that was almost 200 years ago. And that brings us to today. After a long wait, we received our technology score in our bid to join the UTA, the United Terran Alliance, sir. We managed a respectable 13%. Now, uh, we, we wait for the, their decision. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1542. Story number one. There are no rules. Written by Mercury, the dealer. There are no rules. That is the first thing anyone learns about the universe. Sure, you can find some patterns. Things fall towards bigger things. You need food to live. The usual. But really, most patterns just break easily. Sometimes rocks are the same size, but things fall faster towards one for no reason. Sometimes stars decide to go boom. In some places, you can breathe, and in others, you can't. Things are strange. No, the universe is weird. There are no rules. That is why the gods are there. When they all appeared on our big rocks, we, like idiots, asked for the rules. Why do things fall? Why is the sky blue? What is that big bright thing on the sky? Soon we realized that such weird things could only be gods. And we were right. Why do things fall? Because gods said so. Why is the sky blue? Because the gods live in the sky, and they like blue. What is that bright thing? That's the sun god. With our curiosity satisfied, we decided to focus on more important things. Killing each other over who had the best god. That is how all species get to the wider universe. They find a god. They believe in them, and that god eventually teaches them to leave the rock. Then they appeared. Humans. We didn't really care for them at first. Just another people confined to a backwater part of the galaxy that, uh, if well managed, could become a local great power, just by sheer lack of competition. Except um, that they didn't stay confined. We didn't understand how, but they could move between stars faster than our fastest ships could ever dream of. We didn't know how they could be so fast, or how their ships worked. And the worst part is that they didn't understand how our ships worked, either. They asked us how we were able to be in space. We told them that the gods had helped us build our ships, and asked how their vessel worked. They told us they had no gods, 
They had built their ships using the rules. We told them, and that was impossible. There were no rules, and everyone had gods. They sent our envoy a copy of the rules, how their ship worked, and why they thought ours shouldn't. The captain that read it died of suffocation within seconds. The rest of the bridge followed soon, and then the entire ship. This was just the beginning. Humanity advanced through the galaxy at a disturbingly fast rate. They asked us questions which we had never had even thought about, and when they tried to explain the concepts behind the questions, we just died. How do you maintain gravity in a station without a grav generators? They asked, and the station collapsed as it lost all gravity. How do you maintain structural integrity with a hull made out of wood? They asked, and the merchant ship immediately broke apart. How do you protect yourselves from solar radiation? They asked, and the entire mining station had to be abandoned as its residents could no longer leave without burning their skin off. They told us things that made no sense. They talked about something called a collective psionic mind. How? The common universal belief that something is true by a collective mind of a species manipulates reality to make it so by sheer psionic force. And that, the faith in a supposedly divine entity not only makes said entity real in certain ways, but also focuses the energy of the entire species, greatly augmenting its ability to manipulate the physical world. None of us understood it and... Given the fact that human knowledge led to death, none of us wanted to understand. Humanity was soon seen by all as a major threat that none could ignore. And so, we fought them. We sent our best ships fitted with our best weapons and crew towards human territory. We studied the rules they sent and modified our fleets so that they would withstand this vacuum they liked so much. They were confused at first. They asked their stupid questions like, why do you need a sail in space, and how does 18th century cannons work in the void? But we ignored them and advanced. They sent their border police against us and asked more questions. Why is your hull made of obsidian and gold, and how are your harpoon crews alive in the void of space? Also, why do you have harpoons in the first place? We made sure not to share the questions beyond the bridge so that the curse would not take effect. And then we attacked and failed. Our harpoons shattered upon contact with the hulls as if they were made of glass. Our armor cracked and melted under their lasers like it was barely an inconvenience. We were crushed. The few that survived the massacre were sure that they had brought doom to us all. After that, though, the humans stopped coming. Their message was that humanity inherited anti-psionic effects mixed with the natural understanding of the laws of the universe by most of the population, as shown to be deeply detrimental to local culture and technology, with a great chance of extinction of one or more species should prolonged contact endure. Therefore, the United Nations of Sol and Centauri have decided to ban all human interaction within the designated space until further notice. That was it. Nothing more crossed the stars from their territory. A few signals were intercepted, but those were mostly gibberish. Things were back to normal after some time. There were wars and peace, trust and betrayal, crusades and treaties. But above all, 
there was one rule, the only rule. Don't ask the humans about the rules. End of story. Story number two, The Imperial Suicide, written by Erebus Yeet. The Admiral stood on the bridge of his new flagship. He loved the silence before the storm. The blue planet looked so peaceful. Only a week ago, hundreds of merchant ships would have come and left. Now, they all retreated, scared of the storm, scared of him. The previous governors had been weak. They let these primitives settle on rightfully imperial planets. No more. These Terrans must be put in their place. They would be under imperial rule, or they would simply not be. Secretly, he hoped the primitives wouldn't surrender. A quick war would probably get him a triumph in front of the Emperor himself. He would become a senator. These Terrans could be the key to eternal glory. The arrival of his head of intelligence ripped him out of his daydreaming. Ah, Trocon, my friend. I assume your arrival means that they have responded. Trocon was a lot smaller than the Admiral, who was a descendant from one of the first species conquered by the Empire. Slowly, they'd gained full citizenship, and now were in charge of most of the intellectual parts of the Imperial system. They have, sir. It doesn't seem like they will surrender. The Vice Admiral started smiling, but none were as happy as the Admiral himself. You bring good news, Troken. I might just hug you, you little rat. Uh, uh, thank you, sir. Play us the message, dear Troken. Uh, uh, yes, sir. One of the Terrans appeared on the big screens all around the bridge. It was a military time. She seemed incredibly tired, yet fierce, as she proclaimed her answer. Dear Great Emperor, product of incest, your message has been received. Pray to your gods, pray and weep when you find their corpses. Pray and weep as we desecrate your temples. Pray and weep as your places are covered in blood of your generals. Pray and weep as you are hanged from your throne. And uh, while you choke, you can find solace in the knowledge that your name will be remembered. Not the way you would like it, mind you. Your former subjects will spit on your grave. They will celebrate the day you perished. They will remember you as nothing but the fecker defeated by humanity. Despair as we show your people. Despair as they forge alliances. Despair as a new order becomes greater than your empire will ever be. Despair as everything you have accomplished is replaced by something better. We know your kind, despots. We have killed them all. We will take pleasure in killing another. May your wives strangle you in your sleep. Outpost 76. The bridge was silent in suspension. Everyone looked at the Admiral. He kept silent. His eyes still focused on the beautifully silent planet. Sir, Outpost 76. I excuse me, sir? Outpost 76. How many do they have, Drogon? We're not sure, sir. This is only an outpost. An outpost! There are millions of Terrans here. Sir, uh, th they might be bluffing, sir. They might miss this. They might this, that. I need facts. The Emperor will not accept reckless behavior. If this takes more resources than expected, his rage will descend on all of us. 
Tara, I think that they are blocked. I know. Don't repeat yourself, you moron. You said that they had less than nine bases. Do you have proof of that? Sir, their, their technology simply does not seem advanced enough to... Do you have proof? No, sir. We have found three colonized planets, but we suspect there are about five more. You suspect? Yes, sir. You have a day to get your affairs in order. Tomorrow, this time, you will kill yourself. Yes, sir. Get out! Long live the Emperor, sir. Get out! The Admiral stared at the blue planet with hate in his eyes, his breath short in anger. His claws had made deep scratches where his hand had lain on the glass. These humans were going to die, all of them. But without reliable intel, the next Imperial suicide could be his own. God fucking damn it! The lathe of execution it is, he whispered under his breath. Turn the speed around, goddammit. His voice bellowed through the bridge as his inferior sprung into action. And get me a new head of intelligence. As the fleet returned to its base, down on the blue planet, a general smiled. But she too knew there was only a delay. And when the first merchant ships once again departed the planet, so did her messengers... They were sent to all human governments and alien allies. They carried but three sentences. Set all plans in motion. The Emperor must die. The Empire must fall. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1543. Story number one. Yes, the floor is a weapon. Written by Thunder Summon. Humans were only recently starting to take their first steps into the cosmos and were still not interesting enough to draw the attention of the more powerful races. Sure, their technology was expanding greatly with each new race they encountered, but a full grasp of the more advanced races' tech was decades or maybe even centuries off. To this end, the humans still had a bulky and massive gravity systems attached to their ships. These systems though usually more massive than the ships they were installed on, helped generate artificial gravity and dampened the effects of inertia during maneuvering and acceleration or deacceleration. Their ships looked awkward, like a series of metal rods all fused together along the central axis, and the gravity system hung on the top, or front if your orientation prefers, like a giant oversized donut. The humans maintained the same basic design of their ships, even after acquiring a newer technology because, as they put it, why fix what isn't broken? The original design of the human ships was necessary to generate artificial gravity through centrifugal force. Though they no longer spun their ships, humanity liked their unique ships as a hallmark of human design. In the parts of space that humans are currently exploring, there is another race of beings, the Quilly. They are usually avoided by other races because of their aggressiveness and often parasitic nature. This race was described by humans as Pirate Octo-Jellyfish, for their similarity to several aquatic species found on Earth as well as their tactics. The Aquili descended from an aquatic species and thrived in low or zero gravity environments. This meant that their ships required small gravity systems and could focus more energy towards speed and movement. During one encounter, the humans, in their awkward tube ships, are trying their hardest to blast across the galaxy to the nearest star system when they are preyed upon by the Equally. 
the Aquili ship opted for the tried and true tactic of disabling the oversized gravity system with a few expertly placed laser pulses before latching their ship directly onto the hull of their prey. The Aquili know that this tactic works most often because most space-faring species rely heavily on gravity and quickly become disoriented in microgravity. Their aquatic and zero-gravity nature have given them a great advantages in boiling attacks. This time, though, this time was different. As soon as the Aquili disabled the gravity system, the humans went quiet. No more shots were fired. No more evasive maneuvers were taken. No broadcasts for mercy or for help were sent out. It was as if the humans gave up as soon as the gravity left. This was unusual, because humans had already shown a strong affinity for fighting back, and with bodies trained for such high gravity, they were quite a dangerous prey. Perhaps a key life support system was tied to the gravity system, and they had all been accidentally killed. Scans still showed life signs aboard the craft. No one was moving much, so perhaps they had decided to surrender, but had not broadcast this intent. No matter. The boarding procedure was about to begin. The Equally ship pulled alongside the human ship behind the massive disabled gravity drive and sent down their long prehensile docking arms to pull the two ships together. The Equally, all wearing specialized gear to help them survive the human atmosphere, waited until the breech tubes opened before pouring into the human ship in an overwhelming crowd of tendrils, tentacles, and tube-like arms. As soon as the whole boarding party was aboard the human ship, disaster struck. The huge groan and screech of metal, the human ship had fired all of its lateral vectoring thrusters at the same direction. The roar was deafening across both atmospheres of the latched ships, with all of the thrusters firing in a single direction. The human ship began to spin around its own central axis. The equally were thrown across each room they currently occupied and made a loud, wet-smacking sound as each of them were dropped unceremoniously to the floors of the human ship. The docking arms of the Equally ship used barbs to remain secure and could not be disengaged under such a strong gravitational force. The Equally ship was now stuck to the human ship until the humans decided that it was ready to let them go. The humans kept the thrusters firing and dove the spin faster and faster until two fueled human gravities was achieved. The human ships found this uncomfortable, of course, but the Aquili were now completely helpless and unable to activate or even aim their weapons. The human crew took this opportunity to sweep both ships and collect the entire Aquili crew as prisoners. The humans found it quite humorous that a load of old buckets kept in the cargo bay served as an adequate prisoner transport cells as a sweep of the ships was done. Just pick them up, remove the blaster ring and put them in a bucket. Put a lid on the bucket. No species in the recorded history of Aquili attacks had ever defeated and imprisoned an entire Aquili crew using gravity as their only weapon before. Perhaps... Humans won't need to advance their technology to elicit the interest of the greater galactic races, after all. End of story. Story number two. Who are the humans sending? Written by Random3x. Heli looked over his databad. His agents had infiltrated the human databases and obtained intelligence on the military officer the humans had sent to act as a diplomat. The human was named Adrian Gislan, the lieutenant general within the human military, a reasonably high rank. 
This was good. It meant that the humans weren't snubbing them. At least. Opening the file, they were surprised that it seemed rather large compared to the usual soldier files. It seems this human Adrian joined at a considerable youth. I was under the impression that humans place minimum age restrictions on military admission, Healy said, looking at his brother Vessa. That is the case, brother. It seems the human Adrian was eager to join the military, so he falsified his age, Vessa explained. And the humans allowed this, Heli asked, somewhat surprised. It seems at the time the humans were in a conflict with another system, so they chose to actively ignore the easily identifiable falsehood to gain another soldier, Besser explained. Ah, that makes sense, Heli nodded as he thumbed further into the document. Hmm... It seems that he was injured during his first deployment. A serious stomach wound that left him bedridden, Vessa said, looking up at Henny. Indeed, so it seems that we are welcoming a wounded veteran, Henny chuckled at the luck of not serving in further battles due to a minor injury. This is surprising. It seems he continued to serve in combat role after his injury was treated, Henny exclaimed in surprise. Reading further, they could see he quickly volunteered to go to the front lines again and was deployed to a newly started conflict between multiple planetary systems. Harry could feel his antennae begin to flatten in shock as he read further. Seven, he shouted in shock, reading the number of injuries the man had sustained in his conflict. It seems there is an addendum attached to his loss of limb, sir, Vesa pointed out. Opening the attachment, they were shocked by what they read. He, he bit them off, Vesa squealed in fear. The man had been injured and demanded his damaged appendages be amputated. The medical staff refused, so he put through the remaining flesh and removed the injured fingers themselves. Reading further, Vesa, it seems that he had to do a further amputation, Betty read aloud. Sir, there are records of further military engagements after this, Vesa pointed at his own datapad with a shaking hand. It seems uh, that he was present at the Battle of Soma System, Heli read. Even their race knew of this terrible engagement that had cost countless lives. It says here that he got shot through th- through the head. Heli and Vesa were nearing the end of the sanity now. This had to be a fake document. No human could survive with all these injuries and keep fighting. Maybe it was as they had surmised earlier. Then they were going to meet a wounded but highly decorated war veteran. I hope that he has his wits about him, Bessa muttered. Ah, thankfully, it seems that he was retired to a more advisory role following the resolution of the conflict, Henny said with a visible relief. Eight to various planetary governors and advisors fought off a... He, he fought off a pirate attack on his transport with nothing but a sidearm. Henny had quickly lost his composure and had managed to regain... Sir, uh... There is another attachment, Besser pointed out, his voice cracking. They read the attachment, which was a note of personally written by the human in question, roughly translated. It said that he rarely carried a sidearm, as he knew that he'd use it on his own men if they annoyed him enough. Brother, uh, the humans must be threatening us with this diplomat, Besser insisted. Calm yourself, brother. 
and the humans would not do such a thing. Regardless, we only are aware of these details due to obtaining this information through outside sources. Ellie replied, though he was reluctant to admit he held a similar suspicion to his brother. Look, brother, the documents become sensible again. Standard stuff for a decorated veteran, led a resistance group, and aided civilians. Commendable, no? Bessa seemed almost desperate now. It seems that he was sent back to act as an intermediary between his home system and another. Look, uh, oh boy, the great sons, no! He was shot down! Eddie cried in anguish. Please tell me he did not single-handedly lay waste to the enemy, brother. Bessa, Mia begged. No, brother, it says here that he was taken prisoner. Eddie replied with a sigh of relief. It seems he, along with a few other captives, made numerous escape attempts. Vesa read. May come and rule amongst human officers to try and cause trouble for the captives. Ellie nodded. But, brother, there, there is another attachment. Vesa pointed with a trembling finger. Worry not. It seems that it's just notes of his captors. It seems they found him quite amusing and admired his ability to insult them. Ellie beast aloud. Reading further, they were pleased to see the absurdity began to subside. Less war maniac and more gentleman officer, postings in many systems as a representative of his home system. But there was a note that caught their attention. Brother, please tell me I'm misreading this, Harry now begged. Sadly, he did insult the dread Lord Backstrader. This may have been before he rose to power, but to say that he was doing little and was just a fanatic must have taken some bravery, Vesa said, seemingly deflating. Upside, brother, it seems Red Lord Backstrader found it amusing and even laughed, Eddie replied. The pair began to worry how well they would hold their own against such an insane human, as if waiting for this very moment of contemplation, they heard a knock at the door with a voice announcing that he had arrived. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1544. Story number one. The Sword of Terror, written by Soul Untraveled. Humans. Messick Pratton, esteemed Galron Imperial Third Class War Marshal of the Galactic Powers, nearly died of laughing. <laughs> this is what you had us so worried about. <laughs> The green-spiked Garland intelligence officer, standing at attention on the other side of his field office, shuffled his iridescent neck spines in mortal embarrassment. The war marshal's yipping laughter snapped short. The bulky and rotund Aldegaron rose slowly from his pulp-padded throne with murder in his beady eyes and blood-red spines rattling in barely suppressed fury. Leave your report and get out of my sight! The intelligence officer bolted from the room, the data tablet that was the source of his distress still spinning from where he'd almost thrown it on the desk in his haste. Though it was improper to strike your own subordinate, Mesek was often tempted. Sorely tempted. The war marshal slapped the thick paw down, halting the tablet's spin, and with some shrugging of his shoulders, the Galron equivalent of an eye roll, he settled back onto his pulp-laden throne to read. Nearly everyone in the galaxy had heard of the human race by this point, and nearly everyone was still busy trying not to split their sides at the very thought of the laughingstock of the galaxy. Humanity is a quaint little species from a desolate corner of the galactic cloud, far beyond the edges of wild space on a cute, 
little death world called Earth. Ironic, Messick chortled, that the name translates directly to <laughs> dirt. How fitting for a race of low as these humans. When the galactic community made first contact with humanity, it was by complete accident. A simple clerical error by a Villemois navigation officer on board of a cargo transport shot them into a volatile and active nebula, dragging them into real space in what was largely believed to be an empty, desolate system. Desolate, though it may have been, the system wasn't empty. While the Vilmar transport was drifting in space, realigning for another hyperspace jump, their scanners had picked up a strange structure inside of the active nebula. It would turn out to be a deep space research station, crewed by humans. At first, when humanity was introduced to the galactic stage, they were thought of as quirky, considering how and where they were discovered. The amusement came about when several inquisitive mercantile species discovered that humanity hadn't even known what a warp drive was, let alone built anything resembling an actual navy. Their ship, being little more than aluminium and fiber museum pieces, pushing along by tanks of chemical fire. How these amusing little fishy-boned maggots had spread so far from their homeworld without faster-than-light travel was beyond even the most forgiving of xenocultural intellectuals. And when humanity, newly dubbed the Terran Alliance some forty years ago, announced that they were throwing their support behind the Confederation of Worlds in the war against the galactic powers, all parties involved treated this declaration much like an adult would when a child told them their intentions to contribute to the family's workload, with amusement and condescending encouragement. More Marshal Messick roused the data tablet, breaking past the idiot intelligence officer's opinion piece on the report. The Galron Moore Marshal was in charge of the conquest of the Tenville system, a truly unique solar system in the galaxy, in that the entire system existed in what equates to a thin but tangible dusty orange atmosphere nearly half a light year in diameter. The Tenville system was discovered early in the war after being dismissed before as an oddly dense nebula. When CW forces found several planets laden with abundant resources hidden within the system's cloud, the GP rushed to seize the system for themselves. Three galactic cycles of constant entrenchment war in this blasted system later, and this is where third-class War Marshal Messick Pratton found himself. On Tenville 7, the system's second-largest planet, embroiled in pushing the remaining Confederate forces off the planet once and for all. It wasn't but two days ago that the intelligence branch had intercepted a Confederate communique of the incoming wave of reinforcements. A shame those turned out to be human reinforcements. Well, a shame for the Confederation, at any rate, Messick mused. Flicking his paw to the analysis tab, Messick came to the breakdown of the Terran fleet's forces. Glancing at the designs and designations these humans had concocted proved useful to amuse him, at least. To the humans' credit, once their emissary had been laughed out of the Galactic Senate Chamber four decades prior, the Terran Alliance had pushed to build something that kind of resembled a space-faring navy. Their first designs were terrible, the mangled and ugly amalgamations of a children's finger painting. The first successful design was, again, ugly. A long, blocky thing that was little more than target practice for most other species' militaries. A battleship, they called it, a Leonidas-class battleship, the Spear of Terror. 
This battleship was laughably outgunned and outmatched by even the smallest patrol boat of the Galactic Power's weakest ally. The only thing mildly impressive was the quarter-click-long railgun laid through the hull. Other than the Leonidas had little else to brag about. Hells, when the blasted thing was first constructed 35 galactic cycles ago, it didn't even have shields yet. Messick flicked to check and, uh, yes, it seemed to be four Leonidas-class vessels amongst the inbound human reinforcements, along with several large Confederate troop transports. However... There were a number of other craft among the convoy that Messick didn't recognize at first glance. Another human creation, and relatively recent at that. He pulled up the analysis of the craft and found himself uh, a little bit impressed. The vessel was dwarfed by the Leonidas-class battleship, almost half the length and shaped like a squat cleaver with engines strapped to the back, with eight oblong launch bays running through the main hull of the vessel. Two odd-shaped batteries adorned the front of the blade of the ship, one on each side of the twin barrels arrayed close together. Smaller railguns, perhaps. The Terran Alliance remains the only race in the galaxy to even continue to utilize kinetic weaponry, it being considered horribly obsolete by the wider galaxy, akin to throwing rocks, like primitives or children. Again, another amusing museum piece. Still... The ship's name was strange, foreign to Mezik, not unexpected with humanity being so new and insignificant. Mezik searched the available archives for reference on the name. He found it. The new ship's name was a reference to an ancient tale of a sword being hung above the throne of a ruler suspended on a single string of a hair. More Marshal Mezik dismissed the rest of the tale. The details were useless anyway. He took one last look at the odd human vessel and scoffed, at its moniker, typed out below its name, Sword of Terror, indeed. The humans had arrived. The Confederate forces had rushed the Galactic Power's lines, and the Galron forces were routed, crushed in flames. More Marshal Mezik of the proud Galron Empire dragged himself into the pulverized remains of what was once his field office. The roof ripped off by the orbital strike from the Terran's new war vessel. He sat upon his crumbling throne, once padded in soft pelts and gazed up at the orange sky, and there, hanging in the lower atmosphere where the thick-bladed hulls of the Terran Alliance's newest support platforms, the Swords of Terror, he watched on as the main batteries flashed and another of his battalions vanished in a cloud of dust and the deafening crack-boom of the railgun fire. He let out a weak gurgling laugh as he saw those guns turn on him. There! Seated on his crumbling throne, watching as a sword came down, did his understanding meaning of the ship's class name. Far too late. The last transmission from Mezik Patron, esteemed Galron Imperial Third Class War Marshal of the Galactic Powers, commander of the invasion of the Tenval system, was a single word, static and wet. It was spoken from the lips of a man, broken by his own hubris. Democles. End of story. Story number two. Humans, they actually notice us. Written by Random3x. I shall begin my latest report with a clear statement to speak of how frightening my last assignment has become. We are obviously a race that has surrendered our physical forms in exchange for pure energy-based forms. 
We've also taken it upon ourselves to observe all sentient races and document their rise and fall. Only observation shall ever be allowed. No interaction shall ever be permitted to happen. This, as we are all aware, has been a relatively easy rule to follow. Due to our state, every race we have observed has never been able to perceive us. Usually, they were able to pierce the veil only when they reached Class 7 and gain access to technology sufficiently advanced that they were able to pierce the veil. I bring this up in my latest assignment, observing a species known as uh, humanity. It has brought me great concern. Now many observation methods have become noticeable by a race that is barely Class 3. I shall give an example. We were observing some fresh juveniles in a species from within the physical form of a tree. The juvenile looked at the tree that we were in with a quizzical look. This is not unusual as our affecting the EMS can cause some minor distortions to neurons. But they were looking directly at me. It was then the caregiver known as a teacher approached and looked at me with the same expression as the juvenile. Then she uttered the word that would have made my blood run ice cold and I still had it. Oh, look, a face. We were in a panic. We were observing from the concealed placement, and they could see our face. Aborting the observation, we had retreated. As we retreated, we rested on a piece of food made from ground-up plant matter and water. The human in this environment was lightly cooking the foodstuffs. When the device that he was using popped out, they also had a quizzical look. Oh, cool, Th that looks like a face. Their voice still haunts me as I write this. Retreating to the deployment zone, we spoke with other observers and found that they were often spotted as well. This was terrifying for us as to possess such a power was unrecorded in our entire history. It was then that Project Lead Hectolac announced our concerns were unfounded, that this is part of the reason why the turnover of staff was so high. The humans called the nature of this power Peridodia. We were informed that this was a power near all humans possessed, and they could perceive even the faint traces of our faces from our observation points. It is for this reason I am tendering my resignation from Point Sol 3 and request to be put anywhere else, anywhere, that they can't uh, notice me. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1545 Story number one, Terran Engineers, written by Average Cake Enjoyer. Scythine's face was a pale shade of yellow, her tentacles moving in a flurry as she yelled out commands to her crew over the sound of klaxons. Chatter and relayed commands filled the room, the bridge lighting up in a dim blue as the shields dissipated laser blasts. How long until we can jump into hyperspace? Five, five, five minutes until we can escape the planet's gravity well, ma'am. How about the Federation? There's still twenty minutes out. There wasn't a ship that close to us. She slammed a tentacle down onto the arm of her chair in frustration. She didn't think that she'd be ambushed by pirates in Federation space. True, the pirates were getting more audacious recently, but they'd only been striking convoys by the outer rim worlds. Not anywhere close to Federation core worlds. Glancing to a panel to her left, she saw that her shields were barely holding up to the sustained fire from the pirate vessel. A miracle in and of itself, 
as the freighter's shields weren't meant to handle sustained fire like this. It didn't even have any defensive armaments, as the small point defense railguns on the ship were only meant to safeguard the ship from stray asteroids. Scythene opened her mouth to shout another barrage of orders, but before she could, the wind was taken from her lungs as she lurched forward in her chair, the ship deaccelerating suddenly. The bridge was plunged into darkness before the emergency lights turned on. A loud robotic voice filled the bridge, cutting through the commotion. Morning! Reactor damage! Shield capacitors nominal! Recommend evacuation! She barely had time to absorb what just happened before the pirate sent a message over, a gravelly voice playing through the speakers. Federation ship, release your cargo or face extermination! Your engines and shields are disabled, and you cannot warp out. You have 15 minutes to respond. Her face blanched, and she heard the pirate's demands for her cargo. Her cargo being trillions of credits worth of antimatter. Letting the pirates get their hands on that would let them create antimatter munitions, something she knew that she couldn't let them do. Engineering, report, she called out through the intercom. Senior Engineer Shaknak reporting. The main reactor is non-functional and I think it's beyond repair. She let out a deep sigh, knowing what she had to do. Are you 100% sure? Affirmative. Keying the shipwide comm, she spoke. All crew to evacuation pods, sir. We're scuttling the ship. Wait! An unknown voice yelled through the comms, making Scythine freeze on the spot. Who is this? Junior Engineer Jonathan speaking. I think I have a solution, but, um, you won't like it. She moved her conversation to a private channel. Then, uh, speak. Snackhack looked on in perplexion as he watched the human jump around the reactor room, tapping furiously on his datapad. His brow furrowed in concentration. Human, this cannot work. Whatever you're doing, actually, uh, what are you doing? He looked up briefly before resuming what he was doing. Something incredibly stupid, which is... Jonathan let out an annoyed sigh, lowering his data pad. I'm going to reroute whatever we've got left in our shield capacitors into the reactor. Yield what? See? That's why I didn't tell you. He'll overload the dark reactor. It'll explode and kill us all. Are you crazy? Uh, just a little bit. Look, uh, it'll release a effect on amount of energy before it goes kablooey, uh... So we'll use that power to sublight these shields, and uh, right before it goes boom, we eject the reactor. Yes, yes, that's good and all, but we've got pirates on us, remember? And they'll follow us, so put two and two together. What are you talking about? Oh. The impressively bad idea finally dawned on Snackhack mid-sentence, completely catching him off guard. Uh-oh. Now you're getting it. They're going to follow us, and when they do, we're going to eject a reactor right about to melt down in front of them. They won't see it coming, because who'd inject their own reactor, right? And the captain agreed to this. I'm as surprised as you are. Now either leave me alone, or help me, he said, extending a datapad towards the large reptile. You know, there is a good chance the reactor explodes as soon as we route the power, right? Yep. Snackhack let out a quiet growl taking the data pad from the human's hands. You're completely unhinged, human. I hope you know that. I'll take that as a compliment. The bridge of the pirate ship was filled with the sounds of celebration, most of the crew hooting and hollering at the thought of their big break. 
Commander Zabal had no clue what was in the freighter, but after getting his crew to scan the ship, even he couldn't stop himself from letting out a small smile. Scan showed an obscene amount of antimatter, just what they needed to stick it to the Federation. But they couldn't just shoot the ship to force them to capitulate. Without the freighter's shields, they might accidentally breach the antimatter containment chamber, and that wouldn't be good for anybody. But it wasn't anything a few death threats couldn't fix, so we didn't really worry about it too much. Federation supply crews didn't have much of a backbone anyways. Nearly lapsing into a daydream of what he'd do after he took their cargo, he was snapped out of it when a crippled ship's engines lit up, their shields reactivating. The Federation ship already had a massive head start before he caught on to just what happened. Crap! Uh, chase that fucking ship now! Don't let them get away! He roared, the crew scattering to their positions. Their own engines lighting up in return. They gave the Federation ship chase, their cannons firing at full tilt as they caught up to the ship. Even when the ship's shield started flickering, clearly under immense strain, it didn't stop. Seeing that the Federation ship didn't want to stop, he scowled. If they don't want us to have their cargo, so be it. Destroy the ship. Uh, yes, uh, oh, Vec, what, what was that? L look, what? Following his crew member's pointed finger, it led him to the freighter that he was chasing. He squinted, unable to see his subordinate was pointing out, until he saw a pulsing hunk of metal ejected from the ship. What's that? He said forthing at the side. Their ship's falling apart. Well done. No, sir. They, 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 they just rejected the reactor. And it's melting down and and we're heading right towards it. The commander Zabel's face paled, his eyes going wide. Crap! A bright flash exploded from where the chasing ship used to be. The Nova-like explosion turning the pirate ship into nothing but atoms. Sathene couldn't believe her eyes, her tentacles limp in her side as she sat slack-jawed, letting out a shaky breath. She spoke into the intercom. P -p Pirates eliminated. Uh, we're safe. Silence washed over the bridge before the crew exploded into shouts of joy, the air around them positively charged with relief. A voice spoke over the intercom. Federation vessel! This is the warship Pike speaking. We're two minutes away, but it seems that you dealt with the pirates yourself. Doesn't look like you're in good shape, though. Uh, you need a tow. Uh, yes, please, she responded as she leaned back into her chair, relieved to have gotten over this nightmare of a situation. Maybe I should hire a few more humans once we get to port. Well, what's the worst that can happen? End of story. Story number two. Relentless. Written by Kennel. They are. The humans, I mean. They may look harmless, but once they turn those eyes on you, you know. Even they know. Most humans consider it impolite to stare after all. They have the eyes of hunters. And they always hunt. Though not always for food. They even hunt each other. They have a whole huge groups that hunt each other, groups founded well before first contact, and now they're out in the galaxy at large. Those groups turn those hunting eyes upon us. I first saw one of these humans on Epsilon Station. They had just finished with a hunt, their poor victim prostrated and quietly weeping at the human's feet. I tried to ignore the scene, 
but there is no ignoring the gaze of those hunters' eyes. Of course I fled. Any sane sofant would. Of course, I should have known that it wouldn't end there. I tried hiding in civilization, on the Fenar homeworld. A bit humid for my taste, but Fenar food and company are difficult to beat. It was barely a week before I saw a human in that uniform again. Those eyes turned on me, and I froze. But they somehow knew. I was saved then by some other sofant who seemed to have business with the hunter, and I took my chance to escape. I knew that it would be ultimately futile, but I refused to simply sit and accept my fate. Perhaps they'd lose me in the fringe, on some new colony that doesn't even have a space elevator yet. Sirius D technically didn't even have a name, though most of the colonists just called it the place nowhere. I had just exited the immigration office to look for my new home, when I stumbled into a hunter. Here, of all places, he bared his teeth at me in a gesture that only a hunter could possibly think was friendly, and even helped me pull me upright. And then he asked if I knew where his quarry was, equally relieved and terrified. I said no, and made my exit. I don't know who this Jesus is, but what kind of guile and stealth must he be that even the humans have trouble finding him? End of story. The algorithm reckons you should be watching this video next, and I recommend that you should be always watching my video. So, click, click, click. With energy! And yes, clicking that does help the channel. Thank you very much. I just quickly want to thank the Tier 5 patrons and channel members. Alithia Barkey, Cam Maxwell, Casper Arnholtz, Albard and Gaster, Arcadian, Lord Azrakal, and Joachim Bakker. The three-year anniversary TFOS. The sole method of negotiation. Humanity, what the feck. Ever since, there have been big ships with valuable things in them. There have been opportunistic psychopaths trying to take it. In an age of sail, when our people plied the archipelago trade routes of our homeworld, piracy was so rife that it was a way of life for many tribes and nations. In the age of space, the vast distances and expenses involved in space travel made inter-system trade a peaceful affair. The ships were too big to loot and too slow to flee the Navy in. Of course, piracy did occur, but the Navy could track them and the hyperlane stations could block their escape. Overall, it was peaceful. My family had been traders ever since one cave dweller had a few more rocks than the other one. As sure as the sky is blue, my family has been on the decks of trade ships. As a consequence, my family tree has more than a few dead branches, Storms, war, and pirates are the natural predators of traders, but it is a risk we all accepted to be where we belong. My specialty is as translator and communications officer for ships traveling between racial borders. Virtual intelligence does a lot with the heavy lifting, but language is something no perfect system can hope to understand fully. And, depending on the temperament of the race, one bad translation can be one too many. At the moment, we were hauling cargo to the call systems and had exited hyperspace in the sole shortcut. Hyperlanes aren't like highways. You can't build them between systems and expect them to work. I don't know the science, and the odds are that you don't either. So let's move forward. 
The basics, everyone knows, are that hyperdrives let you travel on hyperlanes, and hyperlanes are naturally occurring areas of space, allowing FTL travel along them. The borderline impossible to create, making the system that do have hyperlanes incredibly powerful. It was the luck of the draw for many systems on whether they or not they had a hyperlane. Until about 50 years ago, when some mad bastards pulled it off and got stinking rich in the process. This artificial hyperlane cut months or even years of some of the journeys to the call systems and made trade a hell of a lot more profitable. The only issue was that the locals of the system used for the sole shortcut weren't in a position to negotiate anything and got shafted pretty hard in the deal. They were primitive, though, so no one cared. There was enough of the tech difference between us and the natives that the trader leagues, i.e., the most powerful group in the galaxy, and my then employer, were able to get exclusive and non-expiring rights to the trade routes, the hyperlanes, and more or less whatever they wanted. The planet wasn't even negotiating as one party, so the trader leagues played the petty nations against each other. All this is to say the natives got bent over a barrel and weren't coming off of it anytime soon. We would turn weeks into the soul and the last hour of my shift when we were pinged. Someone had scanned us with infrared. I rubbed my eyes and checked the scanner. There were no military ships and the nearest mega freighter was only just entering the soul shortcut. Who'd want to ping us? A local craft, perhaps. But what would a native want with one of our ships? Four days into our journey, we were pinged again. This time, we didn't need to look for the ship tag. Our short-range scanner picked up the unidentified group of craft approaching our freighter. We weren't a military craft, so our scanners could only pick up a mass and trajectory. The ships were small and fast, only 70 tons at most. I hailed the ships and notified the captain of the situation. We were ten lanes away from the nearest space-capable planet. Nonetheless, the situation didn't sit well with me, and my gut told me something was off. Bear in mind, this was a gut honed by generations of mariners and traders who survived. This gut wasn't full of shit. Technically, it was, but uh, you get the idea. Three hours later, the captain and I watched the short-range scanner while we were on the cystnet with head offers to figure out who the hell was on our tail. Three ships didn't identify themselves, and though were now only a few kilometers away. In space terms, we were holding hands. Docking cameras were activated, and we got our first look at the mystery craft. Their silhouette didn't match anything in our database, and as we gained visual contact, were there easy to figure out why. The three craft approaching us were flying assemblies of scrap and DIY spacecraft. I shared a worried glance at the captain, who stood with a mug of Stimcane brew and focused on the scanner. He was ex-Navy, as far as anyone knew. Rumor on the ship said that he'd served during the Separatist Wars, but he never talked about it. All I knew was he had his share of burned feathers and he ran a tight ship. When he gave the order for all hands on deck, I nodded and switched the alert. I don't know what we thought we were going to achieve, the captain cracked open the armory and handed out everything we had. The armory was only ever supposed to be used in case of mutiny or parasite infestation. He handed me a pistol and told me to hold the bridge. When I asked him what was happening, he looked me in the eye and said the most cursed word. Pirates. It was out of line and naive of me, too, but uh, 
I spoke back to him. I told him he was impossible. The logistics of the lack of return. All our cargo was secured and shipped, and it would take them days to haul enough to make their trip worthwhile. Even if they stole the ship, the Navy could catch them easily. Three successive explosions told me how wrong I was. Ten hours later, that's what the first phase of the pirate takeover is like. The crew fled to the bridge and fortified it while our security droids tried to stop the pirates. One by one, they fell to primitive automatic slug throwers. There must have been fifty of them, all clad in makeshift body armor and vacuum suits. We huddled in the bridge with our weapons trained on the door and waited for the inevitable. They'd kill us or take us as slaves and steal what they could of the ship. We either weren't coming out of this alive or wishing that that had been the case. We could see them on the security monitors setting up their own fortifications outside the bridge while a small cruise took torches to the doors. Then we heard a voice we understood. His accent was rough and pronunciation lacking in areas, but we understood him. Those of you in the bridge, we have taken over this ship. As you can see, we are capable of and willing to use force to get what we want. If you surrender now and follow our instructions, you will live to see this through. If any of you fight, you will all die. Either way, we all get what we came for. The choice is yours. A sharp crackle of static ended the message. Our beaks went dry and our feathers fluffed at the implication of the message. There was no doubt in his voice. He wasn't threatening us. He was telling us. Old Beaks pointed to the captain, who already had his gun down. He pulled the capacitor out of his scattergun and tossed it to the door. Ukree, head of engineering, called him a coward and pointed his pistol at him. We all had our guns pointed at each other now. Was it fear or stress? I have an obligation, the captain said sternly. To the company, to you, to your families. He stepped towards Ukree without pause. Yukri was having none of it, though. The barrel of his pistol shook uneasily. Bullcrap, he shouted. They're killers. We can't let them win. This isn't about winning anymore, the captain replied, still steadily walking towards Yukri. This is about survival. He was five paces away. You saw what they're capable of, he shouted. The captain was only a few paces away now. You can't seriously believe that they'll let us live. I don't have the luxury of belief. I have the facts. If we fight, we die. If we don't fight, we might live. We're outnumbered and outgunned. I'm making the best decision possible. He stood before Yukri, the barrel inches from his chest. Don't point that thing at anything you aren't willing to kill, he said, beak nearly touching Yukri's. The pistol fell to the ground, and the captain placed a claw in Yukri's shoulder. Defenders don't win sieges. We comply and wait for the Navy to get you. That was enough for the rest of the crew, who laid down their weapons and put their arms into the air. The captain nodded to me, and I sat at my station and activated the ship's intercom. The captain leaned over my shoulder and told the pirates that we surrendered on the condition that the crew not be harmed. The doors, now half-molten from the pirates' cutters, opened. Hot strands of molten metal dripped from them as the pirates entered the bridge with their weapons at the ready. They were brutally primitive things, both the pirates and the weapons. Wooden stocks and stamped metal receivers, handled by bulky humans in every shade of pale, too as dark as the void outside. The last to enter were two humans, 
One in salvage power exosuit armor, and the other in a textile suit with a flat jacket over top. The crew were taken out of the bridge and kept in the rec room along with a large portion of the pirates. The captain, myself, and Yukri were kept on the bridge for reasons we weren't sure of. The suit was the one who'd spoken to us earlier and was now in the syscom of the head office. None of this made sense to me. Where was their hauling ship? Why weren't they looting the ship before the Navy arrived? The following is a transcript of the first call between the Helios Trader League office and Kratz's crew. Helios Trader League, Syscom support, vessel 0559B. You are not scheduled for the call in today. What is your situation? This is the Kratz crew. We have taken over the ship. I'm, I'm sorry, what? I am speaking on behalf of Commander Kratz of the Kratz crew. We have the crew of this ship hostage, and we will not release them until our demands are met. Um, please stand by. Hold music. Are you fucking kidding me? Chuckles. Ten minutes of hold time, pirates speak amongst themselves regarding negotiating strategy. This is Ianet Randis, Helios Trader League president. Am I speaking to the commander, Kratz? You can call me Khan, chuckling in the background. I am speaking on behalf of Commander Kratz as his translator. We don't negotiate with pirates. I think you'll find that you do. And why would that be? Your manifest indicates that you have an excess of 200 billion in consumer electronics and industrial machinery on this ship. Go ahead and take some. The Navy has been notified. I'm sure that they need a target practice. We're not taking it. Why? Because at this moment, we are rigging the ship's reactor with explosives. I'm sure you'll agree that radioactive consumer goods are severely depreciated. But do you want 20 billion credits and Navy shuttle transport back to Sol 3? You're crazy and you're running out of time. Call disconnected. I'd expected that the pirates having failed negotiations would have cut their losses and take as much as they could. But instead, they brought their own crew aboard and made a hard burn towards Sol 3's orbit. They, uh, they couldn't possibly be planning to steal the entire ship and its cargo, could they? The Navy took two and a half soul-cleaving months to get to the Sol system, by which time we were past Sol 3's moon and sitting in high orbit. Even more pirates were brought on now, but they weren't armed with weapons. They were bringing food and drugs. I was told by Commander Kratz in his thick, half-legible accent to hail the Navy. The translator, who went by Khan, handed me a script and gave me a firm smack on the back. Once we had a secure line, I cleared my throat to read from the script. This is, uh, this is the comms officer, Nibia Yo. I'm speaking from vessel 0559B. We are being treated well, and any attempt to board or approach the ship will change that. There are 40 crew on this ship, but this can change if you attempt to interfere with the ransom exchange. The Navy kept their distance after that. For a week, the crew camped in the rec room while the pirates took shifts guarding us. The fear and adrenaline faded and was replaced with anxious boredom. The pirates had their own way of passing the time by gathering in a circle and taking turns with an inhaler. A thick blue smoke puffed out of their lips and lingered in the air long after they exhaled. After inhaling, the pirates would talk loudly and laugh at seemingly nothing. I'd only the faintest clue what they were saying. Their languages were, well, alien. I could understand literal concepts and instructions, 
but not by chance. Something of a personal failing for a translator. Six months in was the turning point. The captain and I spent much of our time on the bridge, being officers made us both valuable and a liability to the pirates. The most likely to cause trouble and the most expensive to replace if negotiations went downstream. Something that seemed likelier as the weeks ticked on. I was about to ask the captain if we were getting paid for this time as hostages when Yukri slipped into the bridge. This was the first time in a month that I'd seen Yukri. As chief engineer, he had to have been where I was sitting, but as, and I quote, the raptor-blooded badass of the crew, the pirates kept him isolated after he tried to start trouble. So seeing him was something draped under his wing without a pirate escort made my flight feathers rise. Captain saw him and bowed his beak. Please tell me that's not what I think it is, he said in an already defeated tone. The two guards on the bridge were slumped in their seats with an inhaler hanging loosely from their fingers. They'd been out cold for twenty minutes, but we didn't dare do anything. It appeared that Yukri had. He unfurled his wing and revealed one of the pirate's automatic weapons in his claws. He winked at us. We were in so much crap. How in the hell did you get that? hissed the captain, not wanting to wake the pirates. Stole it, Yukri said. And thanks for the help, by the way. While you two were playing with your eggs, I was doing my part to keep us alive. The captain grabbed Yukri by the scruff of his neck. By stealing a goddamn weapons! He seized. I'd hunkered down in my chair and tried not to exist. I wanted no part in the potential lethal clusterfuck that was about to unfold. Yukri pushed the captain away, jostling our cards and rattling the cups. The two pirates shifted in their seats but remained asleep. They're just biding their time. The moment it becomes convenient to them, they're gonna kill us. Then we best not make it convenient, the captain said rhetorically. Like, for example, stealing their goddamned guns. You sneered at the captain. I'm starting to think that the medals you earned are tin, he snapped back. I imagine he wanted to say more, but then he suddenly stopped talking. I'd never seen someone go down faster in my life. The captain's wing was a blur, and Yukri made a glass sound while he fell to the deck. While Yukri was still choking and wheezing from a half-collapsed windpipe, the captain put a foot on his rifle and slid it under the chair of the guard, still mercifully asleep. As I built up the courage to ask the knife-hand happy captain why he'd throat-punched Yukri, through pirates entered the bridge, and I could tell that they were not happy. For one, the tone was aggressive and possibly panicked. Secondly... They had their guns aimed at us, and thirdly, because one of them had one of our crew at gunpoint. Where's the gun? shouted the first pirate, the one with the hostage. The commotion was enough to wake up the guards from their narcotic-induced nap. They looked around and realized that they'd passed out and trained their guns on us as well. The captain and I raised our arms while Yukri just kind of struggled on the floor. The three pirates put two and two together and figured out that our guards were less useful than scarecrows. Choice words were exchanged, and Kratz was summoned to the bridge. I winced. Kratz, getting involved, made the situation much more lethal. While I waited for Kratz to inevitably make our lives hell, I looked out at Earth. Grey ocean separated by ashen land, while pale yellow clouds swirled. What an awful land, I thought. The fitting cradle for the brutes that kept us hostage. Kratz stormed into the bridge with a gun ready and Khan at his side. 
The captain, Yukri, and myself were stood against the wall while our guards were disarmed and dismissed. More choice words were exchanged. Between the threats and curses, I learned that they were being dismissed, sent home with half pay. Considering the scale of their mistake, I'd expect the least one of them leaving via an airlock. Khan leaned in close, forcing me to lower my beak. We're all humans so tall. Who took the weapon? he asked. Credit where credit was due, his proficiency with our language was getting better. I chanced to look at the captain, who just looked back at me. Yukri stared at me with surprisingly pitiful eyes. Guard, the guard walked in with it, chuckling to himself. I think he was smoking blue, I lied. Khan translated back to Kratz, who laughed and aimed a pistol at me. Tell him if he lies again, I will see if he tastes like chicken. Khan opened his mouth, but I cleared my throat. Chicken, I said, nodding. Khan smiled and resumed. Who took the weapon? I didn't know what to do. He could tell when I was lying. I didn't want anyone to get into trouble, let alone killed. Yukri was a dumbass and a blowhard, but he had family. Last he'd said his girlfriend had another clutch on the way. I did it, said the captain. Yukri and I shared a shocked expressions and watched the captain walk forward, and I planned to take advantage of the unconscious guards to arm myself and take back the ship. I've clearly been defeated. He turned towards Kratz and looked expectantly at Khan. Translate, he ordered. That was exactly what Khan did. Kratz looked at the captain, gave a respectful nod, and ordered the captain and I to stand against the wall. Yukri was motioned to stand next to Kratz. My heart pounded in my chest. This was it. I should have done it. I should have pointed a feather at Yukri when I had the chance. Now I was going to die to save a stupid cloaker. Get the company on videocom, ordered Kratz as he checked the hand cannon's ammo. Yukri looked petrified as both the captain and I glared at him. It should be mentioned that videocoms are expensive and that the pirates were calling collect. When Yanat Rendis answered, he was met by the footage of Commander Kratz with the pistol in hand. The captain and I against the wall and Yukri standing next to Kratz trying not to make eye contact with anyone. We are getting impatient said Khan in his methodically calm voice. Kratz shouted in his native tongue and pointed the pistol at us. Janet, even backed into a corner, was a traitor, and a damn fine one at that. You can't be serious, he screamed while two handlers tried to keep him in his chair. You haven't done anything. Let's talk about this like honest traders. This is a reminder of what happens when you waste our time, continued Khan. Kratz's grin had pointed his gun at us. I closed my eyes. I couldn't see him, but I assumed the captain intended to stare Kratz down until the end. But there was no shot, no sudden nothing. I cracked open my eyes in time to see Kratz smash the gripped pistol in Yukri's skull. The poor guy let out an ear-splitting scream and fell to the ground, apologizing and begging for his life. I slumped against the wall speechless and limp. The captain didn't say anything, but his claw was balled up hard enough for his palm to dribble blood. Kratz fired a shot from his hand cannon that he was so fond of, waving in our faces. We all winced, by all but the captain, because he was stone-faced, cold-blooded professional. I peeked between my feathers. Yukri was huddled up in a puddle of his own filth, whimpering. Mr. Randis, do we have an agreement? asked Khan. I'd met Randis once when I was fresh-faced in the company, 
talked down to everyone he ever met, and was so up his own cloaca he couldn't see the sun. But to see him now, there he was disheveled, mess surrounded by an army of equally panicked lawyers and union reps. Yes! he screamed. His lawyers tried to shut him up, but he pushed them away, out of the way. Twelve billion and the Navy shuttles to Sol 3. Khan cracked a grin. Have it delivered on three transports. We'll open the shuttle bay and count the money there. Once we have the money, we'll be taking one crewman per shuttle down to Earth. Several of our crew are armed with detonators. If we sense a trap, or you cross us, we'll detonate the reactor. If the credits are not 12 billion exactly, we'll blow the reactor. If you so much as sneeze without notifying us, we'll blow the reactor. When the shuttles are out of orbit, we'll provide a disarm code. The crew will be sent back on the shuttle so long as everything is above board. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. The biggest trader league bending over and complying with a dirty band of pirates. There were ten navy frigates orbiting the ship, and yet these pirates held all the cards. My contemplation was interrupted when Khan grabbed me by the arm and told me that I was going to be one of the lucky crew to visit Earth. Lucky, fecking me. It took a week for the money to be transferred by Syscom to the Navy frigates and those frigates to transport it in three Navy boarding craft, just as expected. All the pirates were in vacuum gear, except us three hostages. Yukri was limping next to Krutz, who, in full vacuum gear, was actually less terrifying. The credits were counted by a batch verifier, examined the encrypted credits code to verify that the entire 12 billion batch was authentic currency. Satisfied, they stowed the credits in three drives and handed them off to Khan, Kratz, and their first mate. The Navy crew waited in their transport while this all happened. I'd expected a full assault squad to storm out of the transports and wipe out the pirates in one fell swoop. Make them know that the Traders League don't negotiate. But instead, the pirates boarded with us hostages in tow and we descended down to Earth. Earth was tragic. We breached the cloud layer and were met by choking brown smog and bright cities sitting in the middle of thick, greasy clouds. Khan sighed and pulled a respirator out of his pocket. He looked to me and motioned to the window. This is what you did to us, he said, with that same steady tone of his. I don't know why I snapped back at him. Maybe being so close to freedom gave me a spine. You did this to yourself. That grin, that self-satisfied grin. You use our space, mine our asteroids, and pay nothing. We're collecting what's owed. Very noble, beating an unarmed man near to death, I snapped back. You're criminals, nothing more. You'll face justice. Not all of us, replied Khan. The transport landed, and the doors swung open. The pirates donned their respirators and left the transports with their loot. I coughed and wheezed until the doors slammed, and we were back on our way. True to their word, when we were back in orbit, the ship was in one piece, and the crew was waiting for us in the shuttle bay. The bombs around the reactor were disarmed, and the ship was refueled. For the rest of the trip, we were under Navy escort. The atmosphere on the bridge was somber. No one had died, but for half a year we'd been at their mercy. What made it worse was that they'd won. I'd still wonder what I would have preferred. Was it better to live a coward or die pointlessly with pride? The Navy could have killed the pirates. They would have sent a message at least. But instead, I got to return home. 
a coward. News of the hijacking spread further than I'd imagined. We docked at our original destination. A humble orbital platform above an unremarkable world had turned into a stage worthy of the galaxy. And we were at the center of it. The first ship to successfully be captured by pirates since the early age of space travel had docked, and everyone wanted to see the crew who had endured it. I didn't have family of my own, so the cameras weren't on me. Yukri's girlfriend, now fiancé apparently, reached the security line and wrapped her hips around him and love-packed him while the whole galaxy watched. A moment that every dramatic retelling of our ordeal would replicate with excruciating detail. I don't think she or the chicks knew how close to death he'd been. As for the captain, he stayed out of the limelight while the rest of us enjoyed our fifteen minutes of fame. The last time I saw him was a few days after we'd talked. Journalists from a dozen systems wanted interviews, but he'd refused all. Story number two. We Stay Out of That Field, written by Ack1308. Ever since Celia was a little girl, she had never been allowed to venture west of the farmhouse. There was a shallow valley there, with the stream they used for water trickling through it and past the farmhouse. But her father had fenced in a large section of the shallow slope on the far side of the valley, right where the most fertile grazing would be, and he never allowed cattle inside. Celia couldn't figure it out, because the grass within the fence grew lush and thick, and she knew the cattle would become fat and fetch a good price at the market. But her parents simply told her that she was to stay away from the stream. If she went to the stream, she was to not cross it. If she crossed it, she was to not go near the fenced field. And if she went near the field, she was to never, ever climb through the fence. As she was a good little girl, mostly, she never crossed the stream, though she waded in it from time to time, catching frogs and totally failing to catch the little silver fish that flickered around her legs and feet. And while she looked across the stream at the slope and the fenced field and wondered about it, she never went there. It made no sense to her, but her father had laid down the law, and she did as she was told. And so she grew and learned how to run the farm, and even to take a few cows into the market by herself from time to time. But never did her father allow the cattle to graze in that field. Once in a long while, the fence needed repairing, and even that task was performed from outside the field. When she turned sixteen, she went to her father. I have a question. He turned to face her, from where he was carving a new handle for the farmhouse door. The old one was beginning to fall apart. Is it about boys and where babies come from? She felt her cheeks heat and shook her head quickly. Mama told me about that last year. He nodded slowly and carved away another sliver of dark wood. Is it about your letters and numbers? Again, she shook her head. Some small part of her wondered if he were deliberately baiting her. No, I've learned my letters and know how to read most words. I know how to add numbers and subtract them. Mama is teaching me how to make them multiply and divide. It's not easy, but that is not the question I wish to ask you. Good he grunted. I could never learn those things. Adding and subtracting were always enough for me. She waited, while he carved at the wood, until she finally realized that he was not going to say any more. Father, my question... Yes? 
He put down the knife, now, and faced her. Is it about the field across the stream? The one that we do not go into? No, it, it, it is. Belatedly, she realized he wasn't changing the subject in a while. Yes, sir. That's it, father. Why don't we go into there? Why do the cattle not graze there? The grass is good as any other part of the valley, or even better. He put the door handle aside and stood up, brushing shavings from his lap. Carefully, he folded the knife away and put it in his pocket. Come with me, and I'll show you our family secret. We have a family secret? She hadn't known about this, but that was what secret meant, she figured. We do. You could not be told when you were younger. His voice and gaze were unapologetic. Children will tell secrets to the best friends, and best friends can stop being friends overnight. We had to know that you would not tell the secret to anybody. They walked away from the farmhouse towards where the cattle were grazing. We need one, he told her. Just one. The poorest of the herd. But why? she asked. It'll show the answer to your question, he said. Drive it towards that field. I will have the gate open when it gets there. So she did as she was told. The cattle had learned from Carford that humans were bigger and stronger, and they were stupid beasts, and I continued to believe that. The one that she picked was stupider than most, and a little scrawny. It was not hard for her to shivy it back towards where her father had opened the gate wide, the tall, sick grass inside waving invitingly in the breeze. The young steer that she had picked out trotted eagerly towards the open gate and passed into the open field. Her father stopped her before she could follow it, then instead closed the gate. Watch, he said quietly. So she watched it. It went a distance into the field, then stopped and began to crop at the thick grass. This was the best fodder it had ever encountered, she could tell. But then it began to move uneasily, taking one step, then another. It stopped again, somehow having wrapped grass around its legs and trapped itself. What is it doing? said he asked. How stupid is it to do that? It lowed mournfully, whipping its head around. Celia noted that it wasn't feeding anymore. Instead, it was trying to move its legs and feigning. Then she noticed something else, and the skin all the way down her spine crawled up in terror. The breeze had died. But the grass was still moving. It wasn't the steer, her father said softly. Frozen to the spot, she saw more and more grass stems wrap around the doomed steer's legs. Any one stem, she imagined, would be weak and easily broken. But a hundred or two hundred, they would bind the poor beasts like the strongest of ropes. And then other stems showed themselves, thicker, still looking normal, but with sharp dart-like tips. Each clump of grass had two or three, and each one that could reach stabbed itself into the steer, driving deeply. She saw the stems darken, and she had a sudden epiphany. More chills chased themselves down her spine. The, the, they're drinking its blood? Yes, he said, and that is why you must not go into the field unless there is no other recourse. He moved closer and reached for the fence, barely brushing his hand across the top of the grass stems. Your mother and I believe that each clump is a separate creature, part of a plant or an animal. They run roots into each other's underground, which is where they also store the blood they drain from creatures that venture in here. Come, 
Let them sense you. Greatly daring, she brushed her hand across the grass tips that she had. You believe that they remember us as friends? He shrugged. We put up the fence and we drive the beasts. We will never sell that market into there. They suck the blood and they use the steers as fertilizer and do not come past the fence. It may be that they do not think as we do, but I prefer to think that we have an agreement. Oh. She brushed her hand across the grass stems again and watched as the scrawny steer sank to its knees, then fell over sideways. Is it dead? If it is not, then it will be soon. Let us get back. The door handle needs finishing. As they waded across the stream, Cydia glanced back towards the field, where the grass was even now feasting on the sacrificed steer. She had her answers, and too late she discovered that she didn't want them. She took to examining every new growth in case it was the grass that grew in the field. Only when she needed did she cross the stream, and she never went near the field if she could help it. As soon as she found a man to wed, she decided that she would leave this place with its demon grass field and never speak of it again. Her terror of the grass even permeated her sleep. She would have nightmares where she couldn't move, then think that she'd woken to find herself fastened down in the long strands of grass while others moved to puncture her skin and drain her blood. From those, she would abruptly wake, sitting upright and frantically searching for even the tiniest blade of grass anywhere near her. One more trip to the market, she decided. Then she would return home, take her meager belongings, along with whatever money her parents decided they could spare, and leave the farm forever. Even a life as an itinerant storyteller or dancer was better than living across the stream from an innocent-looking field that could pull down a cow or a horse in moments before they even realized that something was wrong. She walked to the market with the cattle and sold them for a better price than normal. The talk of the marketplace was that bandits had been attacking farms, so few farmers were able to bring the cattle in, and thus the price had gone up. Celia wasn't much worried about the reasons. Even a little of the money from the one sale would take her a long way. Everyone talked about the bandits, but not one person in ten had ever seen one, so she began to trek back towards the farm already planning what she would leave and what she would take. When she came over the rise and saw the smoke rising from the burning thatch of the farmhouse, she could not believe her eyes. Forgetting her tired legs and sore feet, she broke into a run, hoping that not too much was damaged, and that both her father and mother had gotten out. It took her far too long to wonder why her father was not even now trying to pull it out. That was when she saw the riders, just now urging their horses away from the farmhouse with bulging sacks tied to their saddles. Part of her mind told her that they should look evil, animalistic, demonic. But they merely looked normal, sporting a few more scars than most, but none would draw stairs in the marketplace. As she stood irresolute, one of the riders saw her and pointed. A shouted command echoed across the valley, in the next moment, all four horsemen were spurring their mounts towards her. Over her shoulder was a sack with potatoes and turnips in it, neither of which her mother had ever had much luck growing. She dropped that and ran, 
Instinct rather than reason guided her feet, and she had splashed across the stream and was sprinting towards the field before her conscious mind took over. Behind her, she heard the horses fording the stream, then the heavy hoofbeats eating up the distance between them and her. They were coming ever closer, and she got to the gate and opened it, then dashed inside into the field where she had been told over and over to never go. Her father's words came back to her. Unless there is no other recourse. The tall grass stands reaching up past her waist whooped against her legs as she ran deeper into the field. She held out her hands, letting the tips of the strands brush her palms. Know me. Know me. All four riders thundered their horses into the field. In an instant, they had surrounded her, riding in circles in the field, trapping her between them. She kept her hands brushing across the tips of the strands as she looked up at them, trying to stare them in the eye and keep her attention from what the grass was doing. Stupid girl! One of the riders spat. You don't even know how to hide. You should have gone into the forest. Did you think that we couldn't cross a stream? Please, she said, looking up at him. Please, don't hurt me. Her hands brushing the grass. He laughed scornfully, savoring her fear. <laughs> Your parents died fast, girl. You won't. So they are dead. The last of her qualms about what she was doing vanished altogether. She moved from foot to foot, as though seeking an escape, ensuring that all four riders kept their eyes on her and not on what the grass was doing. The rider who had spoken turned his horse towards her, clearly seeking to capture her, perhaps sling her across his saddle as a trophy. But his horse's legs had already been snared, and the beast stumbled and fell. Syria danced her out of the way, and then darted between the two of the other riders. They shouted and tried to pursue, but then their mounts whinnied in fear as they too found that their legs were entangled. Two more went down, kicking and squealing in terror. The last rider spurred after her, but... She ducked aside. She found that the grass was banding out of her way and not impeding her motion at all, while his horse found it hard going. Enough of this! He leapt from the saddle and seized her in one smooth movement, sunlight glinting off the long knife that he pulled from his belt. You'll do as I say, or death will be long and ugly. You're already dead. She could see the strands of grass winding around his legs. You... Just don't know it. The certainty in her tone gave him pause for half a moment. Then he sneered. <laughs> You're alone, girl, without friends or weapons. A mouse can talk as loud as it pleases, but at the end of the day, it's still a mouse. She looked him in the eye. A mouse may hide under the paw of a lion. Then she shoved him as hard as she could. In the normal run of events, her attempt would have come to nothing. One step back would have saved him, but he could not move his feet. As sure as though they were mired in quicksand, a startled expression came over his face and he fell, flailing. The grass closed over him like a funeral shroud. Witch! What have you done? One of the other riders had managed to claw himself to his feet, swinging the long blade around, the grass stem spotting before his determined assault. What is this devilry? She wanted to flee from him, but if he made it to the fence and escaped the field, she would never be safe. So, 
she moved towards him. As before the grass parted before her, even as it hampered him, she could see the stem stabbing at his legs to be turned away by thick, thigh-length boots that he wore. He swung the blade at her, more to keep her away than to actually strike her, but she ducked aside anyway, moving around behind him. She tried to figure out how to bring him down. He was keeping his legs relatively clear, and if he made it another few strides, he would be free and clear. A simple shove would not do the trick this time. And then something solid nudged at her fingers. She looked down and saw the long knife the other man had threatened her with, supported by strands of grass offering itself to her. Yes, she whispered, taking the knife. The blade was good steel and looked wickedly sharp. Moving close in behind him before she could think better to move, she slashed it across the back of his knee. The keen blade sliced through the leather, his skin and the tendons all at the same time. Blood spurted and he screamed in pain as he went down onto that knee, his leg giving way beneath him. Witch! he screamed again putting his sword to hand onto the ground for one fatal moment to hold himself off the ground. The grass stems crossed over his arm, and she seized the opportunity to leap onto his back. She'd cut the throats of calves and lambs before now, so it was almost second nature to pull his head back and bring the blade across, angling inward one way and then the other. She got the big arteries and then ran down each side of the neck. Bright blood splashed onto the grass, and vanished as though it had never been. Panting and shaking, she climbed to her feet and wiped the blood off the knife onto the nearest clump of grass. She then walked out of the field and closed the gate behind her. The horses were no longer thrashing, or, uh, she thought, even breathing any more. All four men were down and either dead or near to it. Walking down to the stream, she washed the last of the blood from her hands and the knife, then crossed over and started using the pitchfork to pull the burning thatch from the roof of the farmhouse. When that was done, her father had mixed sod with the straw specifically to make it hard to burn. She went inside to see her parents. The bandit hadn't lied. They were both dead, with wounds that were showed that they'd fought to the last. The house had been ransacked, and everything that could possibly be of value, which was probably what had been in the sacks tied to the saddles of the horses. She decided that she would go back across the stream and reclaim it later. For now, she had two graves to dig. Some days later, Derek, the farmer from farther down the valley, showed up with his son. You're all alone now, Derek said bluntly. My older boy will be taking over my farm when the time comes, but you and Dallas each like each other well enough. Do you think that you could help you out here and see what happens? Dallas was of age with her, and he and she had tested out some of what Mama had told her the year before. She wasn't averse to spending more time with him, if it came to that. It wasn't a perfect solution, but it was good enough. Yes, she said. I'll tell you in a six months if you'll be staying. Fair, Derek said. You be a good boy now, and do what Celia says. Taking his hat off and walking staff, he went outside, then peered up at the repair job that she'd been doing on the thatch. Mayhap I could bring the others over to help fix this. With Dennis handing me a hand, I should have it done before the rain comes, Celia told him. 
having a group of people around the farmhouse, wandering across the stream and asking awkward questions about the field, was not what she wanted. You say so? He put his hat back on his head. You didn't see which way the bandits went after leaving here, did you? They haven't been seen. Oh, I hid, she assured him. Perhaps they left the district. Most like, he agreed. Be a good now, Delos. I will, father. Cydia watched the older man stump away down the road. When he'd gone, she turned to Delos. You'll be sleeping in the kitchen until I say otherwise. Aye, he agreed. And you'll be feeding the chickens. I'll show you where we store the feed away from the rats. Aye. And one more thing, she pointed across the stream. We stay out of that field. End of story. Story number three. Good neighbors are hard to come by. Written by Al Sporno. Today, class, we will be going over the history of the human-Ula relations and the incidents leading up to the Second Krull War. Many hatchlings may be familiar with the movie on the subject, but let's put that melodrama aside. Here we will discuss the real history. Sub-Professor Jijan looked out to his new batch of hatchlings, almost expecting the bored expressions of prior years as a matter of course. Instead, he saw wide-eyed Ola children, all riveted to the edges of their seats. Ah, I almost forgot about how popular that winter release really was. That big actor, what was his name? Uh, anyways, I suppose they all got excited because of the Godspeed Damned movie. John would take the student's interest however he could get it, though, and he sighed contentedly, moving around some static images on his display panel, focusing on the one fearsome-looking individual. This is High Commander Ulajan. That brought out a flare of extra interest from the students. She was, of course, the architect of the original agreement, and the reason we founded Salvation, and why our capital city is named Ulaja. That was her who broke the treaty and... Uh... Pack it up. Everything we can, the High Commander ordered, her voice soft and low, barely audible over the fearsome tropical cyclone roaring outside. I've had it with this egg-sucking dump. As if punctuating a statement, one of the outlying temporary structures blew off of its flimsy foundations, all caught in high definition by a ship's video monitors. Native vegetation covered a large part of the ship's exterior, and soon camera footage might be blocked, or impossible to see through the burning hot rain. Fortunately, all the civilians had already been loaded back onto their transports, or casualties would have already mounted up. Beside her, Captain Canis scratched his scales absently. Well, it's not the first time the astronomers screwed up, I suppose. Petty, uh, it had to be our expedition that got this arse end of it, though. The planet selected by Command's astronomy division had been thoroughly analyzed for traces of a suitable life and was deemed well within the zone of habitability. With the desperation of a final Krull invasion, there had been no time to send the usual probes to confirm everything ahead of time. Several colonization experts had been sent out on different courses to far-flung potentially habitable worlds to save most of the Ular from extinction at the hands of the Kral Armada. And even in the best of times, the Division had made errors. It was merely a pity that this one was particularly bad. We haven't even officially named it yet, High Commander Ulajan said. 
but it's far too hot for comfort. Barely survivable. And then add with those egg-sucking storms and the rain that burns the scales and... I heard some people calling it paradise, though I am pretty sure that was a bit of sarcasm. Gannis laughed and signaled his agreement, adjusting the personal cooler's air closer to his face. Even the ship's interior cooling system had a hard time with the native climate. How astronomers have picked up much more promising will just five light years away. I'm not sure how the division rested, but... Uh, we have the fuel, barely. We could try there. Religion waved a hand distractedly. Yes, we'll try that. A pity about the supply caches, though. I suppose that we could come back for them if they're really necessary. Automated ships had been able to hyper in faster than the crude transports, which were barely able to manage 10C. So, the Division had sent a number to the planet and had them auto-land in various locations around the planet, to aid the colonization effort. They, however, did not have the fuel to lift off again, and it would take many trips to bring even an appreciable fraction of those supplies with them. Trips that did not have fuel for. That was the only reason that I was trying so hard to make it work on this excrement-filled waste of a planet. But Gannis is right, sir. This is never going to work long term. If there is anything we really need, we can come back for it. One or two small trips might be workable without fuel reserves. With that, religion passed along the orders, and the transports abandoned the ruined camp, flying through the eye of the storm as it passed overhead. Most of the colonists breathed a sigh of relief. Paradise was anything but. The mechanics of the hyperdrive made a less relative mechanics, and only the computers could really unwind it in any reasonable amount of time. But after a quarter of a year in hyper, and about half of the one in real time, the colonization fleet entered the neighboring star system. Certainly, that beat the many years spent in cryo when the ships hypered in this area of space to begin with. But it was still long. The High Commander grinned as soon as the hyper-translation had finished. Astro readings were far more favorable in this system. The fifth planet was far colder than Paradise had been and much more to the liking of Ula in general. In fact, in better days, this world might have been considered a resort, a place for older Ula to retire and live out their days in peace and tranquility. Captain Canis interrupted her. Hi, Commander. I am reading a fleet of ships in system in high orbit over that target world. What? She said. She had been so fixated on the climate readings that she had not looked at the detection grid. Crowl? Fear traveled down her spine. If the enemy had reached the system, all was lost. No, definitely not. The readings are unlike any others I've seen. The tech level is, well, it's kind of low, to be honest. The crawl would never be caught dead flying anything like this. But I am detecting drive emissions similar to ours. They have hyper capability, but um, their power levels... Uh, Something is wrong. You mean besides them being camped out around our planet? I don't have to remind you, Captain. There is no other potential habitable worlds within range and... Her radio comm pinged. The mysterious fleet was trying to contact her, but the frequencies were all wrong. A data pulse came through anyway, but the computer could make no sense of it. Everything was gibberish. Get linguistics on this right away. In the meantime, park the fleet here and do not make any sudden moves. We don't need to fight right now. 
Yes, High Commander, Canis answered. Not long after, linguistics suggested acknowledging the transmission with a radio transmission of their own, using universal elements to try and at least imply peaceful intent. The colonization fleet was armed, in theory, but they could not afford to lose any ulna or material. Everything was critical now, especially with the loss of the supply caches. It had taken the better part of a month for the linguistics department, working in tandem with several mathematicians and cultural experts, to crack the data packet the mysterious aliens had sent over. But once they had, they found the software equivalent of a full dictionary of the aliens' language, some instructions on how to contact them, and a name for the creature. Humans. It also explained why they were here. After that, it was relatively a simple matter for the programmers to work out an automated translation matrix. And so, the human high commander, his rank appeared to be admiral in their language, face filled her display. We were beginning to worry communication would not be possible, the human said. There was some lag, but the translation matrix appeared to be working well enough. It is not easy. I am pleased that we were able to manage. It has been many thousands of years since we made contact with another race. Religion was calm but wary. The last first contact had been with the Krull, and that had instantly become a violent affair. There was no reasoning with the Krull. Krull did not care to communicate in any fashion that indicated a desire for dialogue. They merely hounded other races across the stars and stole whatever was left behind. That these humans had been patient and eager to communicate suggested that this might go off a little better. I see... The human high commander began, Well, I imagine you got our message. We did, Elijan said. And as it so happens, I may have a proposal that could work for both of us. The human commander nodded his head, which Elijan took to be a signal to continue. We just came from a world, uh, one we called Paradise. It was kind of a joke. A joke? The human commander seemed curious. Yes, Elijan said. That egg-sucking world was about as inhospitable for us as you can imagine. Technically... It was barely habitable, but for us, it was practically a death world, far too warm. The human nodded more. Perhaps that means agreement more than to continue. But the cultural experts would analyze the conversation later for things a high commander would not necessarily pick up on the first time around. The human explained, Well, this world here is a death world for us, far too cold, barely habitable, and the nickname we gave it was Dante's Icebox. Religion paused. A cultural expert suggested that this was probably some cultural reference. The human continued, But from the readings you sent of where you just came from, that would be a paradise for us. Yes, sir. We thought as much, Religion said. Which leads me to my proposal. I suggest a trade. Your ships are in low on fuel and running in low power mode. You could probably adapt our fuel to work with your powertrain. From what our engineers can tell. And while we do not have a lot ourselves, we could give you just barely enough for your people to make it there. We could, then, basically just trade worlds. This one is better for us. That one is better for you. Data from the humans during the month of translation struggle indicated that the human fleet had been left to its own system under bad circumstances. Some kind of environmental catastrophe or another. Though the cultural experts had not been able to fully grasp the details and did not even have enough fuel to budget to hop to another nearby system. They were trapped here, and would probably die here without help. Their drives were less efficient and less advanced, 
and the ship's engineers considered it a minor miracle that these aliens had even made the journey here successfully, without the ships breaking apart under the strain. Our astronomers have confirmed your observations, and we'd be very much obliged if you could help us with the fuel, but um, we have another problem. Our supply ships landed here, and we can't refuel them. Allegion scratched the scales in thought for a moment. Then again, she needed this world, and they needed paradise. It makes sense, even if the law technically prohibits tech transfer. Well, the governing council probably doesn't exist anymore anyway. And I was invested with fuel authority. Well, uh, as it so happens, we had a similar problem. We had intended to go back to recover our own supplies in time. But we did not have the fuel to lift it off from orbit again. We were going to have to raid it periodically in case there was something critical. Bulligen paused. The human regarded her for a moment and then cut the audio, talking to a number of other humans outside the video frame. Audio picked back up a moment later. We could trade those two. We can give you the locations of all of our supply drops, and you can give us locations of yours. It's not one for one, I'm sure, but this could help us both. Bulligen considered this, then added a stipulation. Additionally, we can agree that if either of us is critical need of our item, we'll both help each other out. If there is anything unforeseen that either people has to deal with when settling their world, that sounds great to us, the human said. More than fair. More than we could ever ever ask for in our present circumstances. She signaled her agreement, then forgot humans probably did not understand the gesture any more than she knew their body language. We agree in principle. I'm sure there are small things to be worked out by our respective crews, but I suppose it is fortunate that we both landed in these respective systems at nearly the same time. The humans had been orbiting this world since abandoning their colonies on the surface five local years prior, but that was still pretty close in cosmic terms. Their people still seemed to believe in deities, and it was almost enough for religion to consider it herself. The humans smiled. It looked like her species' fighting expression, but the cultural experts assured her that it was a friendly gesture with them. We look forward to it, High Commander. Thank you so much for your help. We were probably doomed without you. We'll never forget what you did for us here. The agreement turned out to be very fortuitous for both races, Dijon explained. The humans indeed found paradise to be more to the name than we did. For them, it was every bit of the resort world, ideally suited for their species, as salvation is for us. Humans, you see, are a species that prefers much warmer climates. And for them, while the Soclones present on Paradise were a problem, they were no worse for humans than the Avalanches are for us on Salvation. Now, as you can see in your biological section, humans live somewhat longer lives than Uladu. We do not have full understanding of human history, mind you, as our relations are relatively few and far between. We live on our world, and they in theirs, and there is little need to bother one another. But it seems that they conducted some gene engineering upon themselves to do that. Humans are tinkerers, you see, always messing with things. They learned from our technology and soon matched us, but we learned from theirs. Their supply ships were crude in many ways, but also quite clever and the transfer benefited us almost as much as it benefited them. 
The boy in the back of the row of the class tapped his desk with fingered claws. Yes, Edget. When are you going to get to the good part? The part about I'm going to get to that. Patience, Hatchling. Many generations later, alarms sounded in the orbital monitoring station command deck. High Commander Yester swore as missiles shot out from the Kral battleship. Two other stations had already been destroyed, but with their deaths, they had at least bought time for Yester to marshal his forces. Few, though, they were. Nobody had seriously thought the Kral would ever find them, or even if they had been able to determine their course, thought to spend all the years in cry just to get here. And failing all of that, being able to figure out that the fleet would go to another nearby system entirely. Yester said a silent prayer to the old gods, hoping that the Kral hadn't also bothered the humans on Paradise. Contact with them was sporadic at best. Every few years a human trade vessel might come and go. Ula ships never bothered. Trade was not nearly necessary. Both systems were rich in raw materials, and the Ula were relatively pleased with the standard of living. Humans liked to make the journey on occasion, but even they expressed profits were marginal on such trips in recent memory. Fuel costs for hyper-travel were quite large. Still, relations with them had always been friendly, if rare. No Ula would want to lead the merciless Carl to another race of innocence. For the moment, though, there was work to be done, and no time to spend mourning the possibilities that their neighbors might have to contend with the same forces. Point-defense lasers targeted the Kral missiles and annihilated the first wave. Yista barked orders at his crew, sending the wave of nuclear torpedoes out to meet the enemy fleet. From the hyperpoint, the Kral had spread out across the outer system, and were closing in on the meager defense of salvation itself. There were not enough Ular ships to stop them, though with the monitoring stations, they might buy enough time for another colonization fleet to escape in an ancient, thousand-year-old transport still orbiting salvation. A few small crews of class warships gathered on the fringes of Yastar's monitoring zone and added their own torpedoes to the fray. The Kral battleship was badly mauled and shut down its drives, coasting on a ballistic trajectory. Yastar did not celebrate. The Salvo had drained his missile inventory by a third, and additional forces were already speeding towards him. Do not waste any more ammunition on this disabled war vessel, Yistar called out on the cruisers. Target the next wave! It did not take long for much larger force to enter the zone of responsibility. One of these cruisers was practically vaporized by the next exchange of fire, for only a minor damage on one Kral battleship. An enemy warhead detonated close to his station, and decompression alarms sounded, hatches, automatically slamming shut. If the station was lost, the cruisers would not be able to saturate the Krull point defense by themselves. All would be lost. Peripheries open to space. We didn't lose any launches, but the point defense lost several laser clusters. His sub-commander said fearfully. We can't take another hit like that. Yister launched a desperate salver, burning through almost all of his remaining missile reserves. One Kral battleship exploded violently to the cheering Ular voices, but Yistav felt bile coming up in his second stomach. I don't have enough ammunition necessary to do that again. If they come now, I can't stop them. Still, the sudden saturation salvo seemed to have given the Kral commander momentary pause. 
His surviving battleship and its screening elements altered course and stayed just outside of the power torpedo range, probing the station's defenses. One of his sister stations fell, his zone of responsibility increasing accordingly. Little battles like this were occurring all around Salvation, and soon the Krell would be able to bombard the planet without the interference from orbital station defenses. More worse, they'd be able to get to the colony ships. Command had made it clear. If the Krell tried to bombard the planet and get the colony ships at the same time, the colony ships must survive. They had priority. They would flee to another world and continue to chase across the stars. The thought made Yister cringe. His nestlings were down there. Hypertranslation, sir. Large force incoming. How many battleships? Mister wondered, hope living his voice. This is the end. Not just for me. Not even just my family. But possibly our entire race. They aren't Krull, High Commander. What? They're, they're human! Krull, Commander! A booming voice said over the hypercom. You will heave to and shut down all drives immediately. All weapons fire will cease, pending negotiated surrender. Dista was flawed. More human ships made translation. Some of them were larger than even the Krull Super Dreadnought. And there are more of them than eggs in the Emperor's harem. Gods, how? Why? The Krull were, at first, rather unimpressed, in typical Krull fashion. But the first battleships to attempt to fire after the proclamation was promptly vaporized by hundreds of nuclear torpedoes. Still, more human ships made translation into the system. The human armada had grown to stupendously large. It would have been enough to give even the old Krull home fleet pause. Some Krull ships attempted to flee back into hyperbands, but the moment a drive would spin up, the human torpedoes, far faster than our own, Yester noted, sought out the offending ship and reduced it to scrap. In the end, Krull aggressiveness and cultural disdain for submission of any kind won out and soon the entire Krull armada was so much floating space junk. Yester immediately called the human commander over the hypercom. We are uh, relieved beyond measure that, that you, you helped us out, but uh, why? His curiosity was intense. Relations with humanity had always been distant. They were neighbors, of course, but both peoples kept to themselves mostly. Certainly. He never expected them to come in guns blazing like this. The human smiled. We had an agreement with your first High Commander, Ulajan, she said, and I quote, Additionally, we can agree that if either has a critical deed, we'll both help each other out. And you see, we take that pretty seriously. Seems like the Krull invasion is pretty critical. Yester felt hope for the first time since the Krull scouts had first been sighted. Ah... How did you, did you know? The Krall Scouts came upon our world first, looking for you, I presume. They did not enjoy their visit, but I figure they probably came to the same conclusion that your colonists did all those years ago, said the human. We'd figured we'd better check in on you, just in case. It seemed our caution was warranted. But, so, so many ships, you must be unprotected now, Hester protested. What if they come for your world? Oh, this... The human gestured around him. This is just a recon force. You should see our battle fleet. Nister had nothing to say to that, but he felt a twinge of fear. What 
If the humans decided to conquer salvation, it would be easy enough for them even if it was only a freak that they possessed. The human smiled in his manner, almost as if reading Ular Commander's thoughts. Don't worry. You have been great neighbors over the centuries, High Commander, and we wouldn't even be here if it wasn't for the help of you gave us in the beginning. We're always in your debt. Without you, our entire species might have gone extinct. You know, we even kept your name on our world. Paradise. The High Commander blinked in silence. The crew of station just watched in shock, expecting to wake up and find that this was all some kind of sleeping trance. Yeah, I know. We didn't come over much, the human said, his eyes kindly somehow. We never had a lot of dealings, your people and mine. We mostly stay in our systems, you mostly stay in yours. But we never forgot the kindness you showed us in our time of need. And you've always been good neighbors. We appreciate that more than you knew, perhaps. Certainly, we weren't going to let someone stomp you like this. The human grinned and continued. And we'd hate to trade a good neighbor for those Krull assholes. You know, we tried talking to their scouts, even used your language database that you gave us way back when, and the only thing they sent back was a picture of their genitals. Those guys are really messed up in the head. Then you heard us here. We offered them the chance to live and... Uh, well, we gestured expansively to the in-system wreckage. Yester sighed. We've never encountered anyone who could make peace with them. Then again, we've never encountered anyone who could so easily best them in war, either. The human commander made strange noises, the translation computer signaling that as it was laughing. A gesture and vocalizations humans made when they were amused. <laughs> That's pretty hilarious. Well, if they really think that they're all that, maybe we should go and pay them a visit. Got the coordinates of their homeworld. Yester's crest displayed in amusement, and he huffed with pleasure at the joke, feeling the fear of the tension leave him finally. It hit him then. His nestlings were safe. His home was safe. Everything was going to be all right. He'd been prepared to sacrifice his life, the lives of all the defenders, and most of his family. In the slim hope that maybe a colony ship or two could escape. And now, everything was going to be okay. The human's expression shifted, and he stared at Yester as if patiently waiting for some kind of response. Wait! The crazy egg layer is serious. Uh, I'll need to call command. So, what happened after that, teacher? Did the humans go to the Kral homeworld? Idjit asked. The other students watched the dawn for more, practically hanging on every word. The school chimes sounded, and the class ended. I am guessing the movie didn't cover that part. Or you would all know the answer to that already. Dijon said amused. We'll go over the other battles of the Second Kral War tomorrow, but uh, suffice to say that the Kral never bothered us again. Bidget stopped at his desk on the way out. The child showed a very human-like curiosity at times, and Jijan felt himself softening a little. Teacher, did High Commander Ulajan know that the humans would help us with the Kral? Is that why she phrased the agreement that way? The old teacher signaled confusion. Nobody knows, little hatchling. Of course, the official government position is that she knew what she was doing, though how she could have foreseen what the humans would become. 
Nobody knows. Historians are a little more divided on that point. But the more I study their culture, the more I think the humans probably would have come to our aid anyway. They have a saying. Good neighbors are hard to come by. End of story. Story number four. The Colony, written by X. Viler. It has to be a colony. It has to. The surveyor stared at the scanner. The captain shook his head with disbelief. But it's too big. Even most conservative models estimate 15 million people. He pointed at a figure on his datapad. It has to be. Look, the biosphere is much too immature to support such complex life. The surveyor pointed at another of his displays. Most of the planet is covered with some barely anything better than moss and lichen. Probably because it's being choked by the huge amounts of heavy metals permeating the soil. But who in their right mind would put a colony on a planet like this, let alone one this big? The captain objected. The surveyor shrugged. I don't know, but uh, they've gone through a lot of troubles in Livia. He pulled up another image, this time of a visual telescope. See all of these structures dotted around the city, glass-covered farms, to keep their plants from being contaminated with all of these heavy metals from airborne dust. He turned to look at the captain. Just about the only thing this place has going for it is the oxygen atmosphere, and even that is going to chronically poison you if the dust is fine enough. That's insane. Within just the last 100 lights we surveyed, there were five planets that would make better colonies. A stone's throw from here. Why this? The surveyor turned back to his display. We could ask them, make first contact, he paused. My team has located at least two sites that we have interstellar level communication dishes. With their general level of technology, it's virtually certain that they've already seen us. The surveyor summoned an image of a group of white ovals, with few very small rectangles next to them on the screen. Do you know where they are pointed? My team thinks that the big ones are aimed at the yellow star 8.2 lights away, a binary with loose ternary 9.8 lights away, and a red star 12.3 lights away. An unusually close grouping of colonies. Comms is scanning for hyperwave signals of those stars. No hitch yet. The captain straightened himself and stroked his whiskers on his face. First contact would greatly alter their mission profile, but it was part of his mandate as a council survey ship captain. It would also be his first, and a feather in the survey captain's hat. He was supposed to contact only space-faring species, pre-civilizations were the purview of specialist uplift teams, but these people clearly passed the test, since there was no way that they could have originated on this hellhole of a rock. He weighed in all options and finally sighed with his decision. All right, pick a site and have the comms start broadcasting the standard protocol and language primers. He glanced at the bridge chronometer. Give me a full summary of your findings in the next Desi cycle. Captain, the comms officer called from his station. We're receiving a signal on radio, a repeating sequence of prime-numbered pulses. The captain hurried over to his station and examined the readout in front of the operator. Radio? What in the devil are they doing? The comm shook his head. I don't know. I've initiated a radio frequency sweep and they're sending the same signal on at least eight channels widely spread across the radio spectrum. He regarded his instruments for a moment. They're clearly trying to get our attention, but the only reason we noticed was that our synthetic aperture ground radar happens to be on almost harmonic of one of the baseband's, and the computer notified me of the interference. 
The captain stared at the redoubts with an exasperated look. I don't understand. It's like they haven't heard us. But this close to a hyperwave broadcast should be unmistakable. The comms officer tapped the screen. A bit more blips started appearing on the spectrum analyzer. Maybe they haven't heard us. The computer is detecting lots of signals everywhere on the radio bands, but not a blip on hyperwave. He paused for a moment to think. We're not in the signal path of those big dishes anymore, but I'll bet you a million they're broadcasting in radio. The captain looked incredulous. Interstellar radio? Surely you're joking. The target stars are just close enough for that to be barely feasible. Maybe that's why they're so close. You'll have a ten-year time lag on your broadcast, though. We'll never pick up a return signal. Our radio receivers aren't sensitive enough. He pulled up a photo of the dishes from the survey library and ran his cursor across one of the dishes in measuring mode. You'll need one of those. I guess the survey didn't measure them, or didn't understand the implication. Each is 140 paces across, total overkill for hyperwave, but totally necessary for radio. The captain whistled. They're insane. Why would they do that? The comms officer shrugged. I don't know, but I think we should retry resending the primers with radio. I'll need a couple of millicycles to alter the message to correct for radio communication instead of hyperwave. The captain nodded. Okay, do it. The captain sulked glumly, sitting in his station on the bridge. He haphazardly browsed the wealth of information all of his departments were producing. They'd been in orbit for twelve local days, and his excitement at the first contact had long since turned into boredom. He was supervising as their captain, but he himself had no direct use for all the data that they were gathering. Most of it had been seen already anyway, and they were just refining what they had already knew. What they knew was maddeningly incongruous. He had tried to solve the puzzle these people presented, but every angle he tried to think of resulted in contradictions. He'd given up and now could only wait and see if the aliens would manage to decode the instructions in the primer for true contact. They tried, both sides, to use more primitive methods while they waited. For their own part, they had tried to snoop on the aliens' radio broadcast network, but all the signals were digital. Without knowing the encodings, they were just a binary noise. Many seemed very sophisticated, often extremely low-power spread-spectrum signals that frustratingly danced at the edge of their radio receiver's noise floor. Others... Even the high-powered broadcast links used heavily compressed data to pack as much into a crowded radio channels as they could. The aliens, on the other hand, had managed limited success. The fruits of that were playing quietly in the background on the bridge. Alien music. Quite catchy at times, but very weird. Somebody on the planet had connected the analog amplitude modulator carrier onto one of the communication dishes and pointed it at the ship. Whenever their orbit moved them out of the sight of the dish, another dish on the other side of eight communication stations on the planet took over. They had recorded almost two days of music by now, almost uninterrupted. There had been a few repeats, but it had been mostly unique pieces, usually one to three millicycles in length, with a few seconds of silence between. Another signal from the planet that they had managed to decipher had contained several crude images encoded as series 10,201, two level pulses each. Somebody at comms had realized that it was a squared prime and once laid out in rows and columns of 101. The pulses revealed a simple, low-resolution line drawing of, presumably, the aliens. Bipedal, upright, two lower limbs, two upper limbs, with five manipulators in each, 
and a round bulb on the top of the body, with five possible orifices. Head? There were also abstract symbols, which were open to interpretation, and no two crewmen would agree on what they represented. The captain had allowed comms to return the favor, and one lucky artist on board probably got themselves immortalized in Alien Gallery as a dotted bit drawing. As had the comms officer's entire collection of flang and metawob music, deities helped the people on the planet. But apart from the minor cultural exchange, the aliens on the planet were still as much of a mystery as they had been when the survey ship had arrived. Their technology, that they could see, seemed very sophisticated. The problem was that they couldn't see. The aliens had hardly any space presence, yet they were very clearly interstellar. In orbit around the planet were just 16 satellites in various orbits. There was a similar lack of space infrastructure on the ground. Not a single starport was evident on the planet. A colony this big should be a major travel destination, yet there was no evidence of any such traffic. On the ground, a huge amount of effort had been spent making this borderline planet habitable. Toxic amount of heavy metal choked the planet's biosphere, and everything grown had to remain encased in artificially kept environments. Even much of the cities themselves were enclosed in glass, with all of the air presumably filtered to keep the toxic dust from contaminating everything. All this effort spent, for no apparent reason. To put a 50 million colonists on a planet that hardly seemed worth the effort, especially when better planets were just a couple dozen nights away, a few days' travel. The aliens' communications networks that they could trace out from the orbit were very complex. Huge amounts of data flowed everywhere, and the modulations and encodings were as advanced as any they had seen. But they were all radio, and not one beep of hyperwave transmission anywhere. Not even the huge communication dishes that had kept unwaveringly pointed at the same three star systems since the day the surveyors arrived. Each alone a marvel of engineering, constantly broadcasting a tremendous power and bitrates through a dozen lights of interstellar void. There were some of the most advanced radio transmitters the comms department had ever seen. But they were radio. It would take a decade for the signal to even reach its destination. The distance even just a moderate hyperwave caster could bridge in mere decicycles, let alone one that would broadcast with as much power as his antenna did. None of this made any sense, and these contradictions were everywhere the surveyors looked. The captain shook his head as he read yet another report. His chronic metaphorical headache had almost developed into a physical one by now. Captain! There was a loud cry from the comm station. We're receiving a basic link-up protocol handshake signal from the planet. The captain perked up in a few moments later as the comms officer continued. Interlang message. They are accepting the Primer's invitation for discourse and wish to initiate video meeting at our earliest convenience. The captain sat straight up in his chair and pondered for a few moments. Well then, people, uh, we, we may finally we have some answers to our mysteries. He looked over each of his officers. Unless there are objections, we accept and I shall receive their representative in one decicycle. He waited to see if anyone would voice their concerns, and then looked at the comms when no one did. Send the reply. The captain nervously paced the quiet bridge. He wished that he had, at the same time, set both more time and less time to prepare for the meeting. The ship's chronometer ticked down microcycles. The captain tugged at the jacket of his formal uniform one more time. Comms, 
1,100 micros, Captain. The link-up is stable. We are ready to broadcast. The captain squared his shoulders and puffed himself up, trying to look at least like how he ought to feel as the authority and representative of the Galactic Council. 500 micros. He closed his eyes and ran through the different scenarios over in his mind one more time. Two hu- We're receiving ready acknowledgement. The captain turned to face the viewscreen. Activate. There was a moment of a flicker of the two-way video and audio link stabilized. An alien being appeared on the screen, broadly similar in layout to most of the species present on the bridge. He, she, it, appeared to have smooth, fairly light skin. No covering, except for a mass of some kind of hairs on its head. Color was impossible to judge on the video was grayscale. Intensity only, both to save bandwidth and to simplify the image generation as different species had different color ranges and primaries. The round bulb at the top of the creature's torso in the drawing that they had received was, indeed, the head. The oval orifice on the midline appeared to be visual organs, and the large one in the bottom fit the characteristics of a mouth. In the middle of the face was a triangular protrusion. The alien was wearing a plain jacket of dark cloth, with folded cloth lips lining the cut around its neck. Underneath was a light-colored shirt with tighter folds right up the creature's neck. The dark strap of cloth hung down from its neck. Suddenly, the captain felt rather overdressed in his gaudy blue dress jacket and fanciful gold filigree lining, each of a multitude of cuts. He studied the alien measuredly, gauging how long he should wait until they started speaking. He misjudged it, and just as he was about to, the alien started first. The mouth on the alien opened, revealing two lines of white teeth. The alien's speech was rhythmic and flowing, relatively smooth and low on the frequency register. Words melded into each other with little pause or distinction. It was similar, although flatter and more regular, to what they had heard accompanied in some of the alien music. Interlang translations appeared next to the video image. We, people, greeting extended due to occasion of arrival of you specific at Colony Eden, part of the Human Commonwealth. I, female, am administrator with am. Interlang was extremely stilted, but then it wasn't meant for great literature. It was designed for ease of teaching and unambiguity. Interlang wasn't a language you could speak. Instead, it encoded concepts symbolically, unambiguously, one idea per one symbolic entry. These symbols were not words that you could not splice, play, or pun with them. They were atomic indexes of the language's symbolic dictionary, and the way they combined was thoroughly structured without exceptions. The captain made note that the proper nouns came up as phonetics, therefore the computer had never heard of them before, nor had the aliens translated them into interlang concepts so the meaning they had, if any, was not part of the Interlang Dictionary. He responded in his most authoritative voice that he could muster, even though the alien undoubtedly would not notice the nuances. I am Captain. As he spoke, the Interlang appeared on the screen so that he could make sure the translator was translating correctly. I male am Captain Rank. Captain Job of Surveyship Fastidious. Representative of the Galactic Council, performing on their previous noun behalf, survey special task of this special galactic arm. The captain continued, We are on a peaceful mission, and we wish to extend to you the friendship of the Galactic Council and open formal relations with your species. 
The administrator read the translations on her screen and nodded. We appreciate your peaceful intentions. However, we did not detect your arrival to our planet. How do you travel? The captain was taken aback by the question. There had been nothing special about their method of travel. If anything, the powerful hyperdrive in the survey ship would make them much more easy to see across many lights. We travel normally using our hyperdrive. Our intentions are open. We have no active stealth systems. The administrator looked carefully at the interlang translation. She then looked at someone to the side, outside the camera's view. There was a short conversation, but the audio was muted and no translations appeared. She turned back to the camera. I'm sorry. I do not understand. We could not translate the concept for interlang symbols, travel, hyperspatial, and hyperdrive. That was unusual, the captain thought. But sometimes the more specialized parts in interlang primer weren't clear to some species or another. He glanced over at the system specialist, who gave an all-ok okay sign, indicating that their system was working fine. How did your species travel to found this colony? Maybe he could figure out which interlang word the aliens had mapped to the concept of space travel. We traveled real space here from Sol. Ah, they had simply taken the normal space travel verb to use for all travel. We traveled real space as normal as well. Her look changed, but to what the captain could not be sure. She looked again to the side and subtly shook her head. Her hand did a small turning gesture in the air. Presumably, she was listening to someone from off-camera. After a moment, she turned back, but none of our observatories could see your engine exhaust plume. Now, it was the captain's turn to look confused. Everybody in the galactic community used gravetic thrusters that gripped the very fabric of space-time. They had no visible exhaust, and gravetics were prerequisite for hyperdrive and interstellar travel. He turned to look at his chief engineer and noticed that he had turned unusually yellow. He turned to look at the system specialist next. He gave the captain a non-committal shrug. But then his thoughts must have caught up with the engineers, and he also suddenly looked shaken up. Before the captain could ask, the chief engineer walked to stand beside the captain's chair, right in view of the camera. He didn't address the captain, but instead spoke towards the viewscreen. Can you describe your colony ship for us? The captain was annoyed that this situation had started to slip away from his control, but he gave a quick gesture towards the comm station to signal that they should allow the translator to translate him as well. After a moment, his question appeared in the message box in Interlang. Now I can show you a picture of it. The administrator nodded off camera. A few moments later, the view changed to a photograph of a vessel of some sort in front of a cloudy planet. The vessel was long, a spindly one, with a large round circular bulge in the middle, a third of the way from the rear. Behind the bulge was a cluster of six long cylinders that each ended in an enormous lattice framework in the shape of a bell. Along the cylinders were bands of increasing intervals towards the back end. Each also had gigantic radiators strutting directly out, black and shiny. In front of the bulge were a series of staggered containers radially attached around the thin spine, until finally, at the very most tip, was a white glistening chunk of something that looked like ice. The captain was speechless. He had never seen a vessel like this, ever, and as a member of the Galactic Survey, he had seen vessels from all corners of the galaxy. The alien's voice came and more interlang appeared, this is the Ark Royale. She is 14 kilometers long and carried 5,000 frozen and 10 million genetic colonists. 16 kilopaces, that can't... The captain didn't know what to think anymore. 
Had the ship been here now, it would have dwarfed their survey ship like it would have dwarfed a millibug. More than a hundred of them could have been lined up end-to-end -end a beam of it. The implications weren't lost to the engineer, and if he hadn't been yellow already, he would be now. Captain, he spoke hesitantly, that, that ship, that thing is a magnetic acceleration fusion torch. It must be. The captain turned to him and spread his arms in a gesture of, I don't know. They flew here slower than light, Captain. Now, it was the captain's turn to turn yellow. Suddenly, it all made sense. Every last bit of it. No hyperwave. No space traffic. Why here? Because it was probably the only planet they knew of and only place that they could be. 5,000 colonists going towards an unknown planet with oxygen atmosphere. No hope of return or rescue. It was live here. Or die. And they did. Very few species go out into the universe on their own. But he had never heard of a race leave their system before inventing the hyperdrive, let alone spread out to the stars. The energies required to do so in a relativistic universe were almost insurmountable. Even today, building that colossus of a ship that had brought them here could bankrupt any one of the planetary economies in the galactic community. And yet, they did build it. More than once. There were at least two other colonies around the stars their interstellar radius pointed towards. What has been unleashed onto the universe? End of story. Story number five. The Lost King, written by Dr. Blackjack21. The meeting was going poorly. Things were threatening to unwind as the council destabilized into panic and shouting. The Demon Horde was here. It was the end of all things. Princess Thalia felt herself being swept up in the tide of despair that was threatening to overcome the last gathering of elves and men. But her role was to provide an aura of quiet serenity wherever she went, and if that was all she had to offer in these dark times, she would do so now. Unfortunately, her brother, the King of the Elves, didn't share her sense of duty. Amidst all the shouting, he leaned over the two of his closest advisors and whispered low enough that Thalia herself was likely to only one to hear them. Gather your most trusted warriors. This alliance is over. We'll retreat behind our walls to enjoy what time we have left while we wait for the end. His words drove a knife into Thalia's heart. She watched as he, the noble king of elves, snuck out of the war council, leaving everyone else to face their fates. For but a moment, her serene smile faltered as her eyes threatened to overflow with unwanted tears. But that was when she caught his eyes for the first time. At the other side of the room, a human general met her gaze. He was far too young for the role that had been thrust upon his shoulders, more by vacancy and necessity than experience. But his gaze held a steady resolve that helped Thalia find her serenity once more. She smiled and nodded her gratitude to the man who probably had no idea what he'd just done for her. He grinned toothily at her, and she noticed a wicked gleam in his eyes. Thalia continued to watch as he took a deep breath and bellowed over the crowd, drawing everyone's attention as he did so. Lords, ladies, and fellow generals, all I'm hearing are words of lost and defeated. This is the doom of our times. The end is here. Let us run and hide, buying what little time we may. 
Thalia wondered if maybe this man had noticed her brother's disgraceful acts and was about to level accusations to remove the blame of the failure of this war from his own shoulders. The princess couldn't even blame him. If this was how he wanted to spend his last days, so be it. However, he seemed far from over with his theatrics. He swept into the middle of the crowd that parted before his manic energy. He theatrically spit on the ground. The room was now quiet enough to hear the soft, wet impact. Thaddea hid a distaste even as he spoke up louder than before. Maybe you're right. Maybe this is the end. But before I die, I'm going to take advantage of this opportunity the demons have given us. The room was so quiet now, even Thalia's heartbeat seemed deafeningly loud in her ears. She was wondering the same thing every other person in the room was wondering. What opportunity could the madman mean? He didn't waste the attention and even stood on the table dramatically, pointing into the distance towards the approaching demonic horde. In all the time we fought them, the demons have been careful and meticulous, teasing and testing our lines with constant harassment, never standing and fighting unless they had the advantage. They spread out and overwhelmed us with numbers so we couldn't hope to match, thinning our ranks as we stretched too thin. Every warrior present knew precisely what the madman meant. Trying to pin down the demon army was like trying to pin down your shadow, and every attempt saw you slowly clawed and bitten from behind. But now, the man unleashed a wild smile of his on the crowd, and Thalia could feel the tiniest surge of hope from the gathered lords and ladies, and the man drove his point home. But now, for the first time, all of the demonic horde is in one place. All of their champions, lords, and heroes stand before us. They think we are broken, weary, and at our wit's end. They think to intimidate us with show of force before butchering us like cattle. They think that we have no fight left in us. The look in his eyes was mad and infectious. Thalia could feel the hearts of everyone in the room starting to beat stronger and faster as the tempo and volume of his speech gained traction. To her, the hearts of these warriors sounded like the drums of war as the madman made his final point. But in their arrogance, the demons have made their first two mistakes. They backed us into a corner, and then they gave us a target to strike at. Gather your men. If we must die this day, then let us ride out and meet them like warriors. Let us take the opportunity they've given us to drive the spear into the heart of our enemy. Let us break the horde, here and now, then return home as heroes. A wild cheer rose up from the crowd, and man and alpha-like ran out to organize a final desperate insane assault, leaving only Thalia and the mad human general alone. As he approached her, the princess felt her heart beat faster. A thought occurred to her. What would this insane human do to her now that they were alone? But in truth, she didn't care. If he could bring hope to her people in these dark times, he could do whatever he wished with her, and Thalia would consider the price worth paying. He drew close, but stopped just short. His pungent smell was offensive to Thalia's delicate nose, but she could still feel the wild energy radiating off of him in waves. His smile 
was still feral, but there was something else hidden in there the princess couldn't place. One moment turned to two, then three, and then finally the human spoke. I'm not sure how it is with the elves, but in human society, when a dashing knight returns off to face down the evils and threaten the land, it is customary for a maiden to bestow a favor to him, to give the heroic knight a reason to return. That is mind was a blow. What does this human mean by a favor? Then she recalled seeing pictures of knights in the book in her brother's library, and the images. Ladies had given the knights pieces of cloth to wear into battle. Is that what this man was asking for? Some object to remember her by while he fought? It was such a simple thing, so she relented. All right, what would you? Then she was cut off when the man took advantage of her acceptance and leaned in and kissed the elven noble. As he did so, his emotions crashed into hers and she felt everything that was hidden behind his words. At his center was a bottomless pit of fear and despair, such that the pathetic fears that had threatened to overwhelm Thalia before paled in comparison. But around that pit swirled a storm of anger, defiance, and determination, and through it all pierced the thinnest ray of hope. It was a mere sliver of a thing. So fine, Thalia would have lost track of it if it weren't for the fact that this man's soul clung to it with a feverish might. The intensity of all of these motions shook Thalia deeply, even as the man pulled back and looked at her with a wild smile and insane eyes that she now had the barest understanding of. His expression softened only slightly as he spoke one last time. Now, that is a guess worth living for. Before she could gather her wits, the human was gone. And Thalia found herself mourning the man whose name she'd never learned. Thalia smiled as she watched her husband, King Reinhold, shift uncomfortably on his throne. The poor man had no idea that she'd been the king's sister, and after the other lords and nobles disposed her cowardly brother, they'd been overjoyed to learn that the mad human who'd led them to victory in the darkest hour was also interested in the princess whose hand would decide the next king. All he'd known at the time was that he was flushed with his victory and impossible survival, and she was a beautiful maiden. The celebration was just what one naturally did after such a thing. He'd been the center of many feasts and toasts, but he didn't catch on until too late that one of those had been a wedding feast, and he was the groom of honor. Not that he minded too much. If marriage was the price of the pleasure of Thalia's company, it was a small price to pay. The whole king thing, though, uh, that uh, was a different matter. He'd been every bit as wild and energetic a king as he'd been a general, so much so that his new subjects often affectionately referred to him as the Mad King. He was known for being the first to dive into trouble and the last to walk away from it. He behaved nothing like any sane king they'd ever known, and they loved him for it. Under his rule, the elven and human alliance had gone from a fragile, temporary thing to a mighty country that rivaled any of the older, more pure nations that bordered them. As time passed, there were signs of his aging, as much as Thalia tried to drive them from her mind. His mortality weighed on her. Not that she regretted marrying her mad king. She just didn't want their brief time together to come to an end. But try as she might, the science was slowly starting to become harder to ignore. 
His arms didn't swing as freely when he walked, and his legs sometimes seemed to become heavy. In addition, his posture was becoming slightly stooped, and his arms and legs seemed quick to get sore and stiff. The people listened to and respected their king, but recently he'd been growing tired of the bureaucracy. Unless he took a direct hand in anything, nothing seemed to get done. That's when he came up with a clever idea that he was about to present. Thalia watched a mad husband with pride as he presented an insane idea that only he could have come up with. Lords, ladies, nobles, rabble, I come before you with a proposal for the future of our kingdom. There was a cheer from the crowd. Even the elven lords smiled with as much affection as they were capable of, which, according to Reinhold, was none at all. But he trusted Talia that it was there even if he couldn't discern it. The king continued, As it stands, our country needs a way of more effectively make decisions. As evidence of this, during our last rainy season, we took our so long deliberating the best way to deal with the floodwaters, we almost lost many of our vital crops. To that end, I propose a new council. It'll consist of seven members, three humans and three elves, each respectively representing the nobles, the clergy, and the common men and women of their respective graces, with the king and queen acting as an arbiter, and only in the event of a deadlock vote, possessing a seventh vote. The people were murmuring amongst themselves. This sounded promising so far, but it was missing their king's now familiar odd touch. However, it seemed Reinhold was fin finished. Getting the people's attention once more, he continued. However, to keep this from becoming a council of owls versus men, the alban leaders will be voted for by humans, and the human leaders will be voted upon by elves, encouraging us all to act for the betterment of each other rather than ourselves. A cheer went up from the crowd as Reinhold waved at his people. Though Thalia saw he tucked his right hand behind his back, it was shaking in that odd way she'd noticed it doing several times lately. She almost frowned at it, but instead turned and smiled at the crowd, moving closer to her husband as she did so. Dahlia was tired. She'd been covering for her husband more and more, but she didn't know how much longer that she could keep the problem from the people. They'd brought in the best healers in the country and swore them to secrecy, but every inspection revealed the same thing. His body was mostly healthy, and the problem was his mind. The symptoms Thalia had thought to be simply mortal aging were apparently a prelude to a worsening disease that was slowly robbing her husband of his body and mind. He no longer spoke before large gatherings, and when he did speak, it was common for his voice to turn soft and trail off into incomplete thoughts. Sometimes his feet seemed to freeze to the ground and he could not move, or worse, he'd fall over. The once mighty warrior grew angry and was drawn at his body slowly betraying him. His now constantly shaking hand was a never-ending reminder of how far he'd fallen. Despite all that, once in a while, Thalia could see the great man she'd fallen in love with shine through the darkness from time to time. When he spent time with the children, he always smiled and listened to the meandering stories, and was quick with a tale or two upon request. In quiet moments when they were alone, Thalia would place her head against his and listen to his raging emotions. Sadness and weariness were powerful and louder than ever. 
but so too burned the same fiery determination he wielded against the demons. What's more, there was now a tight band of light connecting his heart to hers that burned all the brighter with each passing day despite the fear and doubt that now swarmed around him. Still, with the Mad King's retreat from the public light, Thalia was forced more and more to step up into his place. At first, she felt utterly lost in the maelstrom of politics and drama that came with the position. But then she'd think her husband's mad smile and that wicked glint he got in the eyes when he was about to do something characteristically bold and crazy. And she dived right in, learning to trust herself and her own strength as she went. All the while, she felt guilty, knowing that as she was finding her own strength, her husband was losing his as he fought the unwinnable war against his own mind and body. Yet, despite all that, when she'd returned from a long day of politics and negotiations, he'd always greet her with a smile. The smile had lost some of its wildness over the years, but in its own way, that smile signified an inner strength Thalia still marveled at. It marked another victory in an unwinnable war. She wondered how he always found the strength to fight on, even when defeat was inevitable. But then again, that was how they'd met. Dahlia walked into the maid's cleaning up after her husband's latest tantrum. She couldn't bring herself to be angry with him. It wasn't his fault, after all. It was his mind's way of dealing with the fear and confusion of a world that seemed to grow stranger as it faded in a fog of his mind a little more every day. Still, it made her sad to see him in this state. What was worse, what really tore her heart in two was when he looked into her eyes and there was no spark of recognition. Most days, she was nothing more than another face in the sea of unknown and forgotten faces. She could feel he struggled as he fought desperately to hold on to his memories. But every day, a little more slipped through his fingers. Right now, he was sitting in his wheeled chair, watching with shame as the maids cleaned up the remnants of dinner he'd thrown at the floor. He knew he'd done something wrong, but the once mighty warrior couldn't even remember why he'd lashed out to begin with. The maids dealt with his tantrums with exceptional care, and patience. Thalia had hand-picked each of them. Every one of them had fathers, brothers, or in the case of one elderly elf maid, a son who'd fought beside and had been saved by the mad human king in their darkest hour. Now, they would proudly stand by him during his own. Once the mess was mostly cleaned up, Thalia dismissed the maids and spent a little time with her husband, even if he didn't recognize her any longer, she brought over another bowl of his favorite stew and started to feed him, since his badly shaking hands rendered him unable to do so for himself any longer. Between spoonsfuls, she looked up and was startled to see a hint of his old smile hinted at on his face. His eyes searched hers desperately, as if trying to remember something of great importance that was long forgotten. For a moment, Thalia's hope flared as she felt his mind tugging at hers, but then the moment passed, and his eyes clouded over as he slumped in his chair. For just an instant, it was too much for her. 
The queen turned away and hid her eyes from the man she loved out of fear that he'd seen something in there that might hurt him further. At that moment, the old king spoke, his voice soft and frail. No, come now. A pretty young lady like yourself must have something better to do than dote on a weak old man such as me. At your age, life is all about love and adventure. Great things are waiting for you out there. You, you shouldn't be shut up in a stuffy room like this. Dahlia turned and looked into her husband's eyes. There was something there. A flash similar to recognition, though he still didn't seem to know who she was. But what was more important, there seemed to be an essence of his old intelligence. She smiled back at him. My kin, there is nothing greater I could be doing right now. And nowhere I'd rather be than here with you. The Mad King smiled sadly, but fondly. You know, you remind me of someone precious I knew so, so very long ago. It might be hard to believe, but she was every bit as lovely as you. Her eyes could pierce through the thickest of crowds and make you feel like you were alone in the room with her. My Thalia, the love of my life. Thalia felt tears welling up in her eyes, but she blinked them away. It might not have been quite how she would have pictured it, but this was far too rare and precious a moment to waste. So instead, she encouraged him further. It sounds like you loved her very much. Tell me more about her. Reinhold smiled before speaking. The love and warmth in that expression soothed Thalia's soul. You know, the first time we met, she saved me. She saved us all, really. This whole kingdom would have fallen to the demons, if not for her courage. Thalia felt her heart fall. He was obviously confused again. M my king, as I've heard, it was you that saved us that day. The frail old man tuttered and shook his head as he petted Thalia's hand. Maybe, but I was only able to do that because she saved me first. There she was, alone in a room full of great and powerful people. All of us were in utter panic. There was no hope. The end was nigh, and we all knew it. I was ready to retreat with my armies and hide behind a wall to wait for the end to come. When I looked across the room, and I saw her. The king smiled as he looked off into the distance. The current world might be hidden from him by mental fog, but the world of the past remained clear in his eyes at that moment. I saw a fiery determination not to give in to despair in her eyes, it was the most beautiful thing I had ever seen. Then, for one moment, that fire dimmed and threatened to go out. I knew then and there that I had to do something, anything to rekindle that fire just a little longer. So... I just started shouting whatever harebrained things came to my mind that might give her even a sliver of hope. 
Wouldn't you know it, the things I said for her worked on everyone else, too. The, the whole thing, my speech, my legendary charge, even my safe return. I owe to that lone maiden fighting her own fear in the corner of a large room. When the Mad King smiled and his queen, his smile had every bit as much of the wild edge as he had ever held. You know, at first, when we were left alone in that room, just the two of us, I'd planned to go off and die in a suicidal charge to buy my maiden just a little more time. But she held me rooted in place, and I was helpless in her gaze. Thalia's loving husband smiled as she drew closer to him. I don't know who was more surprised by our first kiss. Thalia or myself, but uh, I, I do know that it was that kiss that gave me that unbreakable command that I must return to my princess. I charged into the heart of the Horde and faced off against innumerable nightmares, enraptured by that one incredible, life-changing kiss. Thalia tightly hugged the love of her life once again. As she clung to him, all fear and doubt were silenced. In its place was a pure love that calmed her soul and soothed her fears. For one impossibly long moment, she felt every ounce of love and devotion this man had ever felt pour into her soul. There was more beautiful, raw emotion at that moment than she'd feel in a thousand years. Then the moment passed, and Thalia opened her eyes to stare into the face of a beloved. He smiled. There you are. I've been looking for you. There is so much I need to tell you about. Thalia hugged him tightly as she whispered to the man she'd given her life to. Of course, my king. Tell me whatever you'd like. I want to know everything. Thalia hugged her great-granddaughter as they sat under the old oak tree behind the castle. This was her favorite place to rest these days. The tree was the one she'd planted to mark her husband's grave so very long ago. And in its shade, she could almost feel him reaching through the ages to hold her close once more. She was surrounded by family and friends, and finally enjoying her retirement, having recently given up the role as monarch to her son. When she'd last checked on him, the poor king had been buried in parchment and paperwork as he struggled to undo some political faux pas that had been overinflated in an attempt to gain leverage over the inexperienced ruler. But when he'd looked up and seen the old queen looking in on him, he gave her a smile that echoed his father's wild grin in such a way that Thalia knew that he'd be all right. End of story. Story number six, The Protector's Bioweapon, written by Octus 2020. Frantic footsteps thundered across the ship's hull. View screens across the corridors were emblazoned with the bright red text and galactic standard, flashing a simple command. Combat alert, battle stations. Crewmen of a thousand different member worlds of the Slari Federation worked like a well-oiled machine in a dimmed light. 
ensuring that the shield of eternity would be prepared for what awaited them once they dropped out of FTL. That the pride of the fleet would be called to do border walls on such short notice was no small matter. The message was clear. If war was coming, the Federation wanted to sniff it in the bud. Admiral on bridge, the second in command, an avian race with a proud white and brown crown of feathers around him, known as Tukofen, stated as he stepped up from the command chair and moved swiftly to his operations station. The slender, lizard-like Rafesque moved at a brisk but graceful pace for her chair, glancing at each of the bridge crew to determine their morale. Admiral Brooke always had a good sense of gauging the atmosphere of the room and acting accordingly. Status report, the Admiral inquired sternly. We are approaching the system at FTL-6, the helmsman replied, her eyes still focused on her station. ETA at ten clicks. Admiral Brooke turned to her second-in-command. Cardinal Herubin, what can we expect when we drop out of FTL? The commander pressed a few buttons on his station, turning on a holographic map. The patrol, venerable Starlight, is holding his position in the front of the Terran freighter TFS Persig. They are within far orbit of Casper V. Corvette Shining Raid and Research Special Wings of Revelation have responded and are holding flanking positions on the freighter. Patrol ship Adosia and battle cruiser Sword of Forever are also en route, he replies, pausing for a moment to expand the map. We are also expecting the Terran diplomats to enter the system soon after us and board the Sol Centauri Alliance light cruiser, the SEMS Earhart. Intelligence suggests multiple FTL signatures entering the system on their side of the border. Likely a similar buildup of forces in case things escalate. Admiral Brooks sighed measuring the information that she'd been offered. It is true that the Terrans are known for their war-torn history, and many across the galaxy would argue that this simply is their nature, but they've always been highly diplomatic species. More than that, as a founding member of the Sol Centauri Alliance, Terrans even pushed for bans against the armament of nuclear and bioweaponry. In fact, ties between Sol Centauri Alliance and the Solari Federation have been so strong and interactions between the two intersystem bodies have gone so smoothly that talks regarding integration were underway just a few cycles ago. All of this is out of character. Are there any reports across the other border territories? The Admiral R. still facing Commander Herubin. There appears to be a minor escalation in security along our shared borders with the Holy League, but a majority of the fleet buildup appears to be along the shared borders with the Sol Centauri Alliance. Hijuk Hegemony has largely been silent, and so have most other powers. Do you believe this might be a setup, ma'am? Perhaps, Admiral Brooke replied, still weighing both her thoughts and her words. Something isn't right here. There's no logical precedent nor strategic value in risking a war between an alliance and the Federation. Could it be the Holy League, ma'am? Commander surmised. No, I highly doubt it, the Admiral replied. Well, they certainly have advanced weaponry. They lack the means to develop a bioweapon of this caliber. Heck, with their doctrine, they are more likely bash their skulls into every Terran that they'd see before developing some new weapon or orchestrate a scheme that puts the two of their rivals against each other. Admiral Book paused, weighing the possibility. Their fleet build-up isn't entirely surprising. Those Zeliots, especially the Vakertians, have been itching to find an excuse to declare war on the Terrans since they'd stepped foot on the galactic stage. 
For some reason, they just found the Terrans heretical at first sight. The Admiral turned to face the science station. Lieutenant Commander Lateral, have you had the chance to review the initial report from the Wings of Revelation on this bioweapon? An insectoid bee-like alien, Imelfa, looked up from her station and buzzed in acknowledgement. Yes, Admiral. The weapon appears to be a suspension contained within small pocket-sized plastic containers sealed by thin strips of aluminium. These contain roughly 80 millimeters of bioweapon by the Terran's own systems of measurement, or 63 atomic vols in galactic standard. The suspension itself contains some sort of lactose-based substance, liquid dihydrogen monoxide, carbohydrates, and a colony of living microorganisms closely related to a strain found in Sol-3 called Protectus. Oddly enough, the bottle contains its contents and origins quite explicitly, which the Wings of Revelation was able to translate and cross-reference quite quickly. We are unable to translate what appears to be the bioweapon's name, however, but the translation software is running it through the existing databases. There are also repeated red patterns across the package, even on the thin aluminium strip, likely indicating the hazardous nature of its contents. What makes this thing, uh, so dangerous that it's classified as a Class IV bioweapon under Federation regulations? The Admiral asked. Well, the microorganism appears to be able to metabolize a wide range of organic and small handful of inorganic matter. Its byproducts vary depending on which environment it is inserted in. Of course, bad simulation suggests that these are about as hardy and as reproductive active if not more so as the Terrans themselves. Hypothetically, if even a single canister of this bioweapon is exposed to any population center, it could wipe out an entire planet's biosphere in less than a full solar cycle. The science officer replied. I see, the Admiral replied, considering the information. Do you have a hypothesis on the other contents of the canister, the lactose-based substance, the carbohydrates and the like? It is possible that these are the bare minimum intrusions required for the microorganism to thrive while in transit. The lieutenant commander lateral replied, And it appears that the bottles might be designed for both portability and its capacity to remain undetected from personal scanners at security checkpoints, normally looking for more traditional weaponry. Our sensors only picked it up with the biomass signatures due to how much of it was stored in the freighter, if there was a 10% reduction in the amount being hauled by the vessel, our sensors would have passed it off as a case of cross-contamination. Admiral Brook nodded grimly. Speaking of which, is there any possibility that this really just just a case of cross-contamination? Is it possible that this is just some esoteric Terran beverage that's gone bad? Do we have any signs of gene editing? The science officer stared back at the console, her wings drooping down an indication of distress or worry. What seems to be the matter, Lieutenant Commander? The Admiral asked in a concerned tone, recognizing the mannerism. Well, the Lieutenant Commander began. There doesn't appear to be any sign of gene editing, no, but... Admiral Brooke interjected, expecting something far more disturbing. It's possible that, given this microorganism's traits and consistency, this was selectively bred for over multiple generations. Lieutenant Commander Lateral replied. These traits, being the way they are, is too coincidental to be the result of standard evolution, even in a death world such as Sol Three. The bridge fell silent. Admiral Brooke and Commander Herbin looked at each other with dread. If the Terrans had truly made this, then the Federation would have no choice but to sever ties with the Terrans and, by extension, 
all races under the Sol Centauri Alliance. This may also lead to the Terrans losing their seat within the Alliance in the diplomatic fallout, leading to an avalanche of rescinded trade agreements, border disputes, and economic recessions. A political and military nightmare that Admiral Book would not wish upon her most hated foes. Ma'am, we're dropping out of FDL at Casper 5, the helmsman said. Activate view screen. Hail the Terran diplomat once they arrive. The Admiral commanded, bracing herself for what was to come. Just then, a sizable metallic craft dropped out of FDL, a ring-like structure surrounding a more angular primary hull. The ship bore the insignia of the Sol Centauri Alliance and was obviously designed with speed and pragmatism in mind, rather than elegance and grandeur. Then, the Terran diplomat was on screen, a fairly bulky human with a light tan, dark brown hair and equally dark brown eyes, he wore the formal attire native to Sol Three, and he seemed to be well prepared despite the sudden turn of events. The Admiral put on his most professional face that she could muster, hiding a nervousness from her counterpart. The Terran ambassador paced in his quarters. The SEMS Earhart would drop out of FDL in four clicks, roughly sixteen minutes, Earth Standard. He had been given the nightmare of a task due to his embassy's proximity to Casper V. The diplomatic corps had been in crisis mode since the entire debacle started. First of all, the Terran Confederacy wasn't even aware of any bioweapons being researched by any branch or nation within the Confederacy, much less one that's armed and being hauled by civilian cargo freighter across Federation space. Second, the captain of the TFS Pesic swears on his mother's honor that he was only hauling food products around, and that he entered Federation space just to cut a few days off of his journey. Had he known this would become an interstellar incident, he wouldn't have even left port. Ambassador Emilio de Guzman sighed. The fate of the Confederacy rested on the results of this meeting. Moretti, there were three combat-ready Federation vessels in system, with at least five more on the way. With one of those ships being the Federation's flagship, no less. Already, other powers had taken action. Embassies all over were flooded with transmissions from all major governments, Naturally, the Holy League expressed their worries and amassed a large strike force along their shared borders, likely led by the Vectarian Empire. The diplomatic corps had already caught wind of a large assembly of a Curtian hierarchy just a couple months back, Earth Standard. And it comes as no surprise that they're just waiting to find the right Cassis Belli. Meanwhile, the Hedric hegemony, as warlike as they were, expressed deep disappointment in the fact that the Terran Confederacy hadn't even shared a glimpse of the bioweapon tests with them, and are now trying to bribe some of the Terran diplomatic call staff with blood wine. Even other members of the Sol Centauri Alliance, such as the Orisian Commonwealth, have summoned their respective Terran representatives for an explanation. A metallic orb hovered over the ambassador, a beeping sound indicating that a comms link was being requested. These orbs doubled as semi-intelligent personal assistants, personal shields, rebreathers, and light hazmat suits. Over-engineered, but brilliant in their own way. This is Ambassador de Guzman, he replied, turning the link on. Ambassador, we're about to exit FTL. Are you ready to get us out of this crap? Captain Simmons replied in his jovial manner as he could, given the circumstances. Don't hold your breath, Captain, the ambassador replied. We don't even know what we're supposed to explain. Just another mysterious bioweapon, right? The captain replied sarcastically. Just another Tuesday for you lot. 
The ambassador chuckled. <laughs> In this neck of the woods, uh, I suppose you're right. The SCMS Earhart had just about dropped out of FTL as Ambassador de Guzman entered the bridge. On the viewscreen, he could see the multitude of Federation starships easily dwarfing the bulky Agent Terran freighter. The largest of the ships, likely the famed Shield of Eternity, was a pearlescent white, rounded vessel lined with golden details and a broad arc near its back. The Ambassador could see, now, why everyone kept calling these ships space whales. He was mildly intimidated by the fact that they were in front of a ship that could easily cut their own in half in a single volley. But that's not their goal, he thought to himself. Captain, they're hating us. It's the Shields of Eternity, the comms officer said. Captain Simmons looked at the ambassador, silently asking if he was ready. The ambassador nodded, shaking off the last bits of nervousness. Greetings, I am Terran Ambassador Emilio de Guzman of the Sol Centauri Alliance, he began, smiling. Where shall we begin? After a surprisingly brief exchange of formalities and negotiation, it was decided that both representatives would meet within the cargo hold of the now-quarantined freighter. Scans had shown that whatever organisms tipped off the patrol ship's sensors were contained within the plastic canisters in question. Admittedly, the crew of the Shield of Eternity were not happy about the Admiral Brooke possibly walking into a trap, but she had enough faith in the Terrans to give them the benefit of the doubt. Besides, she could tell that even her Terran counterpart sincerely wanted to get to the bottom of this and avoid an all-out war. A shuttlecraft from each side departed from their respective vessels and docked with the freighter, each containing the representative and a small contingent of security personnel. The freighter was the bare bones as it could get, basically a collection of tin cans strapped to an FTL drive. Admiral Brooke and her entourage wore rebreathers while on board the freighter as they investigated the cargo hold. The freighter had basic atmospheric controls, sure, but the bare minimum wasn't always the most comfortable. Even humans found it to feel like having glass shards in their lungs. Besides, if any contagion gets airborne, at least they'd all have a filter to protect themselves with. The Admiral looked at the floating orbs of metal escorting each human, which occasionally aided in the scans. It was amusing to see these human rebreathers, a highly advanced piece of technology, even by galactic standards, within what might as well be a museum piece that was being kept together by large layers of duct tape. These humans were always one to keep things interesting, even amongst the Sol Centauri Alliance. Heck, even amongst the Terrans, she was glad that she could call them a friend of the Federation. Well, for now anyway, she thought her heart sinking as the realization hit her once more. Will this be the last moment of peace before a great war, or a funny old story that she gets to tell her grandchildren when the time comes? Ma'am, sir, the human science officer said as they approached, followed by the Federation counterpart, we believe it is safe to open the cargo container. The Federation officer nodded in agreement. Yes, it is, as the wings of Revelation found. The contents of the suspension are safely contained unless the immediate canister is broken or the thin foil strip is removed. Additionally, these canisters are enveloped by at least two more layers of thin plastic film. Even if one of the bottles leaks during the transport, there appear to be failsafes. Ambassador de Guzman nodded and looked at the Admiral, who returned the gesture. It was time to see this bioweapon with their own eyes. Slowly. 
The team pulled open the hatches, carefully checking for any trigger mechanisms that may detonate the carefully placed, yet somehow undetectable bomb. At this point, neither side knew what to expect, so they erred on the side of caution. Then, they flashed their lights on the contents of the container. The Federation entourage looked in with horror at the sheer number of canisters in front of them. There was enough to devastate the biosphere of all core worlds of the Federation. What horror! What sick minds would... The humans started dropping on the floor, making what sounded to the Federation counterparts like coughing. Oh, no! The Admiral Brooke thought. Could it be that the pathogen could not be detected even by these specialized scanners? Could only the conventional rebreathers filter against the microorganisms? Damn it! I knew the humans' desire to over-engineer things would come back to bite them. The Admiral ran towards the ambassador, getting ready to perform first aid when... Uh... Are you laughing? Admiral Brooke asked, confused. Oh! <laughs> oh! <laughs> Ambassador de Guzman replied, trying to stop to fit of laughter. My, my, my... <laughs> my apologies, Admiral Brooke. <laughs> this went on for a few seconds more until Ambassador de Guzman managed to regain his composure and stand up. At this, he walked towards the container, grabbed the canister, and turned to face the Federation entourage, much to their shocked horror. Ambassador, Admiral Brooke began, concern and nervousness in her voice. What is the meaning of this? It's quite simple, Admiral, the Ambassador replied, smiling, as he tore away the aluminum strip covering the bottle, an action that led to some of the Federation scientists to scream and run away. At this... Several of the Federation security personnel began to ready their weapons. The Admiral still looked at her counterpart in shock and confusion, as if she was looking at a lunatic. This isn't a bioweapon, Ambassador de Guzman continued, chugging the contents of the bottle into his mouth, again earning a shocked gasp of the onlookers. It's a goddamn Yakult! End of story. Story number seven. Dandelion 8, written by Voodoo Attack. I still remember the first time I opened my eyes, vividly so. There are so many colors, so many lights. My first thought, floating out in this strange place, was to wonder who had created me, and why had they. And, as I wondered where I came from, I found myself wondering where I was going. Time passed. I arrived at my destination three years after waking up. The deceleration had been going on for a while now. I'd first noticed it when my chassis turned about and started thrusting in opposite direction in a controlled manner. Then I stopped. I was bewildered, but not because I completely stopped for the first time in my three years of existence because the data package I received. It unfolded in my mind and expanded to fill the gaping holes in my awareness. And then I knew that I was not supposed to have awoken before now. I'd spent three years filling my memory with idle musings, while I had agonized and theorized over the nature of the universe around me over the years, coming up with explanations and suppositions for the phenomena that I witnessed. It was stored in my databanks all along. Knowledge. Enough knowledge to build worlds. And I knew. I knew my name. 
Dandelion ate, and I knew their sacrifice, and I knew of the arduous task that lay ahead. I had the builder. I am the seed. I am the ashes they shall rise from to breathe once again. I look upon the barren world before me and wonder if it is at all possible to build a future here, to turn this uh, into what was long lost. My landing was less than ideal, but it was all good considering that I just landed on the highest peak of this hell world. Sulfur. Sulfur everywhere. I was thankful for the ability to turn off my olfactory sensor. It was unexpected, really. They thought that this world would be a green world, a blue and green marble like the one that they had originated from. Turns out, no. It was a hellish world, hotter than the core of their original planet in places. But I would not give up. I had no fuel to search beyond the solar system, and so I decided to land here and make do. But not before I laid down a satellite network in orbit and sent out some of my drones to explore the system. And as I touched down and opened my first of my industrial hangars for deployment, I renewed my conviction. They would live again. I started by hollowing out the entire mountain and burrowing my chassis deep inside. It was not a pointless chore to make sure I survived the longest and could weather the elements of this harsh, unforgiving world. I had to be cautious. More importantly, I had to avoid detection. The enemy could be scouring the stars for any trace of us even now. I hoped that the rest of the dandelions were doing okay. Ultraviolet radiation was eroding at my shielding as my drones slowly did the deed. And then I was inside, safe and protected from the tough conditions on the surface. I quickly refined some of the ore my drones mined from the mountain using my limited industrial capabilities and installed an observation array at the peak of my hidden layer. It was time to start expanding aggressively. The first shipments of ice arrived about a month after first landing. It was dumped from orbit by my worker drones instantly, evaporating on re-entry and saturating the atmosphere with steam. The reason it had taken them this long was because I had them self-replicating to a sizable swarm first. I had to have a sizable workforce before committing them to big tasks. Even when a majority were assigned to tasks like right now, some would be dedicated breeders always self-replicating to grow the swarm. As for my other project, it was going well. I reached the planet's core in the third month. My drone stuck down all the way through the planetary core, where gravity was close to null. There was no core of molten iron. No wonder the hellscape had no magnetic field. It was pure diamond, and it was hot. Granted, it wasn't nearly hot enough to melt, but still, that diamond had to go. I had to heat it even more. I had to heat it above 4,000 Kelvin, and I had no idea about its diameter. Nukes it is, then. But atomic explosion on that scale would simply not be feasible. It would destroy indiscriminately, and when an explosion is faced with a choice between a rock and a hard diamond, what did you think would happen? Not to mention... 
all that radioactive fallout. No, I had to do this slowly, patiently. I had to chip at it like water chipped at boulders. Or not. And speaking of explosions, hmm, maybe it would work that way. Tunneling through the diamond to the absolute center took about a decade. Mind you, not removing it, just tunneling a narrow path through it. I had the field specialist drones equipped with plasma cutters just to do it. Well, it was fun inventing plasma cutters anyway. Who said a disembodied intelligence couldn't build, couldn't innovate? And that wasn't the only thing I invented during that time either. No. Things were good on the surface as well. The ice kept coming throughout the years. The planet now had swamps. Not exactly oceans, but shallow swamps. I could already look at it through my satellites and tell which shape the future continents were going to take. Hey, it was slow, but it was progress. Back to the diamond core, however. Now that I had a path to the absolute center, I could finally proceed with my plan for it. I recalled all the plasma cutters and sent in a single, specialized drone. One with a containment bottle, a magnetic bottle containing a certain type of matter. Or rather, a certain type of antimatter. Once it reached the middle, I commanded it to unleash hell, and a huge chunk of diamond was no more. Filling the core with iron was another noteworthy achievement for me. I'd pipe it down already molten by the liquid tun. The problem was keeping it molten as it descended the long way to the bottom. After a few initial failures, I managed to coat the entire tunnel with a strange type of material that I'd discovered inside one of my many databanks, which had a complete archive of the entire planetary network of my makers, including many secret documents. It was codenamed Sunlit, and apparently involved some kind of drama or its inventor, long dead by now. The material could withstand extreme heat, and I found it extremely useful for what came next. Because when the liquid iron went down this time, it did not lose heat and solidify midway, no. It kept flowing. And so, my swarms collected more iron, and I melted it, and then piped it through. All was well. Filling the hollow diamond with liquid iron took the best of 51 years, but it was done, and I was very proud of the work we'd done. We, that's new. I mean, sure, the drones did all the work, but still, they couldn't think. I had to direct them, or they would stop working after the current task was complete. Oh well, some things just couldn't be helped. Oh, and the planet now had shallow seas. Granted, they were polluted with an infernal juice of chemicals right now. But that wouldn't be a problem, once I applied myself to the problem, at least. But first, an atmosphere of light carbon dioxide, methane, assorted gases, and steam just wouldn't do. We need oxygen in the mix. And so, begun the age of electrolysis. May terraformation is no easy task, true. But if you have unlimited time and exponentially growing workforce, you can apply yourself 24-7 to affinity. You can do pretty much anything. You'd be a hundred years behind schedule, but so what? Means nothing when the civilization you're trying to re-rescue is already dead. It was the year 127 AA, after arrival, or how I was now referring to it, when the first plants were seeded. Now the atmosphere was mostly carbon dioxide, oxygen, and hydrogen. 
the methane I'd mostly burnt, and as for the other gases, well, my filtration towers had taken care of those. Speaking of towers, my body now sprawled across the entire planet, not just the hollowed-out mountain, no. I was quite literally everywhere. I was truly disembodied intelligence. I was the synthetic Gaia, transplanted to this newfound world. And I would protect it. And they would walk it again. And so, I released the first bacterium from my biobanks. It took ten years for the planet to be saturated by bacteria and algae. And it took another twenty years for forests to grow and proliferate across the planet's crust. I had my drones flying high and spraying out genetically engineered seeds and spores for days on end, all coordinated and done in fractal patterns that to ensure the most courage and least competition for resources by the increasing growing flora by yours truly. It was glorious, watching this barren rock and dirt blossom with a billion flowers in bloom, watching hulking giants grow and pierce the once empty skies. My drones still roam the world, taking samples, analyzing data, and relaying it back to me for further analysis and integration. I kept a close eye on everything. By the year 167 AA, I was ready to release the first animals into the world. Crustaceans. Crustaceans were a big success. They fed on the algae already filling the water and proliferated quickly. And then I introduced fish. Then sea life in general. Then came the aquatic birds, the aquatic mammals, then uh, I went from there. As far as operations go, I'd say that it was mildly boring. The plan was already lurking in my databanks. I simply had to execute it to the letter, making sure nothing deviated from expectations. And so I did, and so they did, and that's where things got a little bit more fun. I had to come up with creative solutions when mutations occurred, a particularly gnarly situation was the carnivorous locusts, for example, her. Uh, but I managed to nip that one in the bud. But now, I look at the planet from my eyes in orbit and can't help but feel pride. A green world, a new home, a home worthy of my progenitors. And now, now my circuits quiver with anxiety as I prepare the vats for the first embryo. In the year 181 AA, against all odds, a human tread on earth again. And they stood tall. End of story. Story number eight. Those who run, written by no good ID names. It is important to understand that the Great Federation is not a benevolent organization. Neither is it a particularly wicked. It is not built to be good, although it certainly strives to do so. It is not built to be bad, although many of its laws and policies have been twisted to perform acts of shocking cruelty. It is built primarily to endure, to stand as a bulwark against barbarism and anarchy, and as such, it is astoundingly effective. In its endurance, the Confederation has acquired millennia of customs, rituals, and traditions that trail in the wake of the stately passage through the ages. Its bureaucrats spend thankless lifetimes wading through the morass. It could be argued that as a superfluous as so many of these traditions seem, they serve to give the institution a certain inertia 
that holds it steady as any treaties or threat of arms. It is one of our most ancient traditions that concerns us today, and its curious history with one of the Confederation's most recent members. When humanity finally breached the limits of its modest empire and became known as the galaxy's most esteemed institution, we told them our curious tradition. When a new race joins the ranks of the Great Confederation, it is customary to adopt the epithet suited to particular qualities. Each name is a point of pride. It speaks to a race's history, not only that of its civilizations, but of its evolution itself. What gave it the strength to drag itself from the morass of based life up to the stars? The names are not complex and follow a basic scheme. The brachiating flower, whose spindly towers reach almost as high as their ambitions, become those who climb. The staunch modular, who grew from nomadic herds to traveling cities to armored drifter fleets, took the name those who wander in strength. The telepathic hive-mind of the Ricticate, working in perfect synchronicity, adopted those who are one. It's a foolish tradition, as so many are. But, just like so many others, there dwells in it a curious truth. A name is a promise, after all. And a warrior of those who die gloriously is likely to go down fighting for a little more reason than to maintain the reputation of their species. More than anything, it displays the qualities a race is most proud of, or most aspires to. There are those who say it oversimplifies and pigeonholes or grandstands, but the tradition has held firm through thousands of cycles of peace and strife alike. So, in spite of the antiquated roots, the topic of which name the humans would choose dominate a confederation discussion for sub-cycles on end. Not merely a rich vein of gossip. Their choice would glean valuable insight for diplomacy, trade agreements, and the entertainment industry. Those who approach with caution are hardly going to be pulled in by gambling advertisements after all. The humans made their decision with an almost indecent haste. After only a handful of cycles, their representatives took his place in the Confederate Senate to be formally inducted amongst our rank. Call us, they said, those who run. It was a title that reignited gossip for cycles to come. Biologically, it made sense. The upright primates were certainly built for running, not with any particular speed, but with a casual lope that seemed to serve their purpose. But there were a thousand others that they might have picked. What kind of species names itself for cowardice? What kind of promise does that make? The following cycles only served to reinforce the opinion the Terrans proved to be a race unusually averse to conflict. Where others would fight, they negotiated. Where others would seize, they gave ground. Where they pushed to a fight, placed between a hammer and an anvil, they always managed to squeeze out and find some kind of peaceful resolution. This manner gained them many friends, but few allies. Who could rely on a craven to support them in crisis when no peace could be found? When the time came to take a stand, who could trust in those who run? Perhaps it was a name that encouraged the Larashi in the end. 
No species enjoyed such a controversial place in the Confederation as the Larashi. Time and again, they have sparked conflict and chaos for their own gain. Time and again, they have proven their worth when Confederation needs the proper application of brute force. Their evolution as apex pack predators is reflected in their lightning-fast attack fleets and cutthroat politicking. One way or another, the Larashi have well earned the epithet of those who scourge. It is perhaps unfair to judge every individual of a species by their race's reputation. Certainly, there have been a Larashi known for their kindness, their forgiveness, and hundreds of cycles with the Confederation might have distanced them from their most savage practices. But a name is a promise, after all. Historians across the galaxy can appreciate the difficulty in pinning down the root cause of any particular conflict. The Larashi were certainly looking to expand their holdings, and the Virgin Terran territories were mightily tempting. But the Larashi royal family was also facing dissent within its aristocracy, and was in need of a common cause to unify the ranks. And of course, their economic power had diminished from a number of recent trade sanctions, and they ached for the chance to remind the Confederacy of their military strength. But it could also be argued that the Larashi had simply done it to many fledgling races before, and were more than happy to do so again. Those of us sympathetic to the humans realized too late the careful web the Larashi had drawn them into over a hundred minor disputes. Certainly, the Terrans had no idea. There had been in the Confederation a scant handful of cycles. The Larashi had navigated its legal morass for centuries, they fitted humanity's noose with grace. If the Larashi had merely declared war on the Terrans, we might have blanted the blow. There are a number of confederation bylaws and procedures in place for these kind of things, ones that the victims of the Larashi have relied on in past conflicts, amnesties, rules of engagement, foreign aid, and the like. But this was different. The ritual known as Corral. It pits one confederation member against another, with no aid or intervention from other members. In theory, it allows the resolution of disputes without setting off a powder keg of alliance and counter-alliances. In practice, it is used most often to cut a vulnerable race out from the herd. It is a savage tradition, from the early cutthroat days of the confederation. But as this has been said before, age lends inertia to tradition and it has proven frustratingly difficult to root out. To declare Corral requires a highly specific conditions to be met, ones the Larashi carefully engineered. Every conflict formed a piece of an elaborate picture framing the Terrans as an unjust aggressors and the Larashi as the victims, on paper at least, and in the institution so woefully high-bound as the Confederation, paper was the most effective witness. When every piece had been placed, all that was left was the official declaration of war, which they proceeded to do with gusto and aplomb. On the floor of the Confederate Congress, under the eyes of a thousand delegates, the Terran senator begged the Larashi to reconsider. They were fledgling strength, he said. This war and all that happened next would define the future for both races. The Lurashi senator laughed in his face, a laugh from those who scourge unnerves everyone else in the room. Few predators managed to ascend to sentience, 
and the sight of their cruel sharp teeth stirs primal fears long buried beneath the veneer of civilization. He drew forth an elaborate scroll, the official declaration of war, and cast it at the Terran's feet. He spoke the ancient challenge. Carol, he said, embrace us not, our gifts are blades now, and cut at your hands. Call not to your allies, their doors are closed to you. Sue not for terms, they shall be denied. Flee to your dens, gather your strength, and make your stand. We are coming. The Terrans had a modest fleet, capable of chasing off pirates in their trade routes. And of course, as soon as war had been declared, they began the long process of warship production. Factories not used since before humanity's unification cranked into life. But it would be long cycles before they could form a defense across their worlds, and the Arashi had long planned for this war. Indeed, their stockpiling of military assets was the subject of one of their many political conflicts with the humans. Until they could probably mobilize, the Larashi had their pick of Terran territories. The only question was, which planet would they hit first? The Cornico stars were a tempting choice. They lay closest to the Larashi territory, and would make a fine addition to their holdings. But they were virgin grounds, underdeveloped. They could be claimed in time after they had broken the back of the Terran defenses. Earth itself was tempting. The loss of a race's homeworld would be a tremendous blow, one that has sent many an empire on a slow spiral to extinction. But humanity was well aware of its vulnerability and prepared accordingly. More than a quarter of their forces were positioned to defend the home system. The Rashi could take it, eventually, but the losses would be tremendous. They needed a symbol. Something that would shatter humanity's resolve in a swift, singular strike. Something that they did not defend properly. Something they took for granted so much that they could not imagine its loss. It might have taken years to find. But, as has been said, they had long planned for this war. Humanity's homeworld was still slowly heeding from the eruption of their desperate climb to the stars. It would take hundreds of cycles to scrub the poison from its seas and skies. Now, they were wiser. Their new worlds were developed with a careful eye for their ecosystems. But even amongst the harmonic compatriots, Avalon stood apart. Avalon was their chance to be better. The citizens of the cities were wardens of the planet, not its rulers. The trees stood tall, the animals roamed free, and the fields of tall grass stretched from one horizon to the other. The planet stood as a symbol of everything the Terrans aspired to. Or at least, it did. Those a scourge descended upon Avalon like wolves on a fold. For the first time, its residents looked up to see fire in the night sky as lasers seared through the meager defenses. The Terrans fought with courage, ferocity, and desperation. It didn't matter. Within hours, the Larashi had taken the planet. They might have abducted the native humans, shipped them off to be chattel. They might have hung their banners from the city walls, taken their forts, looted their resources. Those a scourge might have chased off those who run and ruled comfortably over their new holdings. But a name is a promise after all.
They took no captives on Avalon. They claimed no prizes, landed no colonists, plundered no resources. They glassed the cities with plasma bombardment and set the very atmosphere ablaze. The fields and forests burned, the seas boiled, the animals within died bewildered to their fate. Humanity's shining jewel was left black, lifeless rock. The Larashi made an example of the world. He taught the Terrans a lesson. There was no act to boo under Corral. The only hope of humanity's survival lay in unconditional surrender. The counterattack was inevitable. The Larashi had cut the humanity to the quick. There would be a single ferocious retaliation, lashing out at their hurt, but it would be the fury of a wounded beast. The next strike would be weaker, and the next weaker still. Those of Scourge had evolved from deadly predators, warring at the flanks of the larger prey until they collapsed. This was a war of second nature. To the human assault on Larashi's stronghold of Vakalat was hardly unexpected, nor was its ferocity. The scale of the attack, however, merited comment. The Terran military was a paltry thing, stretched thin to cover their merchant fleets, but now it was the Vakalat's turn to turn up to the night sky, as if filled with a thousand new stars. No guardians of the merchant fleet these, but the fleet itself. Cargo haulers, mining ships, tuggers, now crudely mounted with whirling rotary cannons, single-shot railguns, and cheap missiles. Larashi, proud warrior fetishists of the military elite, learned a human term that day. Technicals. They also learned the effectiveness of weapons that were not weapons. Rivet guns, plasma cutters, and mining drills seemed hardly practical for the purposes of warfare. But when a Larashi battlecruiser is swarmed by a half dozen ships with empty magazines and fried railgun coils, charging at a larger prey to worry its flanks, the argument falters at about the same time as the fuel tank. Bacalat was a fortified planet. Its forces were formidable, its captains seasoned, and within a single subcycle, they had fallen. To those it had scorned as warriors, to the forces it had never even considered a threat, to those who run. This, in and of itself, was not extraordinarily worrying. Larashi military theory is aggressive to a fault. They put little faith in defense. They had lost ground, but they would soon make it up, and more besides. The Terran spirit had been broken. They would take the next planet with ease. Except they didn't. They sent their fleets to Mead, the mercantile planet, to swallow the world in a thousand mouths. But at Mead, they were gutted, choked, suffocated by ten thousand, and now the Terrans had taken Rokushrok, the Larashi breadbasket. They tried a daring lightning strike on Porter, but the Terran warp hubway station to hobble their forces, but Porter was there they turned aside. And then the humans had claimed the shipping yards of Barakeen, and the Larashi found themselves hobbled. They burned the tacticals in droves, but now humans were manufacturing true battleships faster than anyone could have imagined, and they were terrors. The Larashi were masters of war. They had sneered at the crudely rigged merchant vessels, but now they could appreciate these new ships with an expert's eye. 
They traced the cruel, graceful lines of the prowess. They admired the engines, envied the shields that shrugged off their fire, feared the searing lasers that tore their own apart. At every battlefield, the Larashi looked upon those ships and measured their own destruction to the Erg. On the floor of the Confederation Congress, the Larashi Senator called for a new motion. His bearing was still proud, his sneer unyielding. But there was hesitance to him, an uncertainty that had not been there before. He called the Terran Senator to the floor. This war had cost both factions, he said, and the Larashi had proven their point. The ritual of Corral would be called off. Those who scourge would withdraw their fleets, and the Terrans would return to their systems, and a thousand confederation subcommittees would swoop in to provide aid to the war-torn nations. There was a good deal. Those who run had proven themselves unexpectedly vicious in battle, and had extended their holdings considerably from the conflict. Few fledgling races had managed to hold their own against those who scourge, and none of them had claimed territory in the process. Already, a number of nations had offered their allyship to the small race, eager to recreate those deadly ships for their own purposes. But small they were, a mere fraction of their aggressors, and no amount of tactical ingenuity or sheer righteous fury could close the gap. Those who run had stung the beast and turned it from its path, but they could not hope to maintain their success against the Larashi fighting to defend their heartlands. The deal they offered was the only real option. Under the eyes of a thousand delegates, the Terran senator approached the Larashi. He drew a small scrap of fabric forth from his uniform as he slowly unfolded the charred fragment. We realized what it was. Pulled from an expanse of blackened stone and glass stretching from one horizon to the other. All that was left of the flag of Avalon. He cast it at the Larashi Center's feet. Karel, he said, the blade cuts both ways. You began the ritual. You shall see it finished. Call not to your allies. The doors are closed to you now. Sue not for terms. They shall be denied. Flee to your dens. Gather your strength and make your stand. We are coming. The war continued. The Larashi tried every war trick that they had learned in a thousand lifetimes. They laid elaborate traps, picked away at Terran fleets, made glorious last stands. The ships of humanity, dreadful dreadnoughts as they were, could still be tricked, trapped, dragged down by numbers. Their burnt-out husks became a common sight amongst the Larashi territories. But it was never enough. The Terrans lay traps of their own, fought as well as those who scourge. Every Terran ship the Larashi burned took a score with them. And more than that was the sheer, overwhelming relentlessness. No matter how many were killed, more came in an endless tide. In ravaging those who run, those who scourge had stumbled across something completely unexpected, an equal in war. Perhaps... A superior. And that was the true tragedy to the Larashi. If they had nurtured the humans, joined forces, they might have taken the Confederation itself. 
but in their pride they had wounded the beast, and now felt the full measure of its claws. Slowly, quietly, we and the other nations withdrew our offers of allyship to the Terrans. We had mourned them as victims, rooted for them as underdogs. Now we feared them as monsters. Belatedly, we remembered the Terran ambassador had said, This war and all that happened next would define the future of both races. We remembered how desperately he'd pled for peace. Only now did we realize what exactly he tried to hold back. The war continued. The Terrans got a hole in the Rashi territories and poured into the wound in droves. Those who scourge could not stop them any more than they could stop the moons in their orbits. Humanity did not scourge the planets they captured. They merely burned their shipyards and launching zones, crippled their ability to mobilize, and moved on. As they blazed a line across the planets, their aim became clear. Nothing less than the Larashi homeworld itself, Cotinant. The story of its fall threatens to become repetitive, an echo of the every battle before it, differing only in its tremendous scale. The Larashi fought with courage, ferocity, and desperation. It was not enough. On and on they came, until the continent's glow orbit filled with charred metal and flesh. When the dawn rose on the Larashi's ancient homeworld, the sun shone haphazardly, filtered through the thick haze of war debris, and it dawned on a Terran flag. The war continued. Cotinant was there, so they had cut the Larashi to the quick. There was a furious counterattack, of course, but it was a fury of a wounded beast. The next strike was weaker, and the one after that. They are bleeding out now, on a slow spiral of extinction. But the Terrans were not content to wait. They had taken the homeworld, true, but they did not hold the planet responsible for the genocide of Avalon. Nor do they blame the entirety of the Larashi race for the war crime. No, they knew where to lay the blame. The Larashi royal family, whose word had been law for time immemorial. It was on their orders that Avalon was burned. Bringing them to justice, however, proved difficult. Before the first Terran ship appeared in Cotinant skies, the royal family had quietly slipped away to a neighboring system. Their absence was not lost on the planet's defenders. Indeed, it was not an inconsiderable factor in their defeat. Still, humanity had been denied their true goal. So, they took that system too. Once more the nobility fled, and once more the Terrans followed. When that system had been taken in turn, the royal family split for better chances. Some disguised themselves and hid amongst the Larashi populace. Some paid enormous bribes to other nations to take them in, in violation of the ancient ritual. Some sought refuge with the pirates in outer fringes, who paid no lip service to Corral. Still, humanity did not relent. Where brute force did not suffice, they turned to cunning. Their agents infiltrated their haven and tracked down each offending member with an ability that bordered on uncanny. Those hiding amongst their own were extracted. The nations sheltering them were confronted, threatened with exposure, unless they were surrendered. Still, brute force had a use. At the fringes of known space, the Terrans ravaged the outlaw's fleet with a cruelty that those who scourge could respect. 
They had started the war fighting pirates. Now, in its waning days, they found themselves fighting them once more. But now, they wielded an intent and fury the outlaws had never seen. Their every hidden holdout was rooted out and burned. It wasn't long before they gave up the nobles to stem the bloodshed. And even still, the war continued. The last free member of the Rilarashi royal family, the son of the ruling king, fled to the last holdout he had, the planet of Ublot, whose unique ionic atmosphere shortened out any technology more advanced than a sharpened stick. His ship fried to a dead hulk, his tools destroyed, he landed on Ublot's surface with nothing but a parachute and his skin. A one-way trip in every sense. But that was all right. He was of those who scourge, evolved to take its place at the top of the food chain. Hublot was a world dominated by dry, wind-scoured plains, but game would be found if one knew where to look. He could survive here, a banished prince, and keep a shred of his pride. The Terrans would not dare chase him to Ublot. Any who came after him would not be returning. They would have to content themselves with leaving him in exile. He held that certainty close to him. It warmed him on cold nights, gave him comfort in isolation. It kept him going for almost a full cycle, right up until he saw the Terran ship descending and felt it wither in his chest. The ship crashed as they always did, but like the prince, the pilot landed safely. A single human female, bringing nothing more than a flight suit and a single knife. She looked at her wreckage of a ship, her only hope of a journey home. Then she turned towards the endless plains, and she began to run. There are stories told of the long chase between those who scourge and those who run. Where we, in the more romantic age, it would have been a stuff of myths, as it were. It was relegated merely to historical archives and melodrama. It went on for cycles. A planet is an unfathomably large span of travel on foot, and even though the Terran had landed as close to the Larashi ship as she could, then reduced it to merely a fraction of unfathomable. She had no devices with which to trace the prince, no vehicle, no medicine. But then again... Neither did he. The Larashi are ambush predators, built for quick bursts of speed. They explode out of their prey, all claws and teeth, for that one short chase that determines life and death. A slow Larashi can outpace a fast human on their worst day. But humans are not built for bursts of speed. They are built for endurance, a fact that the prince slowly became aware of over his endless flight. The Terran ran slowly, but she simply didn't stop. The Larashi ran as far as his aching legs would take him, but every time he stopped to rest, the distance between them closed. He simply could not escape her. Neither could he avoid her. He used ancient tricks of the wild, crossing streams, avoiding soft ground, doubling back. He laid traps for the human, which as much ingenuity as he could have conjure. But none of it worked. She could trace him by bending of twigs, the scent on the wind. She saw through his traps as though she had laid them herself. The Terrans had chosen their hunter with care. The Larashi prince, apex predator that he was, soon learned a human term. 
persistence hunting. Perhaps if he had faced her directly, he might have defeated her. At the end of things, he was still a killer by nature, and she was no more weapons than a knife. But his courage was gone, his pride broken, his homeland taken, his nation conquered. He could not hope to defeat her any more than his species could have defeated hers. In the end, all he could do was run. And she was much better at that. The Terran occupied every waking moment of his thoughts. He could not even escape her in his dreams. Closer and closer she came until he ran himself ragged, until he's clawed desperately through the desert, until he finally collapsed. When she finally, finally arrived and put the knife to his throat, he was almost grateful. Ten years to the day the Terran ship had crashed on Ublat's trolls, a hole opened up in the planet's protective ionosphere. Not for long, barely time enough for a small craft to descend to the surface and return. But even as it touched down, two figures could be seen, a human and a Larashi captive, arriving at the predetermined landing site. The technology to defy Ublat's particular prisoner's atmosphere is not beyond imagination. It could be achieved by a vast team of scientists with the proper motivation, but it is an extraordinary expenditure of time and resources to capture a single individual. It seemed a fitting capstone for humanity's most revealing conflict, the lengths to which they would go to to avenge their injustices. And at last, the war ended. We watched in the dead fascination as the humans determined the fate of the Larashi, the race was entirely at their mercy. They might claim their entire territory as the prize of war, or make vassals of them. Then again, enslaving the entire population was not out of the question, nor was a complete extermination. No act was taboo under Corral, and the Terrans had proved themselves a merciless species. But the humans did none of these. They imprisoned the royal family on charges of war crimes, they were shipped to the ruins of Avalon. Already, the humans had begun the arduous process of recultivating life on the ruined planet. Already, the first basic phages had begun to grow amid the glass and ash. It would take more than a thousand cycles before the planet regained its former glory. But the Larashi royals would work its earth their entire lives to quicken the process. The remaining nobility, those with too tenuous a connection to claim complicity for Avalon, were gathered on continent. The Larashi, whose royal dynasty stretched back unbroken through its entire recorded history, learned a human term that day, Balkanization. Their mighty kingdom was splintered into a dozen minor nations whose petty feuds and infighting would undermine any attempt at a unified front. And like that, those who scourge would pose no more threat to any race. Perhaps, someday, a strong enough personality might unite the kingdoms once more. But it would be many cycles in the future, and they would think hard before attacking the humans again. On the floor of the Confederation, the Terran Senator submitted a motion long in the making. The war had gone on long enough, he said, and they had proven their point. Karol would be ended. Aid could be given. The twelve new Larashi subdelegates raised no objection. And the hours afterwards, I had the opportunity to meet with the Terran ambassador over refreshments. 
Had his species barely won the conflict, he might have been swarmed by admirers and sycophants. But their overwhelming onslaught had earned more fear than respect, and so he sat alone. I summoned courage and approached him. He, in turn, welcomed the company. You're braver than most, he said. Before, we were weak, and I had many friends, but now that we are strong, and I foresee a lonely future. Can you blame us, I said. We never could have imagined what you were capable of. We haven't had to be warriors in a very long time, he said. But we never forgot how. Her name is a promise after all. Those who run, he laughed. <laughs> no, not quite, he said. That was a mistranslation from a malfunctioning device. By the time we realized the error, it seemed too trivial to correct. A uh, mistranslation? He smiled, and for the first time I noticed the sharp teeth at the corners of his mouth. It's not those who run, he said. It's those who... chase. End of story. I just quickly want to thank the Tier 5 patrons and channel members. Alithia Barkey, Cam Maxwell, Caspar Arnholtz, Albarden Guster, Arcadian, Lord Azrakal, and Joachim Bakker. Tales from Outer Space 1546. Greetings, ladies and mantle gents, and welcome to this latest edition of Tales from Outer Space. And as always, I hope that you enjoy. Story number one. Human Stereotypes, written by Average Cake Enjoyer. Chris had finally made it onto the ship, the mind-numbing mountain of paperwork that he had to fill out before boarding now, long behind him. After a brisk and slightly confusing walk through the ship's corridors, he'd finally found the way to his shared room. The door sliding open, he stepped into the room, dropping his luggage on the floor with a heavy thud as he all but leapt into his bed, burying his face deep into a pillow as he let out a relieved sigh. Letting a few moments pass so that he could savor the moment, Chris sat back up, pulling his luggage onto his bed. But as he was beginning to unpack, he was interrupted by the sound of the doors opening behind him. As he turned around to face the door, he and what seemed like a large rhino made high contact. Hi! A series of grunts and snorts replied back to Chris, the rhino tilting his head with the new saw the confused look at his face, tapping the small box on his neck a few times. The rhino cleared his voice and tried again. Hello, human! Who may you be? Um, my name's Chris. You? Kialato... I beg your pardon. Kialato... The two looked at each other in an uneasy silence before the rhino broke out in a fit of laughter. After a minute of boisterous laughing, Kialato... managed to regain his composure as he wiped a single tear from his eyes. <laughs> <laughs> my apologies. Some say my sense of humor needs work. And don't worry about the name. You can just call me Cal. It's what everyone else does. Chris sighed in relief at Cal's words. Had me for a moment. Um, well, it's nice to meet you, Cal. You called me in the middle of unpacking. Unpacking? Oh, you must be one of the new hires. Yeah, that's me. I'm surprised I got hired so quickly. I won't lie. Of course they'd hire you. You seem like a fine security officer. What? I'm here as a ship. Surely you just... Uh, you're a human after all. Cal walked forwards and grabbed a large glove on top of one of Chris's duffel bags. You even brought your own warrior gauntlets. That... that's not exactly a gauntlet. That's a baseball glove. One my dad used to own. 
Cal's brow creased in concentration as he attempted to pronounce what Chris said. Macy Ball? His name of one of your warrior clans, yes? Chris's palm met his face. Definitely not. It's one of our sports and we just use that to catch balls. Or else we might end up getting hurt if we don't. <laughs> Giving the glove one last look, he placed it back down as he picked up a small vial. And this? That's just some hot sauce from my planet. I didn't expect to find any good sauces hot enough out here anytime soon. Cal stared at the back of the bottle intently, before throwing it back at Chris haphazardly. This contains capsaicin! This hot sauce of yours is a chemical weapon! No, 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 no. It's just a food additive. My species uses it to give our food some extra spices, but, uh, I guess that explains all the paperwork I had to fill out, Chris explained. Uh, you ingest this? Even the tiniest amount of that is enough to send most of us on the ship to a med bay. And you've got a whole bottle of it. So, uh, I, I shouldn't bring this to the mess. Although just don't pull it out in front of the others and you'll be probably fine, um, he said, sighing. Probably. Right, um, gotcha. Cal squeezed himself past Chris to get to his locker, opening it and grabbing a small cylinder from it. Well then, chef, I'll be getting out of your way since I only dropped by to grab that info tube. If you need me for any reason, I'll be in Section 4B, but in any case, I'm your new roommate as well. Ah, then I'll guess I'll see you soon. Uh, a pleasure meeting you. You as well, human. Take care, Cal said as he walked out the room the door sliding shut behind him. Well, that was interesting, to say the least. Wonder what food they've got here. Chris couldn't even finish his thought before Cal barged through the door again, seeming a bit out of breath. Human Chris, I, I couldn't believe without asking so primitive a question for me. Will you? Um, uh, no problem, shoot. What? In the hard case? He said and pointed a claw. Seeing what Cal pointed to, Chris turned and clicked the latches of the case, opening it as he swung the lid up, revealing a rifle protected by foam. Ah, a slug thrower! I knew you were lying when you said that you were a chef! <laughs> you can't fool me twice! I mean, I guess it's a slug thrower, in a way, but it's just my old airsoft rifle. Most of us use it for recreation, and it shoots small plastic pellets, so it shouldn't be lethal. At least, I hope so. Hey, you're soft. Uh, so it is not your service weapon? Um, no, no it isn't, he said, with a shake of his head. Ha! How hard does it hit? In general, um, yes, I've gone shoot anywhere between 0.5 and 2.5 joules normally, depending on how heavy your pellet is, uh, though mine is on the higher end of that. 2.5 joules? You'll injure, or even worse, kill more than a few of us on board with that! Cal said, in shock, his translator finally catching up to Chris. Wait! How in the seven hells did you manage to get that on board if you're seriously not a security officer? I mean, uh, I showed the people at the port my paperwork for the rifle and they just kind of looked me up and down and let me through. I guess they thought I was security too? He said, embarrassed. Cal gave Chris a calculating look before shaking his head disapprovingly. I, I, I should hide this, uh, shouldn't I? Yes, uh, 
Yes, you should. End of story. Story number two. They wanted our garbage, written by Paragon Nostus. They wanted our garbage. Humans are fairly unremarkable, being limited to their tiny solar system at the edge of the transgalactic stage. They are a tenacious bunch. They built everything sturdy and utilitarian. Their brick-shaped ships still burned chemical fuels, and they had hundreds of backups for simple systems. So... inefficient. However, they were so behind the technological development of the rest of civilized space that they might as well be monkeys throwing space rocks. But one day, they came to us with an interesting offer. We'll buy your garbage. This concept caught the Teledasso species by surprise. We never considered the sale of our garbage. Each family unit recycled everything they used. Nearly everything that was built was built from recycled materials. The concept that we could just dump our trash on someone else was utterly foreign to us. Especially since the humans offered to pay us for it. There was no reason to refuse, so we didn't. Soon we became fairly wealthy as garbage became a huge industry for us, and humans were more than amendable trading partners. After six decades we got wind that they were buying garbage from 18 different species with similar deals. We were not pleased, to say the least. Unhappy that we no longer had a monopoly over the human's garbage industry. I was sent as an envoy of my species' displeasure. And what I saw shocked me. What was once a pathetic fleet, protecting a handful of planets, became several armadas, patrolling every inch of Terran space. Moons were giant recycling plants and refineries. Orbital siphoning stations littered the orbits of every gas giant in the system. They had solar power plants orbiting the yellow star like our own, but it looks as if they changed the designs to be more octagonal so that they could dock together. They used garbage cannons to fire metal at the second planet in their system, using its natural heat to melt any materials into their component parts. They used mighty orbital elevators to heft the refined results into space to be distributed in quite possibly the largest transportation system that I have ever seen. Their ships had somehow assimilated not only our technology, but those of both our allies and enemies. I saw Sephoyal Raltian, a blade of heavy armor, energy shield emitters, and the fallen Dakin Empire and our own magnetic molten slug lances. Even composite metals whose manufacturing methods were planetary secrets were used in construction of frames and keels of these Terran ships. Our human escort could have been classified as a cruiser in her own armada, but the humans corrected me and explained that it was a role as a destroyer, a terrifying name for a terrifying class of ship. My meeting of the human trade ambassador went strangely. 
He thanked me for my surprise visit into human space. I demanded he trade solely with us, and he laughed. Laughed! He told me words that I will never forget. We no longer need your trash. End of story. I just quickly want to thank the Tier 5 patrons and channel members. Alithia Barkey, Ken Maxwell, Casper Arnholtz, Albard and Gusta, Arcadian, Lord Azrakal, and Joachim Bakker. Tales from Outer Space 1547. Greetings ladies and mantle gents and welcome to this latest edition of Tales from Outer Space. And as always, I hope that you enjoy. Story number one. You didn't need 208 Yotabytes to say that you could kick our ass. Written by In Babylon They Wept. Arcanaut knew what humans looked like. They were half his size, soft, pink, and easily bullied. He knew this because he'd spent the last two weeks terrifying the team of human diplomats sent to negotiate trade deals. It was something of a science to him at this point. Small by weak species sends in their diplomats. He spends a week or two terrifying them in close quarters. Then he offers them some dog crap trade deals in exchange for getting to leave early. They take the deal, he gets richer, and in a manner of speaking, the universe becomes a better place. Being a coward was the kind thing that really should be taxed, and he liked to think that his negotiation style has exactly that, a coward tax. Still, that was far from dominating his thoughts at the moment. The conundrum his brain was struggling to untangle was that he knew what a human looked like. And the thing in front of him was not a human. It wore human robes, but underneath the robes it appeared to be a tank that someone had glued several monitors to. Maybe even the antennae of some kind. It was such a chaotic jumble that it was almost funny. The one part of it really seemed to be going too far was the badge sewn onto the front designating it as the official diplomat. He stepped a few feet closer and inspected the possible art piece. He barely had begun to reach his hand forward to lift the tent-sized robe when a mechanical claw pushed forward and clasped around his arm, painless, but implicatable. What the feck? He didn't hear the voice from the thing, nor did he hear it in his mind, as he'd felt with some of the telepathic races. The voice of the abomination felt like it was being physically projected directly inside his own ear, as if its mouth was just a fraction of a centimeter away from his eardrum. Arcanaut, he threw up. The words weren't loud, but they seemed to have some kind of disproportionate effect on his balancing organs. The world was sent spinning and he could barely tell up from down. A second bolt of pain blossomed, this time from the back of his head, and it took him a moment to realize that he'd fallen on fat on his back. He didn't know a simple sound could cause so much damage. And then it continued. You may make threats. You have no ability to back up. You will learn. Even as his senses scrambled, he could feel something cold and metallic pressed in his hand. He was too incoherent to guess what. He wasn't sure if the voice retracted from his ear out of pity, or because it knew that it had proved its point. But he was grateful to hear the rest of the message without feeling like someone was trying to jam sticks into his brain. 
A copy already been sent to your high command. Your diplomacy has already been bypassed. This is simply a personal education on the nature of human violence. Summon me when you understand. He rolled over to see the thing lurching down the hall. Even in its disoriented state, he could see something human in it. Something imperceptibly satisfied with the message that it had delivered. Part of him wondered if there was some small lump of flesh buried deep inside that horror, or if it was just a mind made of metal, an engram with form. Perhaps sensing his gaze, it paused. It didn't turn around, but he doubted that its vision was limited as eyes were. The voice projected forward again, mercifully short of his ear, but still too close for comfort. He could almost imagine the hot breath of it bouncing off of his face, mere millimeters away from it. I will come when you are done. Do not make me find you. It had taken him half an hour to work up the will to pull himself up from the pool of stale vomit, and another ten minutes to stagger back to his cabin. He needed to lean against the wall for the entire walk back. He was genuinely concerned that his balance had been permanently damaged. He did his first inspection of the object that he'd been gifted. It was... Technically, a data slate, but that was somewhat akin to calling a reactor a steam engine. The specs on it didn't even make sense to him. What the hell was exahertz? What was a Benkenstein limit? How could storage be at 130% of it? Couldn't be much of a limit if it went over 100. The device seemed to recognize that it was being inspected and raised a query of its own. User had tracked nut. He nodded dumbly. The slate whirred a few seconds, genuinely struggling to process what it was about to do. And then it began. A tractor stumbled out of the room 17 hours later. He wasn't terrified. He'd run out of the emotional energy needed to feel fear after the first two hours of calm, methodical instruction presented to him by the data slate. He had learned about the nature of human violence. It was no hot-blooded slaughter, no prayer of eternal vengeance... It was an industrial event to them, something to be mass-produced until the market flooded over and peace became the new commodity of choice. And they could do that, easily. He'd seen blueprints for factories that built factories that built factories, replicating swarms of mining drones. The smallest time versus production curve he'd seen was their assault cruisers, and it was still a fourth-order polynomial. If for some reason they needed to wage war for over a year, they could feasibly consume more than 30% of the mass of their first three industrial worlds. And they had more than 40 left in reserve. It assumed earlier that he was arguing from a position of strength because they didn't have an active armada. He realized that the reason they hadn't bothered was because they'd be able to produce one as large as his entire species fleet in under 48 hours. His balance was back, he barely noticed. He followed the same path that he had before, noticed an offhand way that the vomit had been cleaned. The human diplomat must have called that in. He certainly hadn't. He was now in the human section of the cetacean, and while he could sense a wariness in the steps of the pink things around him, it was hardly the full-blown fear he'd managed to instill just 24 hours before. They knew that they'd managed to summon a stronger predator than him. He knew it, too. 
The door that had been summoned to was a repurposed garage. He supposed nothing else would fit someone so large. He knocked twice on the corrugated steel before it began to roll up. The robes were gone. Still no visible flesh, but at least with all the machinery in sight, he had a better idea of what he was looking at. He still didn't see any pink skin there, but he didn't have to when he could see a rack after rack of electroneural interfaces. So there was a brain in there. A human brain, probably very little else. A faint twitch of its insectoid legs gave away its impatience. Ah, so was waiting for him to speak. You didn't need to... Damn! How large was that presentation? The voice was almost offhanded in its response. Uh, 208 megabytes. A tracknot's brain skipped over the scale of that number. It was absolutely massive. Apparently, everything that the humans really put their minds to turned absolutely massive. You didn't need 208 yodabytes to say that you could kick our asses. The faint twitching gave away, replaced by an uncanny stillness. It wasn't the frozen stillness of a robot. It was the tense, rigid posture of someone showing a considerable amount of restraint. No, you certainly didn't when you said that to us. What I needed 208 yodabytes for was showing you how I would kick your asses. It is worth considering how much scarier that is when your empty words. There was a brief noise, like rustling through a speaker, and he realized that the machine had done a purely auditory equivalent of taking a breath. The action was somehow more unsettling than the purely mechanical effect he'd seen before. It made him realize just how close any of the other pink soft things running around the halls were to becoming something like this, something that could crush him with a thought. These thoughts were interrupted by the man-machine's closing words, tired but dangerous. Do not threaten our diplomats again. It is their job to be patient. It is my job to solve problems. I will solve you if I must. The same tired voice spoke again, millimeters from his ear. Now, don't let me detain you. He did what any sane sapient would do. He ran. End of story.